Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. I don't think it's uh, any insult to previous guests to say that this interview is my single favorite episode of the show so far. And it's not just me. Uh, Kieran and Peter McIntyre both said it was their favorite interview that we've done to date. David Chalmers is a philosopher that I've admired since I was an undergrad. Uh, he's just so consistently entertaining uh, and insightful uh, and willing to have a go at thinking through a huge range of really fundamental questions. His work on theory of mind has been hugely influential in philosophy uh, and outside of philosophy, and uh, rightly so in my view. Arden and I recorded uh, one three-hour session with Dave and then decided to come back for seconds because the conversation was uh, just going so well and there was plenty more of important stuff to cover. As a result, it's our longest episode so far, but Kira and I didn't find any of it boring, so there wasn't much that we could cut out. If you want to skip to a particular section, uh, for example, the key part on theories of consciousness and their practical implications, you can always do that using the chapters function in your podcasting app. Two quick notices before that, though. Uh, first, we recently put out an article that might be very interesting to you podcast subscribers called Advice on How to Read Our Advice. Uh, we go through the eight ways that people most often misunderstand what 80,000 hours is saying and how they can better approach our advice instead. If you might use the show or our articles to shape your career, I definitely recommend having a read. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Second, for the last two months, we've been publishing advice from a dozen or so people whose careers we really admire, uh, many of whom are working on the problems we've been focusing on on this show over the last few years. The catch is that the advice is anonymized, uh, so the people we spoke with wouldn't have to worry about whether their employer would be happy with what they were saying or otherwise censor themselves for reputational reasons. We've released six sets of answers so far, including responses to what bad habits do you see among people trying to improve the world, uh, how risk-averse should talented young people be about their careers, and how have you seen talented people fail in their work. I'll link to those entries in the show notes, and if you enjoy this podcast, I suspect you'll enjoy the insights in the Anonymous Advice series as well. All right, without further ado, here's my colleague Arden Kaler and me interviewing one of the most cited living philosophers, Professor David Chalmers. Today, I'm speaking with Professor David Chalmers. Dave is a philosopher at New York University and director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness. He specializes in philosophy of mind and cognitive science, and his interest in philosophy of language, epistemology, metaphysics, and philosophical questions about philosophy itself. He's co-director of the Phil Papers Foundation, which maintains the largest catalog of philosophical books and papers in the world, with 2.4 million entries and over 200,000 users. And he's also an honorary professor of philosophy at the Australian National University, where actually you happened to first meet him about 10 years ago when, when I was an undergraduate. Dave is perhaps best known for his work on the philosophy and science of consciousness, uh, and especially for his work defining and trying to answer the hard problem of consciousness, which we'll talk about in a minute. He's gone on to help pioneer the new field of consciousness studies, which lies somewhere between uh, neuroscience, psychology, and philosophy. And he's also just generally a very prolific author who's uh, written a lot of articles and given a bunch of talks on future-related topics that matter to people who potentially want to steer the direction that humanity is going in. And I was also surprised uh, that, Dave, you uh, grew up in the same city as me in Adelaide, Australia. Yeah, that's right. I lived there till I was about 20 or so. Yeah, uh, me too. I guess I moved away when I was 18 to, to, to go study. I guess a lot of good people leave Adelaide is what I say. Which football team did you support? Oh, neither. Oh, really? <laughs> Embarrassingly. Okay, what about you? Ah, uh, Sturt. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, well, so we maybe grew up in the same suburb. I grew up in Unley. Oh, really? I went to Unley High School. How about you? Okay. Oh, I almost went to Unley High School. I actually went to uh, Glenunga, which is like right nearby. Okay, yeah, I grew up in Mitcham, just south of Adelaide. But... Yeah, I went to Mitcham Primary well, School. How about that? We probably have many mutual friends. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, today uh, we're also joined by Arden Kohler, 
and she's the newest member of the 80,000 Hours research team. Coincidentally, she's actually until now been a PhD student in philosophy at uh, NYU where she's been studying ethics. And so she uh, happens to know Dave in this case by being a teaching assistant in one of his undergraduate classes. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, Arden. Thanks. Excited to be here. All right. So today we hope to get to talk about a whole lot of juicy topics uh, like uh, the simulation hypothesis and virtual reality, some of the work on what philosophers actually do and whether they're succeeding at it and the ethical implications of different theories of consciousness. But first, as I usually ask, uh, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's really important? As always, I'm working on a whole lot of things at any given time. But I guess the biggest thing I'm working on right now is trying to finish a book on philosophical issues about virtual reality and simulated worlds and trying to approach many philosophical questions through that lens. Um, Why is that important? Well, theoretically, I think this is just uh, provides a very productive way of shedding light on some very traditional philosophical questions about our knowledge of the external world, about the nature of reality, and about the, you know, the value of lives. And at the same time, it raises a whole bunch of very new philosophical questions about technologies which are, you know, which are coming into our lives today, technologies such as involving virtual reality and virtual worlds. Why is it practically important? Well, I think... Um, People are beginning to spend more and more time in, uh, in virtual worlds of various sorts. And it's easy to imagine that in the, uh, in the future, we're going to have the, at least the option of spending a whole lot of time in virtual worlds and increasingly sophisticated virtual realities. And I think the question is going to arise, is this actually a meaningful, good way to spend one's life? Or is there something deficient about it? I think if you're interested in building, for example, a better, more valuable future, you want to give some attention to... Uh, some of these issues about the status of virtual worlds and thinking about what makes for the best world. The other thing I'm thinking about, I'm always thinking about is general issues about consciousness and its relationship to the physical world, which again, theoretically, well, I think, you know, consciousness is one of the most central phenomena in our lives and one of the most ill understood. So intellectually, it's fascinating. But again, practically for you know you and listeners interested in building a better world, arguably consciousness is one of the primary determinants of, you know, the value of our lives. Some people think the only determinant, but at least one of the primary determinants of what makes a life better or worse. So if you're trying to think about what makes for a better world and for for better lives, I think you just have to think about consciousness. And I would love to see people interested in, you know, building a better world, get really seriously interested in some of these issues about uh, consciousness to think about how focusing on different states of consciousness can uh, indeed play a role in helping us to build a better world. So uh, back in 2009, you uh, ran this survey with David Bourget, I think is uh, his name, mm-hmm. where you asked, I guess you surveyed quite a lot of philosophers about what they thought about just like a lot of kind of current issues in philosophy or current questions in philosophy. The bottom line is that the, the results suggested that there's just very little consensus among philosophers about uh, a lot of these questions. It was like some, some points of agreement, but a lot of points of difference. I guess, yeah, what, did, what are the main things that you think you, uh, you learned from, from running this survey? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, the main things I learned was specific answers to specific questions. So yeah, we surveyed, we sent out emails to about 2000 philosophers in 100 odd departments of philosophy in the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK, Europe, and we got about a 50% response rate. So we got you know 1000 people responding, each answering about 30 questions, which gave them the choice typically between two views like mind, physicalism, or non-physicalism, normative ethics, consequentialism, deontology, or virtue ethics, and so on. And they got, the, they got the option of accepting every answer or leaning towards that answer, or there was a whole host of 
other options, like the question is too meaningless to answer or insufficiently familiar with the details or uh, with the issue, or it all depends what you mean by a key term and, and so on. And philosophers love those <laughs> other options. But still, we got, we got um, yeah, enough information on a lot of these for it to be very interesting. I mean, at a general level, it wasn't terribly surprising. We found a lot of disagreement about the answers to these questions. Many of them ended up 50-50, Platonism versus nominalism about abstract objects, roughly, whether they're abstract objects like numbers exist or not, came out about 50-50. Physicalism versus non-physicalism about the mind came up about, I think, 56% for physicalism, 28% for non-physicalism. The rest were varieties of, of agnostic. The biggest consensus we got was on the external world, actually. Realism about the external world, the ex we know the external world exists. Skepticism, we don't know, or idealism, it's all in the mind. We got about, I think we got about 80% for realism or close to that, maybe 5% each for skepticism or idealism. I'm sort of relieved. <laughs> You defer to philosophers about this. You can now <laughs> infer that we do know about the external world. I'm not sure about the difference. But um, we actually, at the same time, to quantify the degree to which we should be surprised, we took a meta-survey where we, uh, we asked people for their predictions. You know, after they returned the survey, in the ensuing couple of weeks, we asked people for their predictions about what the results of the survey would be. So we could say, okay, with respect to the question, is there an analytic synthetic distinction? That is, things which are true in virtue of the meaning of, meanings of words versus things which are true in virtue of the worlds. Many philosophers, the actual answer to that question came out 70 to 30. 70% of people said there is an analytic synthetic distinction. 30% said there's not. But philosophers' predictions was that it would come out 50-50. So actually, many philosophers had a false sociological belief about philosophers. They tended to believe that the analytic synthetic distinction is less popular and less widely believed than it actually is. And we got many results of that form where people underestimated or overestimated the popularity of certain hypotheses by up to about 20%. So that was a way of actually quantifying how surprised you might be by these results. Now, I think we also got to quantify people's performance on the meta survey. And I'm pleased that, to say that I, I came out in like in the top five or so for uh, performance on the, uh, the meta survey. Maybe I cheated a bit because I'd run some you know, some test surveys along the way. So I was relatively well informed about this. How surprised was I by the results of the survey? Well, still, actually, the one that surprised me the most was the question about aesthetic value. Aesthetic value, is it objective or subjective? I was sure that a large majority of people would say it's subjective. In fact, we got more people saying it's objective. Yeah, I was surprised by that one too. Yeah, that's one we pulled out to potentially discuss this. Uh, we, we, yeah, I, I saw that. I just couldn't, couldn't believe it. I well, I mean, this raises an interesting question of like, what should you do when you get the results of the survey and you just think that the results, like the, the answer is absolutely mental. <laughs> so it's like, plus it like, yeah, there's a plurality saying that they think aesthetic value is objective. And I'm like, so, so do they really think that, you know, if there was another set of beings and they thought that like the art that we liked, that they hated it. And there was like no other beings that liked it, that they're just mistaken. And in fact, this art that they hate is actually just is the right art, the best art. Yeah, what, what, should, what should one do? Should, uh, should I like think maybe we're answering a different question and we're misunderstanding one another? Or should I just be like, wow, these people have thought about it as much as I have and they disagree. Did you shift your views a lot maybe in, in, in reaction to the results even when you thought they were wrong? Yeah, well, my reaction to getting a surprising result like that was to think that probably they're understanding, quite possibly they're understanding the question in a way differently from the way that I'm understanding it. I mean, we very deliberately did it with just with very short labels not with long expositions of what every option means, just because that process is endless and contestable. But um, yeah, so it may be that what people meant when they said that aesthetic value is objective is something different from what you and I meant. You know, not that there's some objective standards that would apply, for example, to aliens, but maybe there are, apply, there are standards that apply, say, to more than one human being and that uh, somehow 
some things can some works of art can be rel- can be better than others at least relative to say uh human being standards and one can make aesthetic mistakes it's not totally up to uh an individual observer that in a way that might still allow that this is still somehow relativized to having certain very general norms of aesthetic appreciation. So my sense is, I've talked to a few people in aesthetics about this result, and typically debates about whether aesthetic value is objective or subjective seem to have that form, rather than the one that would be about the possibility of species with different aesthetic norms who might equally be be getting things right. So yeah, that was, so, so in some cases, that was my reaction. And that was an issue I was rel- less familiar with than some others. So maybe I updated on what philosophers mean by objective or subjective. In other cases, I'd have to, uh, I have to think. I mean, there is this general question as to whether we should defer to the results of this survey. If it turns out most philosophers think that P, then one should think that P. I think very few philosophers have this reaction. I certainly didn't have <laughs> didn't have this reaction. You know, it's a field where disagreement is rife. These are all hard issues. You know, philosophers can get these things wrong. So I don't think there was a lot of actual updating first order views. But but not the philosopher who's saying that. Other philosophers, of course, can get it wrong. But oh well, I think you know philosophers at a certain level have a certain kind of. Humility. I mean, we're very com- at a first order level. We give arguments for our views and make them as strong as we can, and and accept them. Maybe you're even are confident in them. But then at a second order level, we step back and say, "Well, these issues are really hard, and we may be getting things wrong." And that's something like the attitude I have in doing philosophy. I think I've got good arguments for my views, and I'll and I'll give them. And uh, but then at a higher order level, you can't help but step back and say, "You know, there's a good chance that that I'm wrong." I still think you should try and pursue those those views as well and as uh, as robustly as you can. But it does mean that for practical purposes, to say, you know, a life and death issue depends on this, you might want to factor in a good degree of humility into your actions. A lot of the survey responses were like very mixed. There wasn't even a majority, you know, there was like it was like split in thirds between yes, no and other on some on some or can't decide or something a question. But one one place where I thought it could make sense to update in the direction of like philosophers is the compatibilism question or the free will question. Mm. So there was a question about like free will, compatibilism, libertarianism, or no free will. Hey listeners, Arden here. So uh, throughout this episode, we throw around a lot of philosophical terms of art and we're not always great about defining them as we go. So I'm just gonna jump in with a few definitions here and there. The first is compatibilism. So compatibilism is the view that we could live in a fully deterministic universe, at least at the macro level, where the state of the world is completely determined or necessitated by the state of the world the moment before, but that that this is consistent with people having free will in an important sense, and especially in the sense that's required for moral responsibility. Libertarianism, in contrast, in this debate refers to the idea that we have free will in the sense of like, we can genuinely do one thing or another and it's not determined by, you know, how things have been going on in our brains the moment before. And that's incompatible with determinism. Okay, back to the show. Just like in the wider world, it seems like a lot of people don't recognize that first option. And the fact that 59% of philosophers favor compatibilism, I thought like, oh, that's like maybe one of the few cases where it could make sense to read the survey and be like, oh, maybe I'll update in that direction. Yeah, I think it maybe interacts with what you think about the first order. Uh, it's true. No, I see. The, the <laughs> first order question. I'm sympathetic. With, yeah. It is a case. Philosophers are generally much more sympathetic with compatibilism than non-philosophers. I think it's crazy. And uh, I'm inclined to think this is a case where the philosophers have just thought about it a bit more deeply than the non-philosophers, especially why you think, why do we care about free will? Because we care about moral responsibility, having some kind of genuine responsibility for your actions. And 
when to think about this, you start to think, well, you know, even if the universe is deterministic, is there still a distinction between being responsible for your actions and not? And it's very, I think it's very easy to motivate the idea that even in a deterministic universe, there could be that distinction. So that leads you in the direction of even if in a, in a deterministic universe, there could be free will. Now, someone interested in free will say, well, that wasn't what I cared about, moral responsibility. I cared about some other stronger thing, like, you know, being able to fundamentally make a difference to the time course of the, of the universe in some very strong sense. So that, I think, your average philosopher is going to say, okay, well, maybe that's not compatible with determinism. There's a very strong sense of free will, which is not. But then they're going to say, well, but that one actually turns out to be less worth caring about, less than this, uh, this other one tied to moral responsibility. And I think at that point, we're in something like a verbal, we're in a verbal dispute, which can happen in these cases where you know, different people just mean different things by, by free will. And I think that diagnosis is more apt for some of these questions than for others. But like this is the case. Your average philosopher uses free will for the thing tied to moral responsibility. Many people outside philosophy may still think, ah, why use free will for that? I want to use free will for this other thing, this ability to fundamentally go against the laws of nature. And then we just have a difference about which one is worth caring about. Yeah, I'm pretty drawn to compatibilism. So I was uh, relieved to see this survey result definitely confirming that my that my view is correct. <laughs> but I, I think that there's like probably compatibilism is right, at least like for a particular understanding of the question. But I suppose I don't think that you can get moral responsibility out of that. So I'm kind of maybe not drawn to it for that reason. It just is the reason that most people are going for compatibilism that they that they want to like bring back moral responsibility for things. Not so much that they want to bring it back. It's just they think that there is an intuitive difference between cases where you're morally responsible and cases where you're not morally responsible, even in a deterministic universe. Yeah, I guess it just seems like if you're not responsible for like the preferences that you have, then even though in a sense you like had the ability to predict and then create the outcome that you wanted, you're not then culpable for like having had the wrong preferences in 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 my mind. I think often the idea is that you can be responsible for who you are. And it's not because you like created who you are freely or something like that, but that we just have to like re-understand what you can be responsible for. And one of the things is like being the person you are with the traits you have and the character you have. And and then everything that flows from that can be your responsibility. Yeah, seems odd to me, but yeah. And even if you're not responsible for your character, you might think nonetheless you can be responsible for your actions. You can deny the principle that responsibility for your actions requires responsibility for everything that led to your actions. So you think no one is re- no one is morally responsible for anything? Oh, fundamentally, I mean, I think we should punish people and reward them and so on. I just don't think that it's because of like deservingness or like, yeah, moral, respon- moral culpability. Oh, well, I think many people want to distinguish moral responsibility from desert or deservingness. So I think some people think that, yeah, to actually to have this notion of desert that you really deserve, certain things would require some strong kind of free will, which might not exist in a deterministic universe. But I think some people want to nonetheless say there's a, a weaker notion of responsibility which can exist. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you can be like causally responsible, I suppose, but I, I guess I don't feel like that then necessarily creates like a motivation for retribution or punishment, like beyond the kinds of consequences that create the right incentives for people to, to produce good outcomes. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I think many people think they want to reconstruct a notion of moral responsibility that doesn't go along with retribution and desert. And, you know, you can have a moral responsibility that doesn't ground those things, but nonetheless, Browns being having certain attitudes towards their actions, where we say, you know, they did the right thing, they did the wrong thing. Or like pride. Like, do you think that like, it's fundamentally inappropriate to feel proud of like a morally good action? Because you should feel guilty and proud if it will produce good outcomes. (laughs) Right. So it's not appropriate. It's not made appropriate by the like character of the action. It's just like instrumental. Yeah, definitely. I suppose this isn't a... (laughs) But still some ways of producing a good outcome... We want to say you're, you're responsible for and you should feel maybe you should feel guilty about and we should 
have certain treat a certain way. Other ways, say it's done under the influence of a of a drug or something, then um, someone gave you them, then those that attitude to the person is inappropriate. Even in, so even in a deterministic universe, I think one can draw those distinctions. That ends up being what we use words like moral responsibility to track. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It is interesting how people's intuitions about the cases in which you should feel proud or not, or be punished or not, seem to track so well. Like when the incentives actually will make society better. But anyway, we, we should probably probably move on. This is ultimately wasn't meant to be a section about about compatibilism specifically. Because yeah, a really interesting finding from the survey, uh, which Arden pointed out to me, is that there was like only very weak correlations between kind of the answers that philosophers were giving across different questions. For example, if you you know uh, survey the general public and ask them kind of their view on the death penalty, then that gives you like a remarkably good ability to then predict their view on climate change or their view on like international uh, relations, which, and which is like, in a sense, kind of surprising, but people are like lined up in these like group uh, ideological groupings where it's like you can, yeah, uh, the answers to one question predicts another. But, but the highest correlation coefficient in, in, in this survey was uh, 0.56, which is kind of only moderate and was between uh, uh, moral realism and cognitivism, which like obviously have a lot to do with one another directly. Okay, we have some more terms here. So moral realism and cognitivism. Moral realism is the view that morality is in some sense out there to be discovered, objective, not dependent on our beliefs and attitudes, not a social construct. Cognitivism is the view that moral statements are truth apt in the sense that they can be true or false. Okay, back to the show. Were you surprised by the kind of low correlations or the kind of the low level of kind of ideological, maybe consistency is not the right word, but uh, ideological fervor or like uh, between, between uh, different camps within philosophy? I don't know. I think a point where I come from, 0.56 is a pretty high correlation coefficient. So uh, I don't know. Maybe it depends on the, uh, like on the area. Maybe. <laughs> That's it? Yeah. Philosopher considers that a very high correlation. Well, in psychology or something, you, you never get point, it's very rare you get something as high as high as that. You know, you're pretty happy if you get 0. 0.3. 0.56 corresponds to um 80% agreement on the on diagonal elements, I think in a, I think in that question, you see basically 80% of the realists are cognitivists and vice versa. And then maybe about 15% in the off diagonal. So 15% of the realists are non-cognitivists or something. So that's, you know, and one way of looking at it, it's pretty high, pretty high agreement. Given one person's result, you can predict the other person's result with 80% accuracy. But yeah, there are reasons to think it'll be imperfect because all these questions can uh, involve subtle distinctions. And there are, there are non-cognitivists who nonetheless consider themselves realists and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I guess in politics, it seems like that like brings out people's tribal instincts. So they like tend to group together for like practical reasons, if not intellectual reasons, uh, like kind of all sharing the same views or like wanting to, to, to fall into line because like particular incentives to do that. Uh, an interesting thing, I, I'll link to a study looking at yeah how ideologically tightly grouped are, are people in politics. And it found that uneducated people just like have views that are all over the place. Oh, like, yeah, their views on one question don't really predict their views on another. So in a sense, they're like very ideologically flexible. Whereas like the more educated you get, yeah, once you've like done a PhD, then you're just like completely in one camp and like all of your views line up very consistently, which I, I guess from one point of view could be viewed as a success because it means that they've like brought their views on like different questions into line by seeing kind of common elements. On the other hand, it could just be viewed as like a social phenomenon where it's like you've like fallen into line with a particular social group and now you've just adopted all of their views. We did do it. We did do a factor analysis, and we found you know some very strong correlations and factors, and you know we could eyeball the factors and try and give them labels. There was a realist factor; people who tended to think certain phenomena are real. There was a naturalist factor; people who wanted to you know to reduce things. There were kind of a in, there was an internalist externalist factor tending to think the environment matters or what's somehow inside the system matters. Those are very loose groupings, but we did find, you know, pretty strong correlations between clusters of five or six questions where 
the response to one question would predict pretty strongly the response to others in the cluster. For what it's worth, to my mind, it's like kind of a good thing. Or I was I was like pleased to see that 0.56 was like the highest correlation because it seems like at least for many of the questions that were on the survey, like there really wasn't like that much logical connection between them. And so it does seem like it should be possible to hold different views on different ones. Was that part of why you how you designed the survey? Like each question was supposed to be like logically separate than the others? Yeah, at least if they were too closely related, that was a reason not to do it. For example, we had a question about Newcomb's problem. Should you be a one boxer or a two boxer in Newcomb's paradox? Oh, I think I saw that. And didn't didn't most people say like other (laughs) or something? (laughs) Well, a lot of people said this is, it was probably the most technical question on the survey, the one that required the most background knowledge. So maybe half the people said, I haven't thought about it enough. And all the people who did it, I think it was about, it was a small majority for two boxing, maybe three to two or something for, uh, for two boxing. But we thought about also asking a question about Decision theory, causal or evidential. But then, well, what's the point of asking that question? Because it's going to correlate so strongly with Newcomb's problem, basically. Two boxes are usually causal decision theorists, and one box is usually evidential decision theorists. And yeah, these can, these can maybe come apart in some circumstances. But yeah, that question just didn't really seem worth spending a whole extra, a whole extra one of our 30 questions on, because it would so strongly correlate. Whereas the cognitive, moral cognitivism versus moral realism are distinct enough that we expect this from correlation, but it's also informative to find out how many people these, uh, these come apart on. Maybe we got just enough information out of that. Oh, we have a new version of the survey that we are just, we're going to launch very soon, because um, the first one was, was conducted in November 2009. So we've got, to get on, we've got to get on this quick, because November 2019, which is next month, will be the 10-year anniversary. For the new survey, we're going to ask uh, the same 30 questions again and see how answers to those have changed over 10 years, both individually and as a distribution, which will be interesting. And we also want to ask a whole, whole bunch of new questions, maybe a new, another 10 questions we'll ask to everyone and another 50 or 60 questions we'll ask to some subset, randomly selected subset of the population, just to get more information about more questions. And for those, you know, we've been, maybe we've been less choosy about picking ones which are completely distinct from each other. So maybe there'll be some even stronger correlations among these. If you have any questions you want to suggest for the uh, for the survey, feel free. Yeah, we should have to think oh, about yeah. that. Maybe listeners can, can, can email in if we've got a good one. Okay, great. Do you have any particular prediction about how things will go? I guess I predict that this is like a famous survey now, so you get a higher response rate because people will be like, finally, I get a chance to like cast my vote for, for philosophical questions. Yeah, it is, um, it is actually... Um, I think it is respectable. I think actually someone brought out like a list of the most highly cited papers in philosophy over the last 10 years. And this one, the paper that David and I published was number one, not because of any particular merits of this amazing insights in our paper, but because people just wanted to cite the results. Papers on contextualism say most philosophers believe this. Papers on many papers on free will say blah, blah, blah. So um, yeah, so at the, at the very least, it's a respectable thing. Hopefully we'll get more, more uh, respondents this time. Yeah, it's a genius strategy, Dave, to get like other people to say things and then associate yourself with that and then get lots of attention uh, <laughs> via them. If, if only I could find some way to do that in my own life. Yeah, but. I don't know. I don't think I don't sure one wants to really become known as the uh, world's leading cataloger of other philosophers' views. <laughs> I don't think that's really around the same in fortune. Kind of citation farming. Yeah. So, I mean, it raises an interesting question of like, why hasn't this been done long ago? Because it seems like you know, you've got this whole field that's trying to answer these questions. Wouldn't it be useful to know what they think about these questions to like help us update our views and like to produce knowledge for the public to like form opinions about, about all of these issues? Like what's, it's, it's kind of a curious social phenomenon or professional phenomenon to me that this took until 2009 to happen. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, and um, as far as I know, they haven't, I mean, the, the same question applies to many fields. 
of course. Be great to know what most physicists think and most chemists think and uh, so on. And my sense is that it has not happened in many fields. There are there are some that I've uh, there are little things I've seen here and there, small groups of physicists, and I guess there's something involving economists. But yeah, I don't know. A, it's logistically tricky, I guess, to do it. B, in the case of philosophy, there's the extra thing that philosophers are meant to think independently. They pride themselves on this. They don't defer. They think of themselves as not deferring to other philosophers much. We also know these are fields with lots of disagreements. So if you're just trying to find the truth about a topic, I don't think most philosophers think ask a bunch of philosophers is the best response. Whereas this is actually a reason why you might have expected it to happen sooner in physics or chemistry or economics, because there is somewhat more consensus in those fields. But maybe the thought is when there's a consensus, it's obvious what the consensus is. So we don't need to do the survey. I do predict that if people do these surveys in many fields, there'll be some prizes. But the other thing was David and I were just in a position to do it because we had set up this web service, Full Papers, which most philosophers turned out to be users of. And it wasn't terribly hard to extend that to get a to get a full database and a controlled population that we could we could survey. This year we'll be in a position to go much wider uh, wider still. So maybe just the internet makes these things a lot easier. Yeah, there is this Chicago Booth School where they do very regular surveys of economists on like policy issues, which I guess uh, I suppose it like it seems very decision relevant there. So it's easy to maybe get funding to find that out. There's of course that like they don't they don't take surveys on theoretical questions. Uh, much less, I think. Yeah. Oh, it's a shame. It's more typically on like you know minimum wage, yay or nay uh, kind of thing. Yeah. At least like those are the ones that I've seen anyway. Every now and then I see polls of physicists on the on the like the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics. I was just at a conference of physicists and philosophers where there was a where they actually took a survey at the end of the conference on many questions in the foundations of physics. But again, the, the groups are small. I think you've got to really try and try and really go for a uh, go for a big results. Yeah. I mean, there's also the uh, survey of AI researchers and, you know, when they expect different, uh, you know, a threshold oh, yeah, of competence in AI, uh, which, which yeah. we talked about on another episode a while ago with uh, with Katja Grace. I mean, interestingly, yeah. that seemed like the conclusion with that from talking with her was that we don't know. Uh, and AI researchers themselves don't really know because their answers are kind of inconsistent and you know, like very spread out. So, I mean, I, but I think that is like potentially a real finding, both from this survey about philosophers and the survey about AI researchers is just that there's no consensus, which I think should then lead people to be more agnostic and to say, well, you know, a lot of different things are possible and maybe we should you know hedge our bets a bit on all these questions yeah although again there's probably a selection effect to take surveys on on questions where there's no consensus because a lot of the time when that where there's a consensus it'll be fairly obvious and therefore not worth taking a survey about yeah that makes sense i guess that, that helps to explain why there's not a survey of chemists on like well is it like the number of like really live controversial questions in chemistry presumably at any given moment is more, much more limited than there is among philosophers philosophy is basically selected to be the field where there's a uh, controversy and disagreement over questions because you know many 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 fields started out as philosophy you know Newton was a uh, was a philosopher but comes up with some methods to settle these settle these questions and then once you've got those methods and there's a certain degree of agreement then we spin it off and we call it physics it's no longer philosophy so and this happens again and again so there is some selection effect for philosophy basically to be a field where almost by definition there's disagreement over the key questions. Yeah, that leads very nicely into, into the next section on your paper about why hasn't there been more progress in philosophy. But, I just wanted to, but before that, I wanted to comment that it seems like this could be, like, would this be good for people's philosophical, like academic careers to be doing these surveys in different fields? Because it seems like, well, you can get a lot of citations at least. And I suppose people will pay attention to you and like maybe know your name because you did this thing that they actually find really interesting to like read about and, you know, blog about. Yeah. Is it, is it something that people could potentially do that's like both very useful, at least from my point of view, and also is like uh, good for their academic career? I think, yes, it's useful. No, it's not particularly good for your academic career. I don't think that if I had done this just starting out and have been the, the main thing I did, it certainly is not the kind of thing that particularly helps you get a job in a leading philosophy department. It's viewed as you know somehow statistical. 
and something that doesn't require great philosophical insight. So, you know, fortunately, you know, I, I had a reputation already, and my co-author David has a reputation for working on other things in the uh, in the philosophy of mind. So, um, is it a marginal benefit? Yeah, probably helped. It might have helped David on his tenure case to have a uh, have such a highly cited paper. But I doubt that many people were even then. Probably when people are writing letters of evaluation and so on, it's something that gets a, a few lines along the way, rather than people say, "Wow, this is this amazing service to the field." Or maybe they think it's a good service to the field, but somehow it's not something that brings you individual credit. Yeah, or is it? It's somehow just like almost too crass or too practical, maybe for academia. It's certainly true that when we took the survey, we got many people who responded by saying this is a ridiculous thing to be doing, <laughs> unphilosophical to be uh, taking a survey of philosophers as if we should be deciding philosophical questions by democracy. You know, that said, a lot of people loved it and, yeah. and they took it. But we did get a lot of, quite a lot of negative reactions the first time around, which we tried to answer by saying well, there are various obvious reasons why this is important. I mean, people do make sociological assumptions about what philosophers believe in writing their philosophy papers all the time. For example, they don't, they feel they think they don't need to defend certain assumptions because they think most philosophers already accept it. And so on having better information about that should allow you to write to do better philosophy. I mean, that actually suggests that philosophers do think the fact that a lot of philosophers believe something is a yeah. good reason to believe it. If they like, don't think they use that as a premise. Yeah, exactly. I think it's more that just sociologically, they're going to think that if enough people disagree with this premise, they're going to reject my paper at the starting point. I see. So for my own purposes, <laughs> I need to argue for this if I want to bring people along with me. But yeah, but, but, but philosophers do think about this. Maybe this is not going to be important to them in figuring out what's true, but it is going to be important to them in figuring out how to write a paper. And a lot about what's involved in writing a philosophy paper, of course, is not about figuring out what's true, but convincing other people that is true. There is this interesting phenomenon that people are trying to do experimental philosophy where they would yeah, take the premises that philosophers would claim that like every normal person would believe and then like actually survey people to see if they agreed. And they often found that just a typical person off the street like would very often disagree with what philosophers thought was completely common sense. I wish I could think of a good example off the top of my head. But yeah, I suppose I have learned from just looking at lots and lots of polling data on political questions and yeah, like academic questions that it's very hard to predict what typical person or what, like, what is the distribution of views because it's like all of us has such a filtered like perspective because we, we tend to associate with people who like have the same common sense as us. And so, yeah, one has to be like, for example, if you look at like polling of the United States, it seems like immigration has never been more popular with the American public since polling began and trade has never been more popular, but it is absolutely not probably the perception you would get like reading the newspaper or just like guessing uh, what it would be. It's constantly shows us, uh, yeah, uh, produce these, uh, these really surprising results. Yeah, experimental philosophy is also doing all this stuff cross-culturally. And it turns out that, well, initially it seemed to turn out that a whole lot of assumptions that Western philosophers were making about, say, knowledge versus justified true belief might be rejected by people in different cultures. That was about sort of 20 odd years ago. I think now the trend has been towards making the case there's actually more convergence between cultures and across cultures than people had thought before. But I've actually just lately gotten interested in the question of to what extent intuitions about consciousness are shared across cultures and various people who have tried to make the case that, you know, some Western assumptions are not are not shared in, in other cultures. So I'm going to I'm hoping that we might get some data from that soon. But we can get limited data from polling philosophers on these questions. But to get uh, broader data, one would need somehow to poll uh, other people in a way that we don't have access to doing right now. But I'm hoping some experimental philosophers will start doing that. Yeah. Coming back to this paper you wrote, like, why hasn't there been more progress in philosophy? I think it was back in 2004, you wrote, consensus in philosophy is as hard to obtain as it ever was, and, and decisive arguments as, are as rare as they ever were. And to me, this is the largest disappointment in the practice of, of philosophy. I guess, uh, what, what could be said in, in, in defense of philosophy, given that there hasn't been convergence on most questions, they can't kind of have been convergence on the right answers to most of these questions? Well, the big obvious thing that can be said in defense of philosophy here is the thing that I said already, which is philosophy by its nature 
is the field where there's disagreement because once we uh, once we attain methods for producing agreement on questions in reasonably decisive ways, we spin it off and it's no longer philosophy. So from that perspective, philosophy has been this incredibly effective incubator of disciplines. Uh, physics span out of philosophy, psychology span out of philosophy, you know, argue, to some extent, economics and linguistics span out of philosophy. So but what usually happens is not that we entirely solve a, solve a philosophical problem, but we, uh, we come up with some methods of, say, making progress experimentally or formally on a certain sub-question or aspects of that question, and then that gets spun off. The part that we haven't figured out how to think about well enough, that remains philosophy. Is that the philosopher's fault? No, absolutely not. Look at all the great philosophers who successfully addressed those questions. It's, the, it's just the nature of the field. There is still, though, the question, why is it that on the questions that remain, that they are as hard as they are? I mean, certainly they've been selected for being hard, so one shouldn't be surprised that philosophical questions are subject to disagreement. But still, faced with any individual question, like, say, the mind-body problem, it's like, damn, this is so hard. Why, aren't, why don't more people agree with me? Why, aren't there, uh, why is this so hard to come to grips with? And I think my own view is it's probably something about the difference in the character of the problems. It's not the differences in the character of the, uh, the field. I don't think it's that if we had a somewhat, you know, I mean, philosophy, like every discipline, has its pathologies. But I kind of suspect that if you sort of, you know, ran over, redid philosophy with a different population with somewhat different pathologies, you'd still find disagreement over the big questions of philosophy, which is subject to the biggest most fundamental disagreement, like, say, I don't know, physicalism versus non-physicalism about the mind, or consequentialism versus non-consequentialism about ethics, or deep differences in political philosophy. I'm inclined to think that those are probably, those, those are just disagreements that run deep. And it's something about the nature of the questions, and at least so far, we're not in a position to uh, compel agreement on them. So yeah, but on this way of looking at things, it's not the problem is not exactly the problem of philosophers, which is not to say that it might not be something specific to our situation, and that in the in the future, with enough information and enough reasoning, enough new background, enough advances, these problems might eventually be solved. This is maybe a little bit too big of a question, or will take us a little bit off track. But so even though we haven't converged very much on true answers to the big questions of philosophy of like, you know, how did the universe begin and the mind-body problem, that kind of thing. We do make progress on little questions and we also clarify questions a lot and we create new questions and we map out logical space and we figure out like sort of what's really going on underneath apparent disagreements, resolve verbal disagreements, all kinds of other stuff like that. So that also sort of feels like progress to me. What do you think is the value of that kind of progress? Does it have independent value or is its value mostly derivative of its allowing us to do a better job of answering philosophical questions, big or small? I think it is absolutely is progress of this kind. And most of what philosophers typically call or think of as progress in the field consists of this kind of smaller kind of progress, you know, making an important distinction, getting a new framework, finding a new argument for review refuting some versions of a view. And so I'm not like deciding the big question for once and for all, but, you know, getting new reasons on either side, carving up a landscape better, getting a better understanding. So I think all that is really, uh, all that is important. I think it's very conducive towards understanding. I think understanding is a virtue, even if it's not necessarily conducive towards first order knowledge. Right. You at least understand what you don't know. Yeah. Or, I think, you know, understanding, you... Is, understanding is genuinely important. I mean, a lot depends on what you see as the aim of philosophy. If it's a practical aim, I mean, for me, I'm not interested in philosophy primarily to improve the world. I'm interested in philosophy to actually ultimately to, to understand reality. 
And then I guess, well, then almost by definition, understanding is going to be valuable, even if it doesn't produce first order knowledge. I would like, as part of this quest to understand reality, to know things about reality, to fully, to, you know, not just to understand issues about consciousness, but to know a correct theory of consciousness and to, to fully understand and, and know the truth about the relationship between mind and body. So I think that's kind of an ultimate goal. But even if you fall short of that goal, there are these forms of understanding that don't involve knowing the deep and ultimate truth that I think if you're in philosophy to understand the world, I think those things at least feel as if they have really significant intellectual value. Now, how that plays into the question of the practical role of philosophy, I'm not sure. I'd like to think that understanding, say, some issues, and even if we don't totally resolve the issues, say, between the truth of consequentialist and non-consequentialist theories in ethics, nonetheless, understanding those issues and the considerations on either side and the different varieties that work better than others is still going to be of a whole lot of practical use in thinking about, you know, making a better world and so on. So yeah, maybe the, the smaller questions that you're raising nonetheless can play a sort of at least some fraction of the practical role that would have if we actually knew the definitive answers to the big questions. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that, uh, that you don't think the pathologies of philosophy are, as a field are like uh, are worse than, than in others. But I guess I want to push back on that a little bit because it seems like to some extent part of the goal of philosophers or like one way to succeed as a philosopher is just to carve out kind of some new position that someone else hasn't taken. And because there's like there's only so many positions out there, at some point people just end up pushing into like more and more ridiculous views in order to like have something new to say in order to, to get an academic job. I'm reminded of a sort of like someone who was starting out their, their PhD and both they and their supervisor kind of agreed on this philosophical view and the student said, oh, like, could I do my thesis on you know, explaining like why this view is correct? And the supervisor said, no, I mean, there's, there's no point like writing up a defense of like the correct view. That's like a pointless move as like from an academic career point of view, you got to find something new and different to say. And I guess I wonder whether that like creates like a perverse incentive for philosophers to just like spread out all across the board to have like many different views in order to like make sure that they can like justify having their jobs. Yeah, I mean, there may be something to that. I mean, philosophy does have its pathology, certainly. I don't think I said there are they're no worse than in other fields. I think it's every field. Every field has its pathologies. Philosophy may be open to having more because we're not as constrained, say, by experiment and formal methods and so on, the things that pin things down more in other fields. That said, I think every academic field I've got to know well, which is quite a few by now, has <laughs> got very, very serious pathologies. And uh, I don't, I'm not saying philosophies are any better and they could well be worse. The one you mentioned, I think it happens. There are certain kinds of reward for interesting disagreement in philosophy, not disagreement alone, but if you can, uh, there's are certainly rewards for novelty as in all academic fields. I mean, the same goes on in psychology. You know, you come up with results confirming what people thought would be the case, then very hard to get them get them published. You come up with things disconfirming, then it's much easier to get them published. But, but then exactly what we do see there, it's like- The it, massive biases. It seems hugely corrupted, yeah. And it just leads to like very like bad ideas getting promoted. Just to defend philosophy for a second. Yeah. I mean, you could think that maybe one of the reasons that having a discipline of philosophy is useful is- making sure that people are sort of like checking all of these like strange seeming views and like coming up with new views, you know, maybe most of them are definitely most of them can't be right. But then, um, you know, they might like stumble upon something that really is right or can give us, you know, a deeper understanding of something and that it really is useful to have that pressure toward novelty. I mean, I'm not sure this justifies it in in like the case of the story that you told, but like. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that that is like a good justification for having philosophy as a field, like exploring the space of ideas 
ideas that we currently think are, are, are wacky. But then it means that there's like no mystery why it is that philosophers have like very widely different views because like we don't allow them to get the job unless they do. This is just pushing back on the idea there might be a pathology yeah. of philosophy. Okay, yeah. Maybe it's actually a feature. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are various reasons why you want why it's, why it's good to have different views be explored and understood. It's also true in science, of course. You want to have you want to make sure that views are not being uh, are not being overlooked, and it's good for the field to have individuals who are pursuing all kinds of different views, even if the science, the field as a whole, comes to a collective judgment. But I'm um, just a couple of things on. I mean, I think this does happen in philosophy. I think the reverse also happens, as in science. People can be rewarded for sticking to known paradigms and for extending them in certain directions. There are many, many supervisors who are extremely happy when when their students work on extending extending their views. But I think the question you're really trying to raise here is whether all that disagreement that we find on big philosophical questions is somehow explained by this effect. I'd be extremely surprised if that's the case. I think it may well make a difference to the numbers and many things make a difference to the numbers. But if the, if the idea is, well, without this particular pathology, then we might have actually had convergence on a certain view of normative ethics or a certain view of the mind-body problem. I really find that extremely implausible. I think it's something about the questions here. Just the evidence is not really is not really in. There are considerations, and there are strong considerations in favor of this. My expectation is you could rerun philosophy with many different psychologies and many different pathologies. And it's just that, you know, there are these kind of incommensurable considerations in both directions. I mean, it's certainly true there are subcultures that converge on some of these things. I think that's actually a way of making philosophical progress is through having subcultures that share certain assumptions. So, you know, maybe most effective altruists, say, are, uh, are consequentialists of a certain kind. And it's one way to make philosophical progress is to make those assumptions go ahead, push things ahead in a way which is harder if you didn't share those assumptions. But if you then come back and say, ah, and it's just a pathology, say, of academia that everyone is not a consequentialist, I think that's just an overly optimistic view of the intellectual territory here. I think, you know, the reasons to worry about consequentialism are just very, very strong reasons. And in almost any way I can see of rerunning philosophy, there's going to be a very big body of people who, who reject it, and, which is not to say that one view isn't right, but just to say the reasons, the reasons run deep. Yeah, which which raises this question. Um, yeah, another reason for disagreement is just that like people, it's so easy to deny the premises of arguments that people make, or even sometimes to deny, deny the inferences, even when they seem like uh, pr- pr- pretty strong. Why is it that it's like seems easier just to deny the strength of arguments in philosophy than in other fields? I guess with with, with experimental fields, it seems like it's more obvious why it's a bit different. But it seems like it's completely different from mathematics as well, which is also like dealing in the in the realm purely of ideas. Yeah, in math, like arguments. There's usually much more agreement on whether they go through or don't. But in philosophy, people just completely regularly deny arguments that other people find incredibly compelling. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, it basically comes down to having these certain standard methods, both in, in mathematics and in the sciences. The method of proof in mathematics gives people a consensus framework. You've got a consensus on when, on what counts as a good proof and a consensus on when something is, uh, is proved. And likewise, in, uh, in the sciences, you've got the experimental method with a reasonable consensus on what the method is and what counts as establishing result. Of course, it's, you know, in the sciences, it's a lot more blurry and there is room for a lot of disagreement in specific cases. But we've basically got agreement on uh, a broad method, which can, you know, basically serve to at least tentatively establish results in science and to definitively establish them in mathematics. I just don't think there's any analog to that in philosophy. In philosophy, we do have this method of argument, but the argument all have to start from certain premises. And those premises are all uh, questionable. I mean, you might say, well, in principle, someone could question the premises of a mathematical argument by, say, questioning an axiom and so on. But, you know, they do do that, just not very often. Well, although you, then you end up with a different branch of mathematics or something. Yeah. People are discussing a different set of objects. Yeah. And mathematicians are happy to back up and say, OK, well, if you insist on doing that, for our purposes, mathematics is just if then, 
what follows from these uh, from these axioms. They might follow the question of logic, but that looks even more looks even more eccentric. So just as a matter of fact, there are certain starting points that com- seem to compel sufficient agreement that they can serve as the foundation, say, for a field like mathematics and for science. And there are some that don't. There are some that there are areas where there are starting points that seem plausible to to some people, but not to other people. And then you can still do this field of if then philosophy, which is why I think it is actually important in philosophy. Instead of if we're speaking about pathologies in philosophy, one pathology is we spend endless time debating those foundational assumptions that we uh, that we disagree about, and less time exploring the consequences. Which is one reason why I think it's actually very good to have subcultures, like say, uh, yeah, maybe the Effective altruism is an, is an instance of this uh, subculture or uh, people that interested in AI safety or something where they where they people make certain assumptions uh, which might not be shared by philosophy as a field, but nonetheless go ahead and see what follows. I mean, there's still going to be the question of bringing it back to the field, and I think in, in many of these cases, you know, you might find disagreement about various foundational assumptions among the field as a whole. But but the if then project is important too, and that is, I think, as a matter of fact, how many fields end up getting spun off out of philosophy by you know, subcultures pursuing their programs. So if I was to see any, you know, thinking about like reforms to philosophy, I'd like to see a bit more reward for people making certain assumptions and seeing where they go with them. Whereas right now, that work can be be rewarded, but I think it often looks a little bit eccentric to philosophers, especially who don't share those assumptions at a field. Maybe there's more reward for debating the foundational. Maybe because people have more strong views on them or something, the foundation. Or it feels more fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. I guess another reform that people sometimes suggest is that philosophers should spend more time hanging out with natural scientists. And I guess also that, you know, maybe vice versa, physicists would do well to hang out with philosophers. I guess as, as someone who's actually done that, I guess, hanging out with neuroscientists and people thinking about like how the mind works, do you think that, that that actually would help or is that just kind of a bit of a platitude? I'm very skeptical that would make much difference for the primary reason it's happened a lot in uh, decades. Very, very strong. And yet not everyone agrees still. Philosophers knowing the science, hanging out with the scientists, and it's led to, I think, a lot of interesting progress in philosophy, becoming richer and better informed. But has it led to much convergence on those deep questions? No, absolutely not. And very frequently, the scientists disagree as much on those big foundational questions as the philosophers do. Either they say, oh, that's a matter for the philosophers, about my pay grade, or they've got very strong opinions, but they go in different in different directions. So physicists disagree about the foundations of quantum mechanics as much as philosophers do. Psychologists and neuroscientists, if you poke them, disagree about as much about the mind-body problem as philosophers do. And so I think it's very good for the field to be empirically informed. And a lot of the time, empirical information is very relevant to these questions, but it typically doesn't lead to convergence. And one reason is that, you know, the philosophical questions by their by their nature have almost become these ones which are not so easy to empirically resolve. But typically you get an empirical premise from the sciences towards one of these philosophical questions, say about the some people say neuroscience, blah, 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 therefore consciousness is physical. But okay, well, it turns out that to make the step from neuroscience, blah, 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 to the philosophical conclusion, you actually need a big, strong philosophical premise to link the two. And that one ends up being just about as strong much of the time as what is needed. But every now and then, there's something coming from the sciences that might refute a previous philosophical view. One case is, or come close to doing that, one of the better cases maybe is, is relativity theory, which many people take to a very strongly undermine the philosophical view known as presentism. All the things which are real, what exist in the present, but relativity theory says there's no facts about absolute simultaneity that could make it the case that there is a distinguished present in the whole universe that makes it much harder to be a uh, to be a presentist. I mean, there are ways for the presentist to survive. So there are cases where this happens. Maybe Gödel's theorem helped to undermine a certain view known as formalism about mathematics, where to be true is to be provable. 
Godel seemed to make a pretty good case that is unprovable true. So every now and then it happens that science can lead to definitive progress on a philosophical question. So I mean, I think, but I think we find just a lot of the time that science will enrich the discussion of a philosophical question without really decisively settling it one way or another. We actually want to talk about the idea that we might be living in a simulation and what, if anything, that might imply. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think that this is like not a very serious topic or like very silly, or at least that not very much that's useful can be said about it. Why do you think it's nonetheless worth talking about? I think it's worth talking about in a number of ways. I mean, I got into this through thinking about some big traditional philosophical questions, like how do we know about the external world? Is it possible that we could be in you know, what Descartes called the evil demon scenario, where people or a demon is trying to fool you into thinking that an external world exists when none of it is real? You know, The modern version of that is the simulation hypothesis. How do you know that you're not in a simulation? And many people use that to you know, cast doubt on the kind of knowledge we have in the external world um, of the external world. Now, it's very central to traditional ways of thinking about these scenarios that somehow, if we're in a simulation, nothing is real. If we're in, say, uh, the world is a giant simulation, then things like this, uh, this glass and the computer I'm using and the microphone and the world outside my window, none of them are real. It's just fake. It's a, uh, it's a fictional reality. And that gets you to the line where, you know, if we're if we don't know we're in a simulation, we can't know anything at all. I'm actually inclined to think all that is based on a false presupposition. I think that if we're in a simulation, things are still perfectly real. If I'm in a simulation, this glass is real and so on. It's just that if we're in a simulation, we're living in a digital world, a world made of, let's say, bits. So we shouldn't say none of this exists. We should say if we're in a simulation, it has a different nature. And I think that's interesting for a a number of reasons, um, if that's right. First, it suggests that some of those traditional arguments for skepticism about the external world are much too quick. You know, well, even if we can't know we're in a simulation, maybe we can know an awful lot about the external world based on, for example, considerations about its structure. So that's philosophically interesting. Maybe it offers us some insights into the character of reality. I mean, you don't need to believe that we actually are in a simulation to think there's interesting conclusions to be drawn from reasoning about what happens if we're in a simulation. It tells us something about our grasp on reality and therefore the relationship between the mind and the world. But I think it's also interesting for thinking about, I mean, there, is, there are these practically important questions which approach as we begin to spend more and more time in virtual realities and in simulated worlds, which is, you know, are we engaging, say, in a virtual reality? Are we fundamentally just engaging in a fiction? Is this a form of escapism? where none of this is, is genuinely real? Or are we, in fact, living a meaningful, can we live a meaningful, substantive life in a virtual reality and interacting with real objects and real people, which can have the kind of value that a genuine life has? I'm inclined to think that, yes, we can. Thinking very seriously about simulations and virtual reality can, can actually shed some light on those questions about practical technology. So it seems like there's at least two kinds of like situations that we might have in mind when we talk about living in a simulation. One is like this really global skepticism that maybe everything is a simulation and we don't really know it. And then the other is simulations that we build that we might someday enter or like even local simulations that already exist, like video games and stuff. And just to like make clear to the audience why the first thing is even worth talking about, I think 
it's inspired partly, like you said, by these traditional philosophical skeptical hypotheses, like maybe everything is a dream. But also there's this simulation argument by Nick Bostrom, which I know you're familiar with, but just in case for any listeners that aren't, I thought it'd be useful to go through really quickly. So Bostrom's argument is roughly that it's, if it's possible to make simulations and people want to make simulations someday, and both of those things seem like pretty plausible, then we'll make a just enormous number of them. And if that's true, then most beings throughout all of history will be simulated beings. And if that's true, and we have no reason to think that we couldn't be in a simulation, then we are overwhelmingly likely to be simulated beings. So that's just to like show why some people think this is really worth taking seriously as something that might really be the case, even if it's also philosophically interesting to think about, even if we don't think it's the case. So I was just wondering whether you had anything to say on the simulation argument, anything to add, whether you think it's a good argument or any ways that we might get evidence as to whether we in fact are in a simulation or not. What's the probability, Dave? Are we in a simulation know, or yeah. not? I'm, I'm sympathetic with uh, with Bostrom's argument in the sense that I think it's at least worth taking seriously. If I had to bet on the odds of we're in a uh, simulation, I don't know. It's probably some, somewhere between 0. 0.01 and 0. 0.99. Sorry, that's uh, <laughs> not very, uh, not very the specific. Same way. If I really I had to, to go for my gut, maybe 10 to 20%. But uh, Who's to uh, who's to say? Most of my work, I mean, I've thought a lot about the simulation hypothesis, the hypothesis that we're in a simulation and what follows. I haven't done that much on Bostrom's argument that we're in a simulation, but I think it's like, it's clearly an argument worth taking very seriously. And I'm inclined to think that some version of it probably works, at least if you're clear enough about what the assumptions are and about what the possibilities are. I mean, Bostrom makes it an argument. It's not actually an argument that we're in a simulation. It's an argument that we're either we're probably in a simulation or most populations never end up producing simulations for one reason or another, and those reasons are themselves very interesting. I mean, there's presuppositions for the argument that building simulated worlds of a certain kind is possible and that consciousness and simulations are possible. But I'm inclined to think that some version of the argument works. In the book I'm writing, I have a fairly extended analysis of the argument. There's a few points where I differ from um, Bostrom. For example, he makes it turn very heavily on the idea that people are running ancestor simulations simulations which are indistinguishable from our own history. For various reasons, Bostrom's version works best that way, because then it suddenly becomes possible for you that you're in that very simulation that you are constructing. I'm not sure the argument with the version with ancestor simulations works so well, because it's very far from clearly possible to me that people will be capable of constructing perfect ancestor simulations that duplicate our history exactly. Maybe we just don't have the right access to facts about how history to do that. So I would prefer to get to construct a more general version of the argument that turns on the capacity to build simulated worlds in general, rather than simulated worlds that are exactly like ours. I think then to make that run, the reasoning is then going to have to look somewhat different from the way that uh, that uh, Bostrom makes it run in his argument. And there turn out to be some different issues that arise. But I think nonetheless, an argument in the same style can still go through. You know, Bostrom's argument, if it worked with ancestor simulations, would say, there are going to be all these people indistinguishable from me, and most of them are simulated, and therefore I'm probably simulated. Whereas a more general version will just say there are going to be all these people who are kind of like me um, in some general respects, most of whom are simulated, therefore I'm probably simulated. I think it's a different style of argument, you know, but the general framing, and for many purposes, I think the upshot may be similar. In terms of the upshot, so let's say we are living in a simulation. When I say that, I'm making sort of a metaphysical claim, basically. 
some people seem to have the intuition that this is a, a meaningless claim or like, well, I'm living in a simulation doesn't really mean anything because I wouldn't have any, nothing would be different, you know, on the ground level or something like that. Do you have, are you at all sympathetic to that? Do you think that's wrong? Do you think, what do you think about that claim? Yeah, I think the simulation hypothesis is perfectly meaningful hypothesis about the world. There is a long tradition in philosophy of saying claims like this might be meaningless if, for example, they're untestable or unfalsifiable. I mean, to some extent, you might say the simulation hypothesis is potentially testable or, you know, maybe the simulators could reveal evidence that we're in uh, simulation. They could show us the source code for the world. They could move around planets. They could break all kinds of laws of nature. They could offer us a red pill. We get to see the simulation from the outside. So arguably, we could get evidence that we're in a simulation. But then all we need to do then is to move to the, um, okay, now let's move to the perfect simulation hypothesis. The hypothesis that we're in a perfect simulation that completely simulates a world like ours such that we'll never get positive evidence that we're in a simulation. And now the proponent of, say, testability might say that, well, that hypothesis is meaningless. I'm entitled to think even if that hypothesis is untestable and unfalsifiable, it's still perfectly meaningful. And the best way to make that case is to note that we can, in fact, in principle, create beings in simulations. I mean, right now, the simulations that we can create are very, uh, are very simple, but it looks like there's no obvious obstacle in principle to creating whole universe-level simulations, including beings whose conscious experiences are determined by those simulations, and their conscious experiences will be indistinguishable in principle from those of people who are outside the simulation. And once we do that, then that being will be in precisely the situation we talked about. Their universe will be a simulated universe, even though they're not, they will not be in a position to test this for sure. Now, there may then be such simulated beings who are going, um, ah, the simulation hypothesis is meaningless. There's, there's no way to test it. But we'll be here looking down at them saying, ah, but you are in a simulation. And there's other people who are saying, hey, maybe we're in a simulation. They are, in fact, correct. And the people who are saying, no, you are not in a simulation, they are incorrect. So taking that sort of God's eye perspective on the situation, I think we can tell that it's a meaningful hypothesis. The people who say, in that case, we're in a simulation are correct. Other people are incorrect. And then now all we need to do now is undergo a perspective shift and say, well, maybe that situation could, could be our situation. And then I think it's very hard to resist the thesis that it's at least a meaningful hypothesis. Maybe it's not a scientific hypothesis at that point, because you think science requires testability or falsifiability. But I think, you know, there are a lot of meaningful hypotheses that are not scientific hypotheses about the nature of our world. If you want to call it a philosophical hypothesis, then fine. There is, of course, then the added wrinkle that for many versions of the simulation hypothesis, it could actually be uh, something we could get some evidence for. Actually, it's very hard to see how you get definitive evidence against the simulation hypothesis. So, yeah, there is this question as to whether any version of it is truly, whether the general version of the simulation hypothesis is truly falsifiable it's easier to see how you get evidence for it than against it. And the general worry here is that any evidence you might get that we're not in a simulation looks like any such evidence could be simulated by good enough simulators. So it's hard to see how any evidence could constitute definitive evidence that we're not in a simulation. So you might say that's grist to the mill, that this is not a fully scientific hypothesis because it's not falsifiable. But I think, nonetheless, it's very clearly meaningful for the reasons I was saying. There's, we, can, we, have, we can have meaningful hypotheses that go beyond what's scientifically testable. Yeah. So I guess one way that the simulation hypothesis could be meaningful is if everything was 
if it meant that everything was fake or like if it meant that, oh, we don't live in a real world. But you think that's not true. You think if we live in a simulation, it's not the case that everything is fake. Do you think, though, that we could conclude anything else from the fact that we live in a simulation, anything else that's philosophical or practical or quasi-religious, as I know sort of comes up in various places? Yeah, this is sort of what I've been most interested in and thinking about the simulation hypothesis. Not so much the question of whether we are in a simulation, but what follows if we're in a simulation. And my general attitude is, you know, the traditional attitude was if we're in a simulation, nothing is real. Everything is fake. Most of our experience is an illusion. And I've tried to argue in response to that, no, that's wrong. If I'm in a simulation, all the objects around me are still real and they still exist. But I mean, one interesting thing I think would follow is a conclusion about the, the metaphysics of our world. I've tried to make the case that the simulation hypothesis should best be seen as a hypothesis about what things in our world are, are made of at a relatively fundamental level. And I've suggested there's, in, there's an interesting connection here to what people call the, uh, the it from bit hypothesis. In, in physics and in foundations of physics, the idea that everything is made of information at an underlying level. So I think if we're in a simulation, we should say, you know, there really are objects like chairs and tables. They're made of molecules, which are made of atoms, which are made of quarks, which are at some level made of bits. There's a level of bits, an algorithmic level underlying the familiar levels of physics. This is a version of what sometimes gets called the it from bit hypothesis. So it's not that the chair isn't real. It's just that the chair is made at some level of information or of bits. It may turn out that at the next level up in the next universe, those bits are realized by something else. So then you get something like the it from bit from it hypothesis, and maybe the levels chain further still. But uh, so I think you get an interesting metaphysics of information out of the simulation hypothesis. With respect to religion, yeah, I mean, this is another interesting consequence. If we live in a simulation, then it seems, well, under some ways of understanding by the very definition of a simulation. If we're in a simulation, there's a simulator. There's someone who set up the simulation. And that being can be viewed as a creator of our universe, responsible for making this universe come into existence. So that's at least a creator of our simulator. And that's furthermore, this creator may have properties like being all powerful in many cases with respect to our simulation, all knowing with respect to our simulation. So you're getting a few of the, uh, of the properties of a, uh, of a traditional god. You point out at some point that if the simulator was really all-knowing, then like if they were able to predict what was going to happen because they knew the future, then it'd be like, why would they make that simulation? Like maybe yeah, simulations are... Total omniscience would kind of undermine the, uh, the point of it, except maybe as entertainment. We do watch TV shows twice. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but um, yeah, so maybe probably works better when our God is just, you know, very, knows a lot. You know, many simulations, but not, the simulator is not necessarily all powerful with respect to either, but they, they, they know a lot. They're very powerful. They're probably not going to be all good. There's no particular reason to think that simulators are going to be, uh, are going to be all good. And they're also not going to be the creator of the whole universe. They're not going to be a cosmic God. They'll merely be a local God. So I'd say they get a, you know, they're halfway to being godlike on various dimensions, which is interesting. So I've actually in the book, I try to make the case we should regard the simulation hypothesis as equivalent to what I call the it from bit creation hypothesis. The idea that our universe was created by somehow arranging, arranging bits the right way. God started the universe by saying, you know, let there be bits, <laughs> let there be bits. So arranged. Should one erect a religion on this? Um, no, I don't think so. Because yeah, I don't think anything about this indicates that this creator is in any way worthy of worship or awe. 
could just be a you know another hacker in the next in the next universe up. But it has had the effect of making me at least a little bit more sympathetic to the possibility, say, that our universe might have been created, a possibility I was not terribly sympathetic with before. Maybe if they're not worthy of worship, they're at least worthy of uh, groveling and asking for favors and things like that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. You want to at least get them to treat you well. Exactly. Yeah. Get on the good side. I guess one implication that some people have suggested, if you uh, really bought into the idea that we're in a simulation, is that it could like change our expectations about what kinds of things we're going to observe, because you can at least like have some probabilistic reasoning about like why they would be simulating things and like what sorts of things they would be wanting to simulate. In particular, you might think they're more likely to simulate kind of interesting times in history, just as kind of we have a lot of kind of crime procedural stories, but like not a lot of like hour long TV shows where people just like sit at their desk doing work and like not doing anything interesting. So they're, like, they're interested in like simulating times where they're perhaps particularly unpredictable or have like important consequences in the long term, either for entertainment or kind of research purposes. So if we thought we were probably in a simulation, maybe we should expect to see like really big events in our lifetime with like a greater probability than, than, than we did before. Did you buy that? Yeah, I mean, all this requires a whole lot of speculation about the motives of simulators in building simulations, which I think is probably extremely difficult for us to do. So I don't put too much credence in speculation of, of that kind. But I guess Certainly entertainment is one possible reason for building a simulation, but you might think that that's only going to require a relatively limited number of simulations. After all, you know, maybe people tend to, you know, read one book or watch one movie at a time. Now our super intelligent successors, maybe they want to watch all the possible movies simultaneously. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, I guess I'd be inclined to think at least modeling the simulators on us is quite likely that the great majority of simulations could be something like simulations for scientific or research purposes. Why? Because when you do things for scientific or research purposes, you don't just make one at a time, you know, then you've got to, then you've got to worry about the replicability crisis. We've got to make N as, N as high as possible. So, um, you know, I think people are going to be running for research purposes. They'll be running a million universe simulations overnight and seeing what happens. And statistically, it's maybe it's going to be overwhelmingly likely we're in one of those simulations where actually nobody's paying any attention to the simulation much while it's going on. They're just coming back and gathering statistics in the morning. For that purpose, it may not be particularly important that it be an entertaining or interesting simulation. Maybe it'll be, it'll turn out they want to have some, some uh, you know, people want to do historical simulations too. What happens if we rerun the, you know, the election of 2016 uh, a million times over and see what happens? And maybe people will sometimes tweak the parameters just to, you know, let's just run with an outrageous counterfactual event. Like, let's suppose, uh, you know, Trump won the election and, <laughs> and see what happens for there. So maybe like maybe there could be some statistical bias in favor of occasional outrageous things happening for uh, for historical purposes. Yeah, I don't. I mean, you could think that like, what's the most educational thing? It's normalcy, right? Like, so so, so maybe they want representativeness. Yeah, like representativeness. Yeah. So like, you might think that then it will be likely that normal things will happen because that really tells them what life is like. But it, I guess like in as much as there's like not a lot of, uh, what's, what's what's the term for this? When we were all, when we were hunter gatherers or something and we we're all just like hunting bison and eating them and so on. And there's just, there's not a lot of different ways that it can play out. And so it's like, mm -hmm. you run a hundred of them and you're like, wow, this is just, this is the same every time. So it's like doing things where it's like, there's not a lot of randomness in, in the outcome or like you can't get important, like yeah, flying off in different directions in, in history, then that seems like a smaller sample might do. Maybe they'll want to run some mild counterfactuals through They'll simulate, you know, worlds roughly as it is. And if you're doing historical simulations, you might want to, I think historians are very interested in counterfactuals, but often in, uh, you know, relatively mild counterfactuals. Well, what would have happened if Hitler had not tried to invade the Soviet Union and so on? Then, uh, What's a more dramatic counterfactual? 
But more dramatic is uh, what if some um, total weirdo could win the presidential election? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe that's maybe. I thought we were thinking about like laws of nature or something. Yeah, well, running counterfactual laws of nature is very uh, is a very natural thing to want to do. You know, for physicists, will be running simulations all the time of different laws of nature. Set up these laws of nature. See, okay, what happens? Do you get a does the Big Bang lead to a uh, to a big crunch? Biologists will be running. How many times does uh, does life develop? If you tweak the parameters. How do you get to life? How do you get to intelligence? It's very easy to see scientists running all kinds of variations on laws of nature just for research purposes. Another implication that some people have drawn, which I guess has, is potentially more decision relevant, is that we might expect that the universe is going to last less long. So it's like if, if we're currently like in the fundamental like real world and not in a simulation, then there's like every reason to think that the universe is going to continue to play out for billions and billions and tr trillions of years uh, in, in the future. So we have a lot of time to play with. But if you think that you're in some kind of research simulation, it seems like there's some decent chance that it will be shut down, uh, you know, before we reach like a billion years into the future, which might give someone like a bit more reason for urgency. Uh, you might even think, well, you know, possibly it'll be shut down in a hundred years because they'll just have like, they'll have figured out the thing that they wanted to learn about the 21st century and and so it will be done. And this gives people a reason to like, yeah, try to do more to improve the world, uh, you know, right now, rather than to, to think about these very long timescales. Do you think that's kind of a, a sound inference to draw? I mean, again, it, it, it all turns on this massive speculation about the motives of simulators and I mean, yeah, it could be so many shutdown conditions. There is, of course, the one shutdown condition, which is, ah, shut things down when they figure out they might be in a simulation. So, right. <laughs> so yeah, by this way of thinking about, okay, stop talking about this now. But uh, I don't know. I think there are so many possible termination conditions that I'm not sure I'd get particularly worried about it happening in the next hundred years. There is the doomsday style argument that in general, whether we're in a simulation or not, we should, we should think that we're a very typical being. So possibly the, uh, the universe will end soon. That would also apply if we're in a simulation. How likely is it that we'd, that we'd be like this so early in the simulation if it goes on forever and ever and ever? And you might want to update on that to, to, towards the world ending soon. But I think that applies equally whether you're, in a, whether you're in a simulation or not. Yeah, the doomsday hypothesis is a huge can of worms. So I'll link off to a paper for, for listeners who want to learn more about that one. I'm not endorsing it. Let's turn now to the thing that you're most famous for talking about, the nature of consciousness. So we'd like to focus on the implications for practical ethics of mm -hmm. ideas in philosophy of mind and uncertainties surrounding these ideas. But first, we want to make sure that we and all of our listeners are on the same page about what we're discussing and what when we talk about consciousness, because the word can like mean a lot of different things to different people. So when you talk about consciousness, what are you talking about? And how is it related to intelligence and self-consciousness? And how is it not related? Yeah, so I mean, people people mean a lot of things by consciousness, but what I mean is roughly the subjective experience of the mind and the world, R roughly how it is from the first person point of view to think, to feel, and so on. My colleague Tom Nagel wrote this wonderful paper called "What Is It Like to Be a Bat?" I said we don't know what it's like to be a bat. Probably there is something it's like to be a bat, but anyway, whatever it's like to be a bat, that's the bat's consciousness. It's how things are or how things feel from the first person perspective of the bat. So, you know, you look at a, uh, a brain and you see it processes information in various ways. It responds to stimuli, processes information, leads to a behavioral response. That's all. That's how a brain looks objectively. But there's also how it is subjectively. I'm seeing you and having a visual experience of certain images in my mind. I've got certain sounds. Um, I might be experiencing thoughts. So consciousness is like, is basically this stream of first-person experience. Philosophers, to distinguish this from other kinds of consciousness, philosophers use the word phenomenal consciousness often to distinguish this from, say, access consciousness, which is a matter of objectively having access to some information. 
Self-consciousness, which you mentioned, is about being conscious of yourself. I think that is one aspect of phenomenal consciousness broadly. We have this sense of being conscious of ourselves, but that's just one very specific aspect of consciousness. We're conscious of things in the world. When I look at a, I look at an object and I see a red square, that's just vision, it's perception. I'm conscious of the object, but that has a subjective experiential quality to me. So consciousness is much more than just consciousness of the self. You asked about intelligence. Well, I think about intelligence as a, roughly speaking, a measure of behavior, of functional capacity, your ability to, to do certain things, to solve certain problems, to achieve your ends by taking appropriate means and so on. And I mean, intelligence itself is complicated, but I think of that as very much on the objective and behavioral side, whereas consciousness is very much on the subjective side. So maybe you could have a system which is really quite intelligent, but no, has no subjective experience at all. And likewise, there may be systems with, you know, with subjective experience that are not terribly intelligent because, you know, one is basically one is subjective, the other is objective. And uh, same, so same thing for self-consciousness in your view, like you could have something that was phenomenally conscious that wasn't self-conscious or some, oh, maybe something that was self-conscious, but not phenomenally conscious. Maybe we wouldn't use that term in that case, but has a model of itself, yeah. but isn't like phenom- self-consciousness itself kind of decomposes into a, there's phenomenal self-consciousness, yeah. which is being phenomenally conscious of yourself, having kind of an experience of yourself. And that can happen. That's an aspect of one aspect of phenomenal consciousness. But then you can have a system which is conscious of itself in a non-experiential sense, maybe which has access to information about itself and can report information about itself. You have AI systems that can monitor their own states and talk about them. You might think of that as a form of self-consciousness, but it's not phenomenal self-consciousness. That, so that would be on the objective on the objective side of self-consciousness. So one could have that kind of self-consciousness in principle without being phenomenally conscious. And likewise, I think you could be, probably you could be phenomenally conscious without having any, actually it's arguable whether you could be phenomenally conscious without having any kind of self-consciousness, but certainly there are at least states of phenomenal consciousness that don't seem to have terribly much to do with being conscious of oneself, like when you're conscious of the people around you and of the world and of a problem you're thinking about. So you're famous for kind of drawing attention to this, like what you call the hard problem of consciousness, which is this question of like, why does it feel like anything to be a person or why, how, why does it feel like anything to be anything? It does seem like we could just be like going around like, uh, you know, robots doing the, doing or taking all of the actions that we're taking, but have no first person perspective. Like it would feel like nothing to, you know, eat, eat an apple. But I, I guess there's, there's a lot of people who kind of want to deny that there is a hard problem here, that there is anything to explain or that there is anything mysterious about there being a first person uh, perspective. I'm sure there's many of them among listeners potentially. It seems like, yeah, there's a bit of a stream of this among like among rationalists. And I find often natural scientists I just can't get them to like accept that there's like anything strange about consciousness existing. Have you found any way of like getting through to people who are, who are inclined to deny that there's anything interesting going on here? That's interesting. I think, you know, I think we, we, we need some sociological data here. My experience is that most people can at least get a sense of the problem. So um, when I've taken surveys on this in various contexts, not terribly rigorously for the most part, but it frequently, you know, typically seems to come out that a majority of people See, there's a hard problem of, of consciousness, although not a, uh, certainly it's not universal. So if your experience is that, that most people, that it's kind of a, a dominant reaction to deny it, I'd be, I'd be surprised, but okay, we need surveys on that. I wouldn't say it's a majority of people, but it does just seem that there's like this particular, I guess, like, it seems like there's like something about the ideology of like natural sciences, which like wants to deny that there's something going on here. And I'm not, it seems like almost this kind of thing that you need like a PhD in a particular field to like believe something so crazy as to think that there's like nothing strange about us. Feeling yeah, like maybe. Although I also think there are these sociological effects where most people think that we got this on the 
pill paper survey that most people think that most people think a certain thing, even though most people think the opposite. <laughs> so maybe be part of the ideology of science that there's no hard problem. So, so most people think that most people deny it. Well, in fact, most people accept it, that there is. So my sense, I may be wrong because I'm biased and I'm biased in my exposure, is that even among your average, say, neuroscientist or AI researcher, they can pretty, they can pretty much appreciate the problem. Now, certainly there's a substantial minority who reject the problem. Even among those who reject the problem, I think an awful, let's say probably about at least half of those think, okay, well, intuitively there's a problem, but we should reject the intuition. So I would say that is at least being on board with the problem. Maybe I should actually say something about the problem, which is basically, it looks like, you know, the question is how do you get from physical processing in the brain and its environment to phenomenal consciousness? Why is it that there actually should be first-person experience at all? It looks at looking at the brain from the objective point of view. You can see, okay, you can see why there would be this processing, these responses, these high-level capacities, but on the face of it, it looks like all that could go on in the dark in a robot, let's say, without any first-person experience of it. So the hard problem is just to explain why all that physical processing should give you subjective experience. And I contrast these with the easy problems, which are roughly the problems of explaining behavioral capacities and associated functions like language and learning and response and integrated information and verbal reports. And, you know, we may not be able to explain how it is that humans do those things, but We've got a straightforward paradigm for doing it. Find a neural mechanism or a computational mechanism and you know, show how that can perform this function of producing the report or doing the integration. Find the right mechanism, perform the function, you've explained the phenomenon. Whereas for pheno that works so well throughout the sciences, doesn't seem to work for phenomenal consciousness. Explain how it is the system performs all those functions, does things, learns, reports, integrates, and so on. You know, it seems prima facie like all that could go on in the absence of consciousness. So why is that accompanied by consciousness? That's the hard problem. Now, people who reject this, it's, I mean, I think there's different things going on with different people. One certainly legitimate move is to say, I, I at least accept there's an intuitive gap here, but somehow we should reject the intuitions. And this can then be spelled out in various ways. I think the most interesting of which is that this whole idea of consciousness is an illusion, pathology built up by our cognitive systems to believe we have these special properties of consciousness introspectively, even though we don't. That's a move I respect. I think it's got very strong costs. You might have to deny that we have these experiences that seem basically undeniable that we have, but it's at least an interesting uh, interesting move. If someone comes and says something more basic, I just don't have the intuitions, I'm not even sure I have the phenomenon that you're talking about, then I don't know. I haven't got that reaction terribly often. Uh, there are people who claim to be zombies. Uh, I just don't find this. I think that's a fairly unusual reaction. I don't know. You know, you, you said you've talked about this with people in the, uh, say, in the rationalist community. Which of those reactions do you think is most common? I mean, I think I've maybe like slightly misrepresented the view. I, I guess it's like there's some people who are like drawn to this kind of yeah, materialist reductionist view or, the, or, or illusionism and seem like they view it as much more intuitive to say that there's like nothing odd about the fact that we feel that there's something there. Whereas to me, that just seems like that's a huge cost to pay to say, well, actually, it's all just an illusion that what, what you think is your like phenomenal experience. I think it's certainly reasonable. It's certainly the case and entirely reasonable to be drawn towards a materialist and reductionist point of view and to think all oh, this has to be reductively explainable one way or another. So it's all going to be physical in the end. I mean, maybe I disagree with that in the end, but I think that's an entirely reasonable point of view. So to want it all to be reducible, but that's, got, that's at least consistent with saying there's a, uh, there's a problem here that we have to solve. And I think so maybe the dominant view that I've come across is, say, among your average scientists is to think, yes, we want to be materialistic. Yes, there's got to be a 
materialist explanation at the end of the day, but we don't have it yet. Uh, hopefully someone will figure it out one of these days. And that's an entirely reasonable point of view. Another point of view is to say, well, yes, I see the intuitions, but I think we ought to dismiss them as illusions. And I think, okay, that's also a respectable point of view, but then you, have, you do have to bite a very strong bullet by saying, you know, you're not actually having these experiences that you seem to be having. The point of view that says, I just don't find the phenomenon in the first place, like, well, that's very rare and unusual. So I guess what's left would be a kind of opponent who says, yes, I find subjective experiences, but I don't see any issue about explaining them because, well, what do people say at this point? You could say, well, all you need to do to explain them is to explain responses, like say, uh, verbal reports, certain behaviors, integration, perceptual discrimination, and so on. I guess if someone says, okay, I've explained perceptual discrimination, integration report, then I say, well, why does that feel like something? What does that person say now? They either say, well, that was all I meant by feeling like something, discrimination, integration, report. And I say, oh, well, you just, I don't know, I'm not sure you have the phenomenon then, because there are all these things that need explaining. There's discrimination, integration, report, and experience. And that's just a, it's just a datum that we have the experience too. You could want to deny the intuition that leads you to illusionism. So anyway, I think you really need to explore why it is that people reject the problem. But I actually find that with a bit of work, it's not too easy to bring most people on board with at least the sense of a problem. And to at least what I would like to be able to do is to push people into the idea that if you want to reject the hard problem of consciousness, you ought to be some kind of illusionist who says, okay, yes, we have these intuitions, but no, they're not to be trusted. And maybe the brain is making us believe things about ourselves are not true. That's a view I that's a view that I can engage with. So this is an anecdote and I don't know how representative it is, but or like whether it relates really to what's going on with other people who deny that there's a hard problem. But I remember that it took me a really long time when I was an undergraduate in philosophy to like just like latch on to the thing that was being referred to by conscious experience. And I remember like staring at these blue curtains when I was like 20 or something and be like, oh, we're talking about the blueness. Of <laughs> and so I feel like that's why philosophers like make up these words, like what it's likeness and a qualia in order to try to like point at the thing that we're talking about. Because it's, it's weirdly, it was hard for me at least to figure out what it is that people were puzzled about. And that might be what's going on with some of the people who deny that there's a problem. They're like, yeah. oh, and I've, I know what experience is, but they're not really thinking about experience the way you are. Yeah, that's interesting. And I actually find that in explaining the problem, one of the best tools is uh, Frank Jackson's thought experiment of Mary in the black and white room, which he used to actually give an argument against materialism about consciousness, but which I think you can just use while staying neutral on that just to introduce the phenomenon. So yeah, Mary is a neuroscientist, maybe sometime in the future when we know all about the brain, who knows all about the physical processes associated with color processing in the brain and so on. But she's lived her whole life in a black and white room, or maybe she's colorblind and something. So she's never had the experience of seeing red things or experiencing red for herself. And the intuition is, okay, what does Mary know? She knows all about the physical processes, the wavelengths, the brain processes, the behavior associated with color processing. She knows all the objective stuff, but there's something really crucial she doesn't know. And that's what is it like to actually experience red from the inside? Now, Jackson uses this to go on and argue that that shows that experiencing red can't be a physical process. We could argue about that. But I think at the very least, let's just look at what is the thing about color that Mary doesn't seem to know about? The first person experience, what it's like to experience redness from the first person point of view. That's what I mean by the conscious experience. And I think introducing the topic that way does actually help to get people to focus on what's at issue here. 
I think that we may have talked about that in the very classroom where I had this experience. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> it's a great music video, by the way, called What Mary Didn't Know by Dorian Electra and the Electrodes that, that uh, your listeners should seek out. So... There's a lot of different views about the nature of consciousness uh, and, you know, ways of answering the mind-body problem. Are there any that you're particularly sympathetic to? So things that have come up have been materialism. There's also functionalism, various forms of idealism, just saying like it's all consciousness all the way down. There's various types of dualism. You, you talked about illusionism, panpsychism, which is getting more popular, it seems like these days. Do you want to just explain a few that you think are particularly interesting or worth talking about? Sure. Yeah. In my, in my work, I've mostly, I mean, in thinking about the hard problem, I've tended to focus on non-reductionist approaches. I've argued that consciousness can't, in fact, be approached, can't be fully explained using the standard resources of reductionist, say, neuroscience and psychology, because basically... Explanations in terms of physical processes or computational processes, are, they're always cast in terms of sort of causal structure and dynamics. And they're great for explaining objective matters of causal structure and dynamics, but that's basically the easy problems when it comes to consciousness. Those methods don't fully get a grip on the hard problem. So I've argued you need something new in the story. And the kind of view I'm, I've been drawn towards is views that take consciousness as something sort of fundamental and irreducible in our picture of the natural world. In the same way that we take space and time and mass and charge as fundamental, we're used to the idea that some things are fundamental. If you can't explain electromagnetic phenomena in terms of your old laws, your old properties and laws, space, time, mass, Newtonian dynamics, oh, you bring in something else, electric charge, Maxwell's laws. Likewise, I think, for consciousness. So I've been drawn towards views that take consciousness as, uh, as fundamental. And what that comes to in practice in philosophy is either You've got the choice between either a dualist view where you've got you've got the physical world, which is one thing, and then you've got, say, the mind, you've got consciousness, which is another thing. They're both fundamental properties distinct from each other. And then there are laws that connect them. That's one view. And the other view is panpsychism, which says consciousness is somehow present at the very basis of the physical world. And maybe the physics that we know and love is basically somehow fundamentally involves consciousness. Somehow, you know, physics is describing consciousness structurally, but the panpsychist says that consciousness itself may underlie physics, some element of consciousness at every uh, physical system. So in recent years, I've explored, I've been interested in both panpsychism and dualism. They both have their attractions and they both have their big problems. The biggest problem for dualism is the interaction problem. How do mind and body interact? And in particular, how could this non-physical consciousness play any role in the physical world? I mean, you could say that it doesn't, that's what philosophers call epiphenomenalism. That leads to weird things like my consciousness is playing no role in my talking about consciousness right now. That seems bizarre. There are, or you can go for an interactionist view where consciousness affects the physical world. And then the question is, how can you reconcile that with physics? The one place where you might want to look, which looks at least consistent with known physics, is quantum mechanics and the collapse of the wave function. So lately, actually, with a co-author, Kelvin McQueen, who used to be a student of mine at the ANU and is now at Chapman University in California, we've been exploring views where consciousness actually plays a role in collapsing the quantum wave function, which is an old idea. Idea goes back to Wigner and further, but no, interestingly, no one has really tried to work out formally the details and the dynamics. We've just been trying to see if we can make that work. And that's, so that's been one aspect of my work on this, on the dualist side. 
you want to jump in, Rob? I was going to jump in and say, so obviously I don't understand quantum physics well enough to like comment on tech. Like you don't understand quantum physics, Rob? No, yeah. That's so embarrassing for you. <laughs> but I guess I have this concern that with, yeah, trying to tie together consciousness and quantum physics, they're going like, well, consciousness, that's mysterious and I don't understand it. And then like quantum physics, that's mysterious and we don't understand it. So maybe these two weird things are like actually just one weird thing. I mean, maybe there's like some force to that argument, but do you worry that there's a bit of that going on? I think I may have introduced this actually years ago. I called it the law of minimization of mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> making sense of, uh, I was making fun of some people who wanted to tie consciousness and quantum mechanics. But um, I do think there are interesting potential links between the two. I mean, the problem in quantum mechanics is not just that it's mysterious, it's a very specific problem. How do the, the standard dynamics of quantum mechanics has these two processes, Schrodinger evolution and wave function collapse? On certain, at certain times, mostly the wave function evolves this way, except on certain times when you make a measurement, the wave function changes in this special way. And that's totally standard quantum mechanics. Then it raises all these questions. What on earth is a measurement? What is an observation? And you know, some people think that alone forces you to bring in consciousness, because what could a measurement be but a conscious observation? So you've got a role for consciousness right there. No, I think that's too strong. There are ways that you could understand quantum mechanics. Maybe you could understand observation and measurement in ways independent of consciousness. There are alternative ways of understanding quantum mechanics, many worlds, hidden variables, that don't postulate a collapse process. Nonetheless, I would say more weakly that it's extremely natural to at least explore a role for consciousness here because there is this mysterious process, prima facie, there is this mysterious process collapse, which happens precisely on measurement, which then raises the question, what on earth makes measurement different from anything else in the world? If you also think on independent grounds, we have reasons to believe that consciousness is especially distinct from things elsewhere in the world and is a, is a fundamental entity, it's then extremely natural to at least explore the idea that consciousness is what's doing this. So let's just say that quantum mechanics doesn't force you to give a role for consciousness, but it leaves a giant door open that, that's worth exploring. And you know, if God had, once, once I said that you know, if God had wanted the desired design laws of nature that gave a role for, uh, for consciousness, couldn't have done a much better job than the kind of setup we find in quantum mechanics. That said, it turns out that once you try and spell out the details, it gets very tricky. And that's what I found <laughs> in the work with Calvin McQueen. We came up against a big problem that I don't think anyone else had noticed before involving the quantum Zeno effect for one way of spelling this out. And, you know, it turns out that the framework we've got gotten to is inelegant in certain ways. So, you know, I think the results of this have actually been mixed. I don't want to say that there's a clear, very natural picture, dualist picture here where consciousness plays all the roles we wanted to play. It's, I think, you know, the jury is, the jury is still out and actually going through the process has made me a bit less confident in the view than I was before. But I find this in general, by the way, about any view of consciousness. That is, the more I think about a specific view, the less confident I become in that view, because they all have such serious problems. So then um, the view I'm most likely to accept is the one I've not been thinking about. So that's the dualist half. The other kind of view I take seriously is the panpsychist half, where, uh, where consciousness underlies all matter somehow. And basically, you know, there's this familiar point that physics just describes the structure of matter doesn't really, you know, it's mathematical structure, it doesn't really describe what it's made of or its intrinsic nature. So this is another place where you might want to appeal to consciousness and say maybe physics or matter is somehow intrinsically involves consciousness whose structure is being characterized by the physics. But every time there's an interaction, say, between two particles, it's actually some bit of consciousness doing the work. It's a way out speculative worldview that, you know, sounds like the kind of thing that people are going to be into after taking some psychedelics and so on. But it does have some, it does also have some very attractive features. It's also got a big cost, which is how do you get from consciousness at the fundamental level to the consciousness that we have? That's the combination problem. 
for panpsychism that was introduced by William James. In recent years, there's been this huge resurgence of work on panpsychism, as Arden mentioned. A lot of young people these days have been pursuing panpsychist ideas. And the big challenge is the combination problem. If you can make panpsychism solve the combination problem, it, it becomes the lead contender. I think it's fair to say no one has solved that one yet. So I guess I'd say for both panpsychism and for dualism, big attractions, but big problems. The other view I've, I've been taking very seriously lately is on the other extreme, which is this view, illusionism, that consciousness involves some very deep-seated illusion that might be uh, sort of brought on to our brains, make us believe we have these special properties of consciousness, even if we don't. And I think it's not too hard to motivate the idea that there could be such illusions in a cognitive system. If you wanted to design an AI which knew things about itself, it'd be very natural to give it introspective access to its own states. It'd be very natural for this to work in a way that made it believe, oh my God, my states feel so special from the inside, even if they don't. Why would that be natural? I guess there's a there's a few different reasons. One is, um, you know, just say you've got a system which can make, say, perceptual distinctions from the inside, say, between seeing red and seeing green. Well, you could give it knowledge of the underlying physical structure of its sensors and say, oh, well, okay, my camera is receiving blah, 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 pixel and blah, 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 pixel. But all this is going to require a highly theoretical knowledge of itself. So it's kind of natural to see. It might just kind of make these brute distinctions and say that's like red there and that's just green there. And how do you know there's red there or green there? Well, if it had full model of itself, it might say, oh, because process, blah, blah, blah. But it might be very natural just to give a kind of direct access to this without knowledge of the underlying mechanism to say, well, I don't know, that one's just red. It just seems red and that one's just green. And and what is greenness? It's like greenness is just greenness. And it's like you can't you can't push back behind that layer. Yeah. So in this view, it's like sort of a shortcut and like the feeling that it, there's something it's like is somehow comes from the fact that it's like simplified. Yeah, well, at least the judgments that there's some special quality here might somehow come from some architectural features here. The, a nice version of this has been put forward by the philosopher Wolfgang Schwartz, who's tried to combine this with Bayesian epistemology. You know, to be a Bayesian, where you update your credences in light of evidence, you need there to be some layer of evidence that you're completely certain of. You know, that gets assigned probability one, which is roughly, you know, your perceptual observations or your experience, traditionally thought of as something like your experience. Now, with an average AI system, I don't know, there's going to be questions. What, what is going to be that Bayesian level of evidence you update on? It could just be something like inputs to your fundamental camera sensors or something. But, you know, a system might not have that level of detail in a model of itself. So Wolfgang Schwartz has argued that it makes sense from the inside to have this level of what he calls imaginary foundations. I'm just experiencing red, I'm just experiencing green, corresponding to these different sensor variables that the system will treat as if it was a separate realm, even though it's in fact grounded in processes in the uh, brain itself. And he's argued that might, you know, that need for a level of foundations would lead one to postulating the separate realm that would seem to the subject to be not reconcilable with its physical processes. So anyway, I'm fascinated by stories like this. It's tied to what I call the meta problem of consciousness, which is why we believe there's a problem of consciousness. And lately, I've been trying to work through stories like that to see what might work. Then the question is, at the end of the day, just say you do have a story like that. What does that tell us about consciousness? Some people, like, say, Dan Dennett, go on to draw the conclusion that, okay, once you've got an explanation like that, then consciousness has been explained away as an illusion. Most people find illusionism impossible, impossible to believe, or many people do, because it just seems a datum that we're conscious. And all you've done now is Okay, by doing this, you've explained some of the things I say about consciousness. We actually haven't explained why I have the experience. So to really get into that illusionist framework, you have to reject 
the idea there is this datum of consciousness. All we have to do is explain why we think there's this datum, not why, not why there is one. I guess I would say I find this a fascinating view. I don't think it can be right, but I'm nonetheless compelled, compelled by it. So if I'm giving my overall, overall credences, I'm going to give about 10% to illusionism, 30% to panpsychism, 30% to, uh, to dualism, and maybe the other 30% to, I don't know what else could be true, but maybe, but maybe there's something else out there. So I guess I know that among listeners, there's kind of advocates of lots of the different ideas that we've mentioned, like panpsychism, there's probably lots of people who are into illusionism, or like, yeah, materialist reductionism somehow, or there's definitely some some dualists. I guess, could you maybe go through and explain like why each of these people should have been more skeptical of the of the preferred view? Like what's what's the big cost with with each of the dominant ideas? Okay, so the ones I mentioned, I think for, for each of them, I mentioned a cost for panpsychism. One big cost is massively counterintuitive. I'm not sure I feel that one so strongly. The world is a weird place after all. I think the big cost is the combination problem. How do the little bits of consciousness yield our consciousness? That's in a way a bit like the original hard problem for a panpsychist, and it's not clear there's a good solution. For the dualist, the problem is the interaction problem. How does consciousness play a role in the physical world? How do we reconcile that with physics? For the illusionist, the problem is basically how on earth could this be an illusion? If, every, if the world as the illusionist says, then basically I wouldn't be having any of this conscious experience. How on earth could that possibly be like this? Like what it is manifestly like to be a human being? The problem of basically seeming to deny the data. So those are those three views. But then there were, um, you mentioned other views, ones which I'm less sympathetic with, like say uh, materialist views and reductionist views. And here, I guess there's a, there's a, I mean, illusionism is one, materialist view. And you can see panpsychist as a materialist view. But what about boring reductionism without illusionism? So that is trying to say that consciousness is perfectly real, not an illusion, and we can explain it in physical terms. Well, I guess I kind of just want to see that spelled out. Sometimes people just say things like, oh, well, it's an emergent property. Consciousness emerges from the brain, which I think, you know, emergence is just here. It's basically used as kind of a magic word for somehow it happens and we have no idea how. I don't think emergence is much good unless you've got actually an, you've, you've got an explanation. So you need to, how is it that all this processing is easy to see how from the brain level you can get explanations of functions, behaviors, integration, report, discrimination, and so on. The question is why from that consciousness? If you're an illusionist, you say there's nothing else to explain. The sense there's something else to explain, that there's experience, there's experience here is an illusion. If you're not an illusionist, then you either say, well, it just happens, the trouble if you say it just happens, it's like, you might as well be a dualist. There's an explanatory gap there. So I guess the basic problem for any materialist view is the apparent explanatory gap between stuff about structure and dynamics and experience. I mean, there's a few, there's the move that denies there's anything here to explain in the first place, but says that's not illusionism. Someone says, I don't even have the illusion of consciousness. <laughs> so that person, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Maybe in that case, there really are some zombies. I'm suspicious there are many people like that. Just to make clear for our listeners, when you say zombie, mm, yeah. uh, you mean... Can oh, you yeah. Zombies are beings that? who are basically a lot like us, but aren't conscious at all. In the extreme case, the philosopher's zombie is a being who's physically, functionally, and behaviorally exactly like us, but not conscious at all. And philosophers like me use zombies for various argumentative purposes as a kind of thought experiment. Here, I guess, the zombie I just alluded to wouldn't quite be the classic case of a philosopher's zombie, because... The, the zombie I mentioned would be a little bit behaviorally different. It would go around denying the existence of consciousness. The classic philosopher's zombie 
actually doesn't have any consciousness, but it still it still behaves as if it did. But um, yeah, I have I have heard occasionally philosophers people speculate that other people are actually zombies. There was a uh, philosopher I met in Trinity College, Dublin, one time who suspected many philosophers of being zombies. He was actually worried that I might be a zombie. He took me to lunch, asked me many questions, and at the end of lunch, he said, "Okay, I think I think you're not a zombie." <laughs> <laughs> I passed the test. I was glad. But anyway, yeah, the philosopher's zombie is a, is a perfect here. physical behavior. <laughs> no one thinks those ones really exist. But, you know, to many people, they at least seem to be a coherent idea. And they're one way to, to pose the problem of consciousness as the problem. Why, as a matter of fact, aren't we zombies? Why didn't evolution produce zombies? Why did it produce conscious creatures? Yeah, so just just going down the the list of different possible positions, I guess idealism. We haven't even talked about that, but that oh, has yeah. like a very long pedigree. I'm interested in idealism. I mean, idealism can be understood as the view that the world is fundamentally mental. The physicalism says the world is fundamentally physical. That's all there is at the fundamental level. Dualism says the world is physical and mental. There's fundamental physics and fundamental mentality. Idealism says the world is fundamentally mental, and that's uh, everything else is built up from that. Maybe the physical world is built up. From the mental. Standard panpsychism can be understood as a form of idealism, at least if you apply panpsychism to every physical property, space, time, mass, charge. If you say they're all fundamentally mental, then maybe you could see the world as interactions among all these mental things at the bottom level. But there's another version of idealism which says something like the world is grounded in a cosmic mind, a single mind. You know, for Berkeley, one of the great idealists, it might have been the mind of God. But there's also a, a version of this which says, Take, say, the world as described by quantum mechanics. Uh, there's a giant wave function of the universe. And now go panpsychist about that and say the wave function of the universe is actually fundamentally something mental. So it's a mental state in a single cosmic entity. That leads to what I call cosmic idealism. And I think that's a, it's an extremely way out view. It's also one worth taking seriously, but it suffers from its own version of the combination problem, what some people have called the decombination problem. How do you get from that cosmic mind to our minds, you know, why should the existence of a giant mind necessitate the existence of uh, of our minds? And that seems to be at least as hard as hard as the original combination problem. Yeah, I guess uh, criticism I've heard of idealism is that it sure it just sure seems like there's this like separate material stuff that isn't related to us. It like seems and that seems to follow like very predictable rules. And it, wouldn't it be like a hell of a coincidence if like none of it's real? All that's real is our mind, and yet it seems to be like a have its like own internal system that's so coherent. Oh, yeah. Well, so the classic version of idealism, which some people associate with the term, including the one I, th I think that you're discussing here is something like observer-based idealism, where the whole world exists inside the mind of an observer, like, uh, like say, inside my mind or your mind. And Barclay put this forward as you know, with the slogan, SAS per keepy, to be is to be perceived. And then this version of idealism goes along the idea with the idea that, yeah, if it looks like a table to you, the table exists simply in virtue of someone having experience as of a table. That's not the form of idealism I like. So I recently wrote an article called Idealism and the Mind-Body Problem, saying, yeah, there's that classical route to idealism, seeing everything as existing inside the mind of an observer. That view, I think, is very much subject to the problem you mentioned. What about all the regularities in your experiences? I look away from you, I look back, I come back to the same place the next day, it's still there. Don't we need a world outside experience to make all that true? I mean, Barclay appealed to the mind of God, but that's then almost, once you've got the mind of God, why not do it with an external world? So that's not the route to idealism that I like. That's what people sometimes call this phenomenalist idealism. I like a different route, which is the mind underlies. All the external world is real. Physics is all real. It's just it's all grounded 
in minds, maybe at the bottom level. For the panpsychist, for example, it might be particles have very simple mental properties and interactions among those minds ground the interactions in physics. Here, the mind is not playing the role of things are not basically mind doesn't ground reality through the to be is to be perceived slogan at all. Rather, it's interactions among minds and mental properties that ground the real interactions of physics. So it's a very different kind of idealism from that classical kind associated with Berkeley. And I think maybe it's subject to its own objections, but maybe different objections. So some listeners might have kind of a, a negative intuitive reaction to panpsychism, or it seems like a bit of a crazy idea, at least in our culture, that like, there's like some fundamental consciousness that like at the atomic level, or like, yeah, it's like there's consciousness all the way down. It's not only like our brains that, that produce consciousness. I guess to, get, to give some of the intuition that I've seen you give in, in, in a TED talk, it's like, we don't regard it as like super mysterious to suppose that there is mass or that there is charge or that there is like movement or like space. And panpsychism just supposes that consciousness is like another like fundamental primitive like part of how the universe is, is composed, just like the other things that we're like more inclined to accept. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one thing which is very culturally relative, it seems. There are cultures where panpsychism is very natural and very easy to accept, but at least right now in our, our culture, it seems to be something which is quite difficult to accept. Maybe we've got this view of, we've all absorbed this scientific view of things being built up from a very simple reductionist level of of physics and minds only come in fairly uh, fairly late in the day. But I think, you know, the thing is, mind, of course, is very difficult to, some people associate panpsychism with the idea that very simple systems might be intelligent or be thinking, which is seems like a crazy view. But once you start thinking of consciousness as something very simple, rather than something so complicated, then this becomes more attractive and more tenable. And I guess we're going to talk about consciousness in non-human animals sometime before too long. But I think there's been a gradual trend towards expanding the circle of conscious creatures and conscious systems as we come to see consciousness as more and more simple. So I'm, I'm at least, it wouldn't entirely surprise me if at some point in the, uh, in the coming years, panpsychism came to seem culturally more intuitive. But it is certainly true that for the average person, the average science-based person, it sounds like something pretty wacko the moment you hear it. And that's certainly an initial obstacle to overcome. Philosophers call this the incredulous stare. David Lewis said this about his theory that every possible world actually exists. He said, I can refute all the objections to this theory, but I cannot refute an incredulous stare. <laughs> You've got to find some other way to get past the incredulous stare. Just to press back a little bit on the idea that panpsychism can seem more intuitive if we sort of analogize consciousness to mass or charge. I mean, it seems like part of where people's incredulous uh, incredulousness might be coming from is like, well, those other things are used in explanations of stuff all the time of things besides themselves. But so far, unless maybe some of these other theories get worked out well, we haven't we don't use consciousness to explain not consciousness in the same sort of way. It does seem like there's a disanalogy there. Yeah, this is a general worry for for any theory involving consciousness. Yeah, what role? What role does it play? I mean, we do use consciousness to explain things naturally. We say people, you know, withdrew from the flame because they were in pain. They saw colors and that led them to react in different ways. But it's kind of hard to tell a theoretical story where consciousness explains things. And in particular, the level of physics, it sure looks like you don't need consciousness there to explain something distinctive in the physics. You can do all that structurally and mathematically. So some people think, okay, I could go for panpsychism. If you found me some special force of consciousness, at the bottom level, but I don't think that's going to happen. If you went that way, I don't know, maybe quantum mechanics, but that's dualism. I don't think we're going to find that. Rather, it's the idea that consciousness is grounding all that mathematical structure. Stephen Hawking put this by saying, you know, what puts the fire in the equations? We got some equations describing some structure, but what's all that structure in? The panpsychist says it fundamentally grounds 
their mental properties at the base of it. But yeah, there is this worry. If there was all these mental properties at the base, wouldn't you expect them to have some more distinctive role than just grounding the equations of physics? Some more sort of positive evidence for that? And yeah. I mean, that could just be because we're used to the sort of structural and relational properties of physics. And I mean, the entire point, I suppose, is that like consciousness is filling in that gap of what the structural properties are. Yeah, consciousness is giving it all reality in the first place. And although the structure and dynamics are something we're very useful used to in a scientific context and can deal with, maybe consciousness is what it was about all along and actually gave it all sort of meaning or reality or whatever. So maybe that's just a different kind of role where we have to get over our sort of mathematics first conception of what matters in a physical world. What about integrated information theory? I think I first heard about that like 10 or 15 years ago. It was this like up and coming idea about yeah, how mental properties are produced or something about like integrating lots of different sensory inputs. I don't know exactly how the math worked out. Then I, then I saw there was some blog posts that seemed to be like a devastating critique of it. I think it was Scott Aronson or someone else. Oh, yeah. But I hear it, integrated information theory marches on. Uh, what's, what's, what's the story there? Yeah, so Giulio Tononi, an Italian neuroscientist, introduced integrated information theory maybe 15 odd years ago with a, it's basically a mathematical theory of consciousness where he associates consciousness with informational properties of systems. And the centerpiece of it is a quantity, a mathematical quantity he calls phi, which is a measure of integrated information in a given system, which is you know, systems split up into units and connections. Then he has this very complex quantity called phi. And the idea is the more phi you have, the more conscious you are. And any system with non-zero phi has some degree of consciousness. And this is proved very popular, I think, especially among, say, mathematicians and physicists interested in consciousness, because it's like, ah, finally some math, finally something <laughs> substantial and formal that we, uh, we, we know how to, to deal with. And it does give you interesting mathematical approaches. So people like, say, Max Tegmark, physicist and cosmologist, have really gotten into integrated information theory precisely because it gives you something mathematically substantial to deal with. And it's been, to a certain extent, popular in neuroscience as well. I mean, it's complicated because it turns out that phi is almost impossible to measure in any physical system. It's also computationally intractable, even in, say, a AI system. We can't calculate phi for any system with more than about 15 units. So it's very, very difficult to directly empirically test. Some neuroscientists are very skeptical about it for that reason. That is basically more of a philosophical theory than a uh, that an empirically grounded theory. Although there are things which are empirically suggestive about it. And, People have tried to use approximations to phi, and they've argued this does correlate with things like being conscious versus asleep, what's going on in various patients with disorders of consciousness. So there's some connection to the neuroscience, but it's tenuous. Yeah, that said, there has been a bit of a backlash against IIT in recent years. Part of it is it just got so popular, like any theory, there's a backlash, and especially in the neuroscience where people think it's not well-grounded in the science. But yeah, the other thing you mentioned is this uh, blog post by... Got Aronson, which pointed out that basically you can have systems with extremely high phi that nonetheless look to be extremely simple, like basically a, a certain kind of matrix, complex matrix multiplier that multiplies two complex matrices in a natural way will have a certain kind of integration. And it looks like, you know, if the matrices are big enough, they're a thousand by a thousand matrix or a million by a million matrix, simply multiplying two matrices will have phi as high as you like, which seems to have the consequence that this matrix multiplier could be as conscious as a human being, which to Aronson seemed like a reductio, and which to many people seems like a reductio. Interestingly, Tononi, responding to Aronson, bit the bullet and said, no, I think this big matrix multiplier is really conscious. I mean, he said, it's not like thinking or anything, but it might be having like a complicated 
like having a complicated perceptual state, like looking at a wall and having full visual consciousness of that wall. Now, many people talk about to be a reductio of IIT. I think for other people, if you're sympathetic with the broad approach of IIT, maybe another possible moral would be it's missing something. Um, integrated information theory has five axioms of consciousness that it tries to turn into math and into this mathematical quantity phi. I think you could easily make a case that there's at least a couple, two or three central properties of consciousness that it's missing that ought to be built in as axioms. Once those were somehow translated into math, that would give us a refined measure, phi star, which maybe was not nearly so liberal with, uh, with consciousness and which didn't have this result. So I think Aronson's result is certainly a, a big problem for the very specific formula that Tononi gives. You know, my own view is people shouldn't be taking that specific formula so seriously in the first place, but it is interesting. There's a project of trying to come up with mathematical formulations or mathematical criteria, mathematical measures of consciousness, where a certain mathematical quantity, which we can in principle compute in a physical system, will have some connection to consciousness. I mean, another problem is it's just measures degree of consciousness, but consciousness is not unidimensional, multidimensional. In many ways, it's not there is a version of the theory that addresses that. Anyway, so I guess I would say the upshot of this is extremely early days for precise theories of consciousness. You should not take anyone's precise theory too seriously at the moment. But it's nice to see that in principle, there is actually a project here. And, I'd, you know, it'd be nice over time to see many more different mathematical theories of consciousness develop. There was recently a conference actually at Oxford in September on mathematical models of consciousness, getting together 20 or 30 people with different mathematical approaches to consciousness to see what they could come up with. I, I couldn't make it because I was teaching it at NYU at the time, but uh, the videos are online and I'm curious to see what progress came out of that conference. Integrated information, that's a, that's a materialist theory of consciousness? What, which category? I guess I would put it as, I would call it a quote, scientific theory of consciousness in the sense that it's neutral on the underlying metaphysics. Right now, if you look at what the theories of consciousness coming out of the sciences, mostly they're kind of neutral on materialism versus dualism versus whatever. They're theories of correlations. They say, for example, consciousness goes along with such and such process in prefrontal cortex. Maybe there's a neuronal global workspace and prefrontal cortex, and that goes along with consciousness. Or maybe it's processes in sensory cortex, which give rise to, to certain reentrant processes. These are basically theories of the physical correlates of consciousness. They don't try and solve the hard problem. People don't say that, yeah, well, it's obvious how this global workspace explains consciousness. It's rather theories of what kinds of physical processes you have, at least in a human, when you're conscious. And IIT is like that, but just more general. The theory of the physical correlates of consciousness, what kinds of physical systems will be conscious and how much consciousness will they have? And if you want to, you can understand it materialistically, saying that's all there is to consciousness, this information integration, and that fully explains consciousness. Now, Tononi himself doesn't say that. He says he's not trying to solve the hard problem. He takes consciousness as a primitive. He takes it for, uh, for granted, and he wants to explore its properties. And it says, what would you need to have to get consciousness? You'd need this integrated information. You could understand it as a dualist theory. There's integrated information, there's consciousness, and what he's proposing is a law that connects the two, fundamental law, hi-fi, high-consciousness. Maybe you can even understand it as a panpsychist theory. Tononi himself is neutral on the metaphysics. We had a workshop where we tried to press him on what's the best underlying philosophical story. And he said, it is what it is. So that was a bit, uh, that was a bit unsatisfying. <laughs> but I think the best way to see it is as a theory of correlations, which is at the moment neutral on the philosophy. And most of what we, there's been a lot of progress in the science of consciousness over the last, say, 
25 to 30 years, but it's almost all been at that level of correlations between physical processes and consciousness that are somewhat neutral on the, you know, the underlying metaphysics and the kind of explanatory connection one would, one would want ultimately to solve the hard problem. Arden is champing at the bit here to get onto the meta problem of consciousness, but I just want to have one more question on this topic, because I know there's a lot of people in the audience who are kind of very sympathetic to Daniel Dennett and kind of his brand of illusionism or denying that there's like, that there is any like fundamental consciousness or substance that, that is consciousness. So maybe, maybe you can explain this kind of longstanding disagreement between you and Daniel Dennett and what Daniel Dennett thinks and why kind of even after all these years, he, he has not managed to persuade you. Yeah, well, this is actually very closely connected to the issue of the, uh, of the meta problem, which is the problem of the meta problem, as I understand, is the problem of how is it, why is it that we talk about consciousness and why is it that we think we're conscious? Why do we think there's a hard problem? And the general idea is that even though explaining consciousness itself is a hard problem, explaining why we say these things might be an easy problem. You know, because after all, that's a matter of our behavior, our use of language, people writing down words and books, people making certain utterances. So there might be a physical explanation of that. My read on Dan Dennis' position, I mean, Diana's had a million different positions over the years. He's a bit of a moving target, but the core of his position, the part I find the most interesting, is a kind of illusionism based on the idea that all we need to do is solve the meta problem and will thereby dissolve the hard problem. So Dan's line is, we should look at the whole system objectively. If we can explain all the behaviors, all the things we say about consciousness, then we've basically explained everything there is to explain about consciousness. Dennett calls this third-person absolutism. What you need to do is explain all the properties of a system from the third-person point of view, then you've explained everything. To me and to many others, this doesn't seem fully adequate because there seem to be first-person data about consciousness. Explain all the behavioral properties. You've also got to explain why we have these experiences. I guess Dennett's line is to reject the idea there are these first-person data and say, all you do, if you can explain why you believe, why you say there are those things, why you believe there are those things, then that's good enough. I find that line, which Dana has pursued inconsistently over the years, but insofar as that's his line, I find that a fascinating and powerful line. I do find it ultimately unbelievable because I just don't think it explains the data, but it does, if developed properly, have the view that it could actually explain why people find it unbelievable. And that would be a virtue in its favor. So the work I've been doing lately on the meta problem has been all around this facility, trying to look at what are the best explanations of why we say these things. Yeah, why hasn't Dennett persuaded me? Because ultimately, I think there are data here that no view like that can properly explain. But I at least find the story of trying to dissolve the data by explaining our beliefs about it a very attractive one. From my point of view, it just seems that it still ultimately doesn't explain why it's like this to be a, a human being. And this is why actually very few people, once you really try and pursue this view, end up being really strong illusionists. Panpsychism comes up against the incredulous stare. Illusionism comes up against, against arguably an even stronger incredulous stare. And I think the kind of illusionism you need to dissolve the hard problem, it's a very strong kind. It basically requires saying you don't really have these conscious experiences at all. You just seem to. And most people ultimately find that unbelievable. But maybe this is something where, likewise, people could become more open to it over the years. And especially if someone does tell a very nice quasi-evolutionary neurobiological story of why our brains have these distorting self-models. It wouldn't surprise me at all if illusionism does come to be more widely accepted in, in the coming decades than it has been at least so far. So just to get really clear on the relationship between the hard problem and the meta problem, is it your view that you could give a full 
and satisfying answer to the meta problem. So uh, something that just explains all of our utterances about consciousness and all of our like beliefs about consciousness and even why we believe there's a hard problem, but still not have made, not have answered the hard problem or even not have made progress on the hard problem? Or do you think if you were to fully answer the meta problem, you will have answered the hard problem too? I'm certain that fully answering the meta problem will at least give us very deep insights into the hard problem. In fact, years ago, when I first started thinking about consciousness seriously, this was the number one way I was thinking about it. It was tied to the fact, well, yeah, I'm conscious. But yeah, I think about consciousness. I talk about consciousness. And there's got to be an explanation of that. And whatever explains that has to also be tied, very strongly tied to consciousness itself. So I get the very least, focusing on the meta problem has got to give us insights into the hard problem. So I'm really all in favor of thinking substantively about that as kind of an empirical research program, which is going to somehow connect very deeply to this philosophical issue, which is a dream in philosophy. But the hard line is that coming up with some story that explains the things I say about consciousness will fully explain consciousness, and there'll be nothing left to explain. And that, I think, basically requires the illusionist view that, yeah, it's an illusion, and all you have to do is explain the illusion. I think that's a great strategy in you know, many cases. Maybe you know, people have tried to bring this to bear and say, the case of God, they explain why people believe in God. Maybe that ought to then reduce our confidence that there is God and so on. With consciousness, though, there is, you know, it's got this status, apparent status, at least as a datum that, you know, many things, many things don't have. And so at least my view has always been the prima facie, we need to do more than just explain the things we say. We need to explain why we have these experiences. To reject that line, you have to basically deny the apparent datum that we're having those experiences. And to me, merely explaining the things we say and believe about consciousness does not put one in a position to reject the datum in the way that it might with God, because there's still the question, why should it be like this? The only response to that could be, well, actually, no, it's not like that. You merely believe it's like this. And at least at the moment, I find that too unbelievable to accept. So that's to say that I find the hard line that this would dissolve the hard problem the most interesting and promising reductionist strategy on the hard problem, but it's not one that I can accept. I've gradually gotten more sympathetic to it over the years, even though I think I'm committed to denying it, partly because of this higher order of humility. You know, philosophers disagree. A lot of us are getting it wrong. What could I be fundamentally getting wrong as a starting point? Maybe it's that. Maybe there's some way that illusionism could turn out to be true in a way that my mind just finds it impossible to come to grips with. And maybe that's why I give it this 10% credence. But I also think maybe if somehow, I do feel like there's more work for illusionism to do. It's not just enough for them to explain the reports, the things we say, whatever, and then that's it. They need to somehow explain why having a brain like that would somehow seem to be lit up in the way it is. Not would not would merely make us say that it is, but in some stronger sense would would produce situations like the situation that we're, we're actually in. And maybe there's something that an illusionist could say that would still fall on the reductionist side, but that would go beyond what illusionists have done to date. If that could be done, maybe that's the kind of thing I could in principle be open to that would ultimately leave me open, and open to dissolving the hard problem. But I think that would require some developments that go way beyond where we've gotten to so far. Maybe that would be like, yeah, meta problem plus solve the uh, A, explain all those reports and so on, and B, have some insight along the way that somehow connected very deeply to our sense of consciousness. Maybe something could emerge from that that could ultimately convince me to dissolve the hard problem or take a reductionist slash illusionist line. But yeah, I'm not there yet. Okay, so we've been focused pretty much exclusively on like theoretical philosophical topics. And I want to 
turn a little bit to ethics without leaving consciousness. So a lot of people think that consciousness is the basis of all value and a necessary condition for a being having moral status. So like, you know, you can step on a leaf or something because it's not conscious and that means it doesn't matter morally. But there are a lot of on the ground disagreements about which beings are conscious. And the answers here, they seem to really matter. So whether or not fish are conscious or insects are conscious seems really important for how we should treat them. So just to get a flavor of some of the controversy here, smaller and less complex animals, some people question whether they're conscious, like I said, fish or insects. AI, which we'll talk about later, either in more rudimentary forms or in more advanced forms. Simulated beings, so beings in simulations, us, if, if we are in fact in a simulation, which we'll also talk a bit about more later, as well as other sort of out there ideas about things that are conscious, like current computer programs, large systems like the earth or the solar system or governments. and um, Like groups of people? Groups of people, yeah. Or even just like everything. So maybe that's not so out there if panpsychism is true, but objects, plants, so on. So before we get to thinking about the implications of particular theories of consciousness for this question, we're obviously very uncertain about this. Do you have any sense of what we should do in the face of this uncertainty? What we should do to make somewhat informed guesses about which beings are conscious and to what extent? Yeah, I mean, obviously for practical purposes, this is extremely important. So maybe just to underline the first thing you said, given it does seem to be very widely accepted both among people in the effective altruism community and more generally that consciousness is very central to moral status. One very strong view is consciousness is the sole ground of moral status and value and all morally related value ultimately derives from states of consciousness, whether it's suffering or pleasure or states of consciousness more broadly. Or a weaker view is at the very least consciousness is required and plays a central role. Given all that, it just seems to follow straightforwardly that we need to think if you're trying to make a, you know, as good a world as possible, you need to think very, very hard about consciousness, both what systems are conscious, what kinds of consciousness are conducive to the good, and how those kinds of consciousness are distributed, and how we can change their distribution. So I would love to see a whole bunch of people motivated by effective altruism come to the study of consciousness to help us figure out those questions, and likewise, people moving in the, in the other direction. Yeah, so specifically on the question of the distribution of consciousness, we did actually, we had a conference on animal consciousness at, uh, at NYU, a couple of years ago, where these questions were being discussed, both by people interested in the, uh, the theoretical side, in the philosophy, the theoretical philosophy in the science, and the ethical and activist issues about the treatment of animals. And yeah, there's not, there's certainly not any consensus about exactly which animals are conscious. What there is very clearly is a trend towards being more liberal in ascribing consciousness to animals, both among scientists, among philosophers, and among people, among people generally. I remember when I first got started in this field about, say, 30 years ago, when people talked about which animals were conscious, they were tended to be, okay, well, sure, for sure humans, there was some debate about whether any non-human animals were conscious. But, you know, most people were prepared to extend consciousness to, to, prim to other primates, to other, other mammals, sure, dogs and cats, maybe, but once you get beyond that, big, big question mark, mice, who knows? Where over, the, over time, it seems we've now gotten to a point where practically almost everyone seems to take it for granted that just about every mammal is conscious, birds are conscious, that fish are very, very likely conscious. And now the debate is, say, over insects. 
are ants and flies or maybe worms? Are they, uh, are they conscious? And there's quite a lot of people saying they are, but there's some debate. And then you've even got people saying, you know, are plants conscious? And there's quite a lot of people in favor of plant consciousness. Now. So that's interesting as a trend. It's interesting also to think about what underlies that. Is it, is it greater scientific appreciation of the capacities of animals? Maybe in part. Is it partly to do with maybe verbal shifts in what we mean by consciousness? Maybe in the old days, people tended to use the word consciousness more for self-consciousness. Now they use it more for phenomenal consciousness. And that might also help explain why it's gotten a bit more liberal. But also, I think going along with it is a gradual evolution towards more liberal views of what systems are phenomenally conscious. In the old days, people used to think, well, this would require pretty complex capacities. And now it starts to look as if for every complex capacity anyone suggests that's required for consciousness, ah, looks like there's pretty good reason to think you could have consciousness without that. So, yeah, and an extreme case would be language. People say, ah, oh, I need language to be conscious. But now it looks like there's pretty good reason to think that infralinguistic individuals, uh, humans are conscious and that you know primates without language are, are conscious and so on. And likewise, for all kinds of complex capacities, very few complex capacities have, has anyone made the case stick that that would be required for consciousness. So that's led to an expansion, I think, to a much greater liberal. Seeing phenomenal, conscious, phenomenal consciousness as something relatively simple and undemanding has been a very big trend in the field. But okay, but all this is mostly sociology so far. And there are some disagreements. There are people who have higher order views of consciousness, where consciousness requires, for example, higher order states about your mental states. It's a bit like self-consciousness, but directed at your own mind. So it's not just I'm seeing this, but I know that I'm seeing it. That might seem like a demanding capacity. Maybe humans are primates and some other mammals can have it, but it starts to look unclear that fish or insects have that. And if you, so if you think that a, a higher order theory of consciousness is correct, then you're going to maybe be less liberal in ascribing it to animals. And, and some people have used that. to. I mean, there is an ongoing debate about whether fish feel pain, you know, which really seems to come down to do they subjectively experience pain. And the majority seem to be yes, but there are some people who say no. And usually the people who say no say that for these broadly theoretical reasons. So a lot then comes down to, in this case, to settle that issue. Well, ideally, we'd like to settle the question between theories of consciousness, which is which is a tough theoretical question in philosophy. For I think there's pretty good reasons to reject higher order theories of consciousness and to accept what people call first order theories of consciousness. It's uh, for various reasons. It's hard to see why these higher order states be required. And it seems to be a weird thing to suppose that we have all these higher order thoughts all the time. Some people think there's gradually empirical evidence in humans against these theories that say, you know, people are conscious despite not having activity in the brain where the higher order stuff is going on. But actually, that's still very much up in the air. Actually, in two weeks at NYU, we're hosting a workshop to try and see if anyone can devise an experiment to decide the issue between first order and higher order theories of consciousness. The Templeton Foundation is recently allocated $20 million to seeing if people can do this in general, take the leading theories of consciousness and see if people can come up with experiments to decide the issue between them. So I went to a, the first one was a project came out of a meeting in Seattle I went to last year to try and decide between global workspace and integrated information theories of consciousness. 15 of us sat around a table for two days and thought about it. I was very skeptical we'd come up with something, but oh, we came up with something, an experiment at the end of the day, which will not decisively settle the issue between the two which nonetheless involves some experiments about where in the brain there's going to be activity associated with certain kinds of consciousness-involving tasks, where it looks like the theories make different predictions. The theorists are being asked, get your predictions on paper. They've got all the predictions on paper. The report's now been registered. 
And now over the next year or two, people are going to perform the experiments. Okay, that's exciting. Uh, potential experimental evidence evidence to bear. In two weeks, we're going to try and do the same thing for first order and higher order theories of consciousness and see what kinds of, for example, neurobiological experiments might begin to decide this. One thing you can try to do is to get experiments involving forms of consciousness with no one reporting on their consciousness and see whether the activity you get is just in the sensory areas of the brain or in the higher cognitive areas of the brain. That's the kind of thing people can try to test. So can you give, give me the intuition for why people believe in higher order theories of consciousness? Because I, I just feel like I don't get it. Here is one very simple intuition. Any conscious mental is one that you're conscious of. A conscious state is one that there's something it's like to be in it. And many people think, oh, there's something it's like to be in a state if you're somehow aware of that state. And then being aware of that state seems on the face of it to involve some higher order awareness of that state. There's the state itself, like being in pain, is being aware of the pain. And that now gives you then something higher order. Maybe it's not yet higher order thinking, but at least some kind of higher order awareness or higher order perception, a mental state about a mental state. That's at least what people appeal to. I feel very unsympathetic because it just seems like that's how we know we're conscious, not what it consists in to be conscious. And why did they say it's like the third level? You have to be conscious of the consciousness of the consciousness. Is there a reason why it should be two? Actually, there's different people go different ways here. But <laughs> the most famous version of this is probably David Rosenthal's higher order thought view. And he's very clear that for him, the higher order thoughts themselves don't have to be conscious. They're, in fact, typically unconscious higher order thoughts. You can say you have unconscious awareness of your mental states that makes the lower order states conscious, but not the higher order states. So the top level is never conscious, but all of the ones below, they can be. On this view, yeah. <laughs> there is a, there's the alternative view that the top level is conscious too, and you somehow get every, you, you avoid the regress somehow, either by having infinite levels or by having to be aware of X is to be aware of aware of X. It's awareness has awareness of awareness somehow built into it. I'm not actually, you know, maybe there are there are ways of making that uh, that one fly, but that makes higher order awareness much more deflationary than on the higher order thought view. And it's no longer clear that it's going to require a whole separate cognitive system of higher order states. Basically, you might have first order awareness, along with the claim that first order awareness somehow makes itself available to the system to be an object of awareness. So why don't you buy it in a, in a nutshell? Why don't you buy the higher order theories of consciousness? Well, my intuition for a start is that consciousness involves awareness of the world. It's a way of being aware of things. It's not primarily states that we're aware of. It's say things in the world that I'm aware of. So I can be aware of my hand or something consciously. And that's not a matter of my being aware of my perceiving a hand. To me, that's a special kind of consciousness, the higher order thing. I do feel there's some force of the objection that when I consciously perceive my hand, I'm somehow aware. There's some very light awareness we have of perceiving the hand, but I don't think it's anything as nearly as robust or as rich as a thought or as a kind of cognition. Maybe it's some form, some basic form of awareness that's built into consciousness itself. The philosopher Brentano back in the 19th century said, you know, all awareness involves some background awareness of awareness. I can feel myself sympathetic with a view like that, but that's not going to place the same demands on consciousness that the, uh, the higher order thought view had. You know, the higher order thought where you need a whole separate thought about your perception seems to be very demanding. Maybe flies or mice are just going to be incapable of having such sophisticated cognitive states. Whereas if consciousness merely involves some very simple background awareness of awareness that's built into first order awareness, maybe we could make sense of the view that even relatively simple animals have that. I'm most inclined towards a first order view where consciousness is just a matter of being 
aware of things in the world in the right way. And if that's the case, then um, it's not clear at all that this places strong restrictions on the class of creatures that can have it. My sense is that the evidence in the field is moving in the direction of these first order theories of consciousness and therefore is leading us to, one should accept a more liberal view of animal consciousness. And I'm inclined to be pretty confident myself for these reasons that at the very least, say, birds and fish and quite possibly insects have what's required for consciousness. But then, okay, there's still a big broad area of uncertainty, which might finally get me to answering your question, which was about what should you do in face of, of that uncertainty? I mean, there is massive uncertainty here, and I think one should be open to it. What should you do theoretically? I don't know. It's easy for the theorist to say, leave all options open, explore them, distribute the evidence, uh, um, your credences as best you can. We do have big epistemological problems about consciousness in general because we have no direct measures of consciousness. I once talked about the consciousness meter that you could just wave at a system and it would display its state of consciousness for you. But that would make the science of consciousness easy, but you know, we don't have one because consciousness is not like that. It's, it's relatively private. We've got ways of measuring it, but all those ways of measuring it require assumptions or theories. For humans, we use reports. We ask people and we trust that by and large, they're reporting their consciousness correctly. Non-human animals, we don't have reports. We just have very indirect measures. So yeah, the epistemological situation is, is shaky. But for theoretical purposes, I'm a philosopher. I'm used to that. That's fine. Now for you guys, for effective altruists who are uh, trying to change the world, interested in minimizing animal suffering and so on, then I think it's obviously it's a much trickier question. I guess there's a view of, what is it? The precautionary principle says we ought to err on the side of avoiding harm. So maybe that's a reason for giving, you know, at least in, in determining your actions, give an awful lot of weight to the possibilities where consciousness is more extensive and suffering is, you know, if, if you're 50-50 if you're on whether fish feel pain, then, okay, uh, be inclined to give a lot of weight to the possibility that they do feel pain and in determining your action. But yeah, here is where I hope that the effective altruists have, uh, have thought about this a lot more deeply than, than I have. Well, we've thought about it a lot. I'm not sure whether, <laughs> whether that has borne very much fruit from that point of view. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I guess on the on the play it safe approach, I think I saw a survey of philosophers which suggests that it was in the high 80s, the fraction of philosophers who thought it was wrong to eat meat in the current day situation, which is quite funny when lined up against your survey suggesting that like only 80% of philosophers have confidence in the existence of an external world. So possibly there's some people who don't think the world, <laughs> external world exists, but it's nonetheless wrong to hurt the animals in it. Well, on the new Phil Paper survey, we're going to have a... We're going to have a vegetarianism. Oh, excellent. Fresh, Great. Omnivore, vegetarian, vegan. Not are you, but what do you think is correct? We're also going to have a question about what systems do you think are conscious? Roughly down from humans to particles with a few stops. <laughs> and we'll be able to see how those things, how, how those things go together, which uh, might be interesting. Yeah. I guess you, you'd imagine that many of those philosophers are not confident that animals are conscious, or at least like not all of the animals that we eat are conscious, but they're like saying, well, if it's 50-50, then like it, sure, it seems like a much better bet to, to stay safe and, and not to treat them badly. Yeah, I think many philosophers would think that theoretically. Even I'm probably inclined to think that theoretically, which is, nonetheless, I eat meat. So I'm, you know, my, my, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure many, my, many of them. Uh, my behavior and my, uh, my theoretical judgments here are not, are not fully aligned, but it's not the only domain where that's true. Sounds like the survey asked, do you think it's wrong to eat meat? Not do yeah. you eat meat? Which <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. 
But yeah, I guess the, the, the trickier cases are ones where it's like the, the trade-offs are a bit more stark because it's like it's relatively easy to not eat meat, at least in like a principled, like philosophical sense. But uh, there's other cases where it's like you're deciding between like helping one group and helping another group. And then it's like, yeah, there's like potentially big cost to like diverting resources to one group and not another. And there, I guess you would ideally have like, you know, well-calibrated probabilities about whether they suffer and how much they suffer relative to one another. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with Luke Mohauser doing this very lengthy detail. Yeah, that's the thing I'm the most familiar with him because I talked with a... He wrote this big, long report on animal consciousness, and I talked quite a lot with him while he was coming up with that report. And we talked a lot about what are the, the different criteria for consciousness in ascribing consciousness to animals and which ones are well-established and which are not. And, you know, there's nothing which is tremendously well-established. But there's things, I guess, that seem correlated somehow. Yeah, I mean, global report is our best one. I guess the one question is if there's anything which is a, which is a definitive sign of lack of consciousness. And there's almost nothing that seems to have that status. As I say, there's nothing... It seems that we can be clearly, there's no complex capacity X so that we can be confident, I think, that X is required for consciousness. I mean, okay, I would say that because I think panpsychism is coherent. But I think you know, we've got nothing in our evidence that clearly rules out extending consciousness to almost any system. So we're not, I think, going to be in the position of saying there's anytime soon there's some capacity required for consciousness that therefore definitively rules out that fish are conscious. We might get to the point where there are some capacities that we are pretty confident do suffice for consciousness, like most people think, you know, language and report and complex behavior and flexible decision making, or at the very least, very good signs of consciousness. There are philosophical questions about why that's so, but most people seem to be prepared to take those as pretty good positive signs of consciousness. But then as the, the, the capacities get simpler and the decision maker gets more and more, decision making gets more and more reflexive, then I don't know. I mean, I guess morally, the, uh, the situations which are most the animals that get eaten the most, right, are what, mammals, birds, and fish? Well, in terms of raw numbers, I think like tiny fish uh, are a lot. And then there's, I guess, chickens among, yeah. So um, so among those, I, could, I, could, I think right now, there's, among scientists and philosophers, there's a pretty strong consensus that birds like you know, chickens and fish are conscious. Of course, there's a lot of variation among, say, fish. And then we've got a second question about assuming that the amount of like consciousness or ability to feel pain and pleasure is like non-zero, it could still nonetheless be quite a bit less than what a human has because merely simply because their brain is smaller, say. Yeah. And then of course this raises questions as what the morally relevant dimensions of consciousness are. Is it just pain and pleasure? And then um, is it pain and pleasure of a certain kind? Is yeah, is a fish feeling what is for that fish extreme pain as morally significant as a human feeling extreme pain? I mean, one view would be that somehow there's something different about the characters of those pains in humans. It's just somehow more intense or worse from us. Another view would be that in humans, that pain has more knock-on effects, say, in your, in your thoughts, in your attitude towards life in general, somehow which don't have analogs in the case of fish. And if you're inclined to think that the morally relevant features of consciousness include not just the pain in itself, but things like thoughts and memories and overall emotional cognitive attitudes, then you might think that adds a whole moral dimension in the human case that's not present in the fish case. So I think around here, one has to think fairly hard about, not just about yeah, what animals are conscious, but what animals have what kinds of consciousness and what kinds of consciousness are morally relevant. Do you think it's accurate to say that although we're, people are pretty unsure about what's conscious and to what degree and in what way, people tend to think, well, the more complex, the more behaviorally similar to humans and the bigger the brain, the more likely the thing is to be conscious and in a morally relevant way. And do you think that's justified? I think that's right. And I think to some extent it's justified. You know, we're in, again, epistemologically very shaky grounds here. So maybe that could be wrong. But the one case of consciousness that we know about, it seems, is our own case 
the human case or even like my own case, typically we're prepared to extend it to other humans because there's so much like us. And I think it's natural to say, you know, in thinking about, say, other primates, they're like us in relevant respects. Yes, they don't have this and this and this, but it doesn't seem much reason to think that this and this and this would be required for consciousness. So we say, uh, we say, sure, they're conscious. And the further we get from our own case, the more epistemologically shaky it gets. And it seems that in particular, as you move down the scale of capacities and of complexity, it becomes harder and harder. There's, there's one argument for extending it further, which we take away a certain capacity X. We say, look, it's very plausible that X is not required for consciousness. So although these systems don't have X, that's probably not a barrier to, to consciousness. They're still going to be relevantly like, relevantly like us. Therefore, they're conscious. Now, the only trouble is, of course, we could be wrong, and maybe X could be required for consciousness. So the more steps we have like that, even if we're confident, like 0.99 for every capacity X, we remove that we're probably not changing consciousness. Do that enough, then all those bits of, all those 0.01 bits of doubt might start to add up. And by the time you get down to, say, a very simple system like a fly or a fish, you might think, although there was no individual capacity they lack, that's what we have much reason to think that's required for consciousness. It could be that somehow we've missed we've missed the crucial thing. Maybe that would be one way to actually, you know, to rationalize the kind of reasoning you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it seems like in one way surprising though that we would put so much weight in capacities of complexity, especially since, as you were saying earlier, there's been a move toward thinking of consciousness as something simple, as just phenomenal conscious, just well, there being something it's like. So is there a way of spelling out more why it seems like it is complexity in particular and cognitive capacities that makes us feel like that's, well, nothing is great evidence for consciousness, but that's, you know, in the ballpark or that's the best we can do or something like that. I mean, I guess maybe there's some reason for thinking consciousness is somehow tied to capacities, at least, that there are some capacities that might, I mean, if you're a total panpsychist, you'll think, okay, everything is conscious and your capacities have nothing to do with it. But if you think some systems are conscious and some are not, it's a very, you know, a very, very natural place to look is it something about the capacities of those systems to do certain things that go along with consciousness. That doesn't yet show that it's a complex capacity. It may be some pretty simple capacities, say, that plants have, say, like abilities to, you know, to adapt and to, to grow and to process information. But anyway, once we're in the realm of capacities and we don't know what the capacities are, then it at least seems to be, well, it's a view worth entertaining that complex capacities may matter. And I'm inclined to put less myself. I'm inclined to put to think that it's probably simpler capacities that matter for consciousness than rather than complex capacities. But you know, it's hard to be confident of that. I do think over time, the science and the philosophy has evolved in that direction. For any complex capacity that someone might say is relevant to consciousness, people come back and say, no, not much evidence for that. But I think, but in general, given our epistemic humility about consciousness, you know, there's so much that we don't that we don't understand. I don't think we should rule out the idea completely that it's a complex capacity. And that would make me at least that I'm pretty well 100% confident that humans are conscious. I'm very confident that that other primates are, are conscious. But am I that confident? Anything? Am I 90% confident even that flies are conscious? No, probably not. Even though I'm inclined to think they are. But I think even going to 90% confidence would be too high given all the things that are lost in moving from us to flies. Yeah, I guess my probably would be decent amount less than 90%, but it's just, I guess it just seems like you should like avoid either extreme in that case. It shouldn't be close to 100%. It shouldn't be close to 0% either, just given how like uncertain we are about like what makes this true. I think something I'm realizing is that I guess I thought the situation would just be hopeless given that we can't even agree what consciousness is or like what is the 
underlying basis for it to possibly think that we can then like put probabilities on the on the likelihood of different creatures being conscious. But it seems like to some extent you can set aside that question and there could be agreement across people who have different views on the hard question of consciousness on the easy question. They might then agree on like what are the actual factors in practice that matter? Like is it self-awareness or is it ability to perceive the environment or whatever else? Even if like you could get agreement on that between a panpsychist and an illusionist in some sense. Yeah, I think, I mean... Panpsychism and illusionism is a tricky yeah, case. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I was trying to choose two extremes there. Maybe that's too Panpsychists do make claims about the distribution of consciousness, after all. But many broad views about the, say, the hard problem, say materialism and dualism, are to some extent orthogonal to questions about the distribution of consciousness. Some scientific theories make predictions about the distribution of consciousness, but many of them are also somewhat neutral. So, I mean, to some, I mean, A, it's possible to have credences in which theories are correct and reasonable credences, insofar as these theories do make different predictions. You can just go through your credences and theories, like if I'm 10% confident in the higher order thought theory, that ought to, that 10% ought to weigh into restricting the distribution of conscious, my credences about, say, fish consciousness a bit. But yeah, it's certainly true that where views on the hard problem is concerned, they're somewhat orthogonal to questions about the distribution of consciousness. And materialists and dualists, maybe this happens regularly, get into debates about whether fish are conscious or not, with many of the same considerations arising. Basically, what matters there is the correlations between consciousness and physical processes. And we can have scientific or philosophical reasons for believing in correlations here, which is somewhat independent of views on the hard problem. I do think it gets a bit tricky for some philosophical views. If you're an illusionist who thinks that, uh, in fact, no system is conscious and it's merely an illusion of consciousness we have, then I think this ought to really affect how you think about the distribution of consciousness. Actually, this came up in my conversations with Luke Mulehauser about this, because he said at the same time, he wants to be an illusionist about consciousness, and he's got all these complicated credences about the distribution of consciousness. I think if you're really a thoroughgoing illusionist who, who you, know, you know, we're not really conscious at all, we really have the sense that we're conscious. And I don't think all these intuitions about the distribution of consciousness should really count for uh, very much. A, strictly speaking, these animals aren't conscious at all. Nothing is conscious. B, if it's the illusion of consciousness that matters, well, these animals may not have the illusion. Anyway, this is to so I, mean, I think I do think it, many of these questions about the moral status of consciousness may have to be rethought. And if you're inclined towards a strong illusionism, maybe that's something we can talk about in depth. So you've said that you think it's plausible that consciousness can come in degrees. So for some beings, some people think are more conscious than others. Like maybe people think human beings are more conscious than many non-human animals and that like very small animals like insects are less conscious, maybe if conscious at all, than larger animals, roughly. So... I'm wondering if you can explain what you think it means for something like consciousness to come in degrees. So you might imagine that consciousness coming in degrees is sort of like the difference between being half awake and fully awake or, you know, 75% awake. Or that's like an experience that we all have. Is that a misleading analogy or is that a good analogy? How would you explain it? Yeah, I think I'd want to be cautious about saying consciousness comes in degrees. Because I don't think there's a single unidimensional scale, which is the canonical scale of consciousness on which we can order every possible total state of consciousness or every possible conscious creature at a time. Rather, I think, you know, consciousness is multidimensional and there's many different ways to sort states of consciousness along scales. That is to project these multidimensional scales onto single scales. So I think there's, there's really probably a bunch of different scales here. The amount of attention you're paying attentiveness, at least within human consciousness, that's a relevant dimension. The amount of information contained within an individual state of consciousness, you know, there's some sense that maybe you could measure the information, say, in a visual state, 
in terms of a measure like bits. Maybe the number of kinds of consciousness, where kinds of consciousness will have to be individuated a certain way. For example, we have visual consciousness and auditory consciousness and tactile consciousness and so on. We can certainly imagine beings with more sensory modalities than us and fewer sensory modalities than us. We have cognitive consciousness, where it seems that some creatures have merely sensory consciousness, but not cognitive consciousness. So I guess I'm inclined to think there's lots of different ways to put scales on states of consciousness. No single way, but nonetheless, it may well turn out that, say, once we compare humans to mice or flies or whatever, we may well be have a higher degree for many, many of those scales. Although it's entirely possible there are some ways of, and it's very likely there are some ways of ordering states of consciousness so that mice come out may come out having a higher degree than humans. So you said elsewhere that if more fully autonomous artificial intelligence comes around, then we might have to start worrying about it being conscious and therefore presumably worthy of moral concern. But you don't think we have to worry about it too much before then. So I'm just wondering if you can say a bit about why and whether you think it's possible that programs or computers could become gradually more and more conscious and might whether that process might start before they are fully autonomous. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. And I guess one would expect to get uh, conscious AI well before we get to human-level artificial general intelligence, simply because we've got pretty good reason to believe there are many conscious creatures that, that whose degree of intelligence falls well short of human-level artificial general intelligence. So if fish are conscious, for example, and you might think if an AI gets to sophistication and information processing and whatever the relevant factors are to the degree present in fish, then that should be enough. And it does open up the question as to whether any existing AI systems may actually be conscious. And you know, if I, I think the consensus view is that they're not, but the more liberal you are about descriptions of consciousness, the more we should take seriously the chance that they are. I mean, there is this, this website out there called People for the Ethical Treatment of Reinforcement Learners that I quite like. The idea is that every time you give a uh, reinforcement learning network its reward signal, then you know it may be experiencing pleasure or correspondingly suffering, depending on the valence of the signal. And as someone who's committed to taking panpsychism seriously, I think I should at least take that possibility seriously. So I don't know where current deep learning networks fall on the scale of organic intelligence. Maybe they're at least as sophisticated as you know, worms like C. elegans with 300 neurons. I take seriously the possibility that those are conscious. So I guess I, I do take seriously the possibility that AI consciousness could come along well before human-level AGI and that it may exist already. Then the question, though, is, I suppose, how sophisticated the state of consciousness is it? If it's about as sophisticated as, say, the consciousness of a worm, I think most of us are inclined to think, okay, well, then that brings along, say, some moral status with it, but it doesn't give it enormous weight in the scheme of conscious creatures compared to the weight we give humans and mammals and so on. So I guess then the question would be whether current AIs get a truly sophisticated moral status, but I guess I should be open to them at least getting some relatively small moral status of the kind that, say, worms have. So maybe this is getting outside your area of expertise, but with like current ML systems, how would we have any sense of whether the affected states are positive or negative? And it seems like, yeah, and as much as you like have a reinforcement learner, I guess 
on average, does it get like zero reinforcement? Cause it just has kind of an equal balance of like positive and negative reinforcements. And is there some way that you could just like scale all of them up to be like more or less positive? Or do, does that even mean anything? Like you just increase all the numbers by a hundred. Like, well, how would, how would that help? It kind of, it kind of raises this issue, this issue of the arbitrariness of kind of the zero point on this kind of scale of goodness of, of, of the states. Yeah. Well, this is, um, you know, this is getting to issues about value and morality that do go beyond my expertise to some extent. And no, we've got absolutely no way right now to tell exactly what reinforcement learning systems might be experiencing, if anything. But if you were inclined to think they're experiencing something and that they're experiencing something with valence, I suppose, then they'd be having a mix of positively valence reinforcement and negatively valence reinforcement, therefore a, uh, a mix of some very simple precursor of, say, of pleasure and of suffering, you know, proto-pleasure and proto-suffering. Then a lot's going to depend on your ethical theory. If you're feeling pleasure half the time, but suffering half the time, is that net good? Is that net bad? I don't know. If you ask me, I think that's net bad because, you know, all that suffering tends to outweigh the, the pleasure, but that's maybe there's weights on the scale. At this point, though, I should say that it's by no means obvious to me that pleasure and suffering, that is that valence states of consciousness are the ones that are relevant to moral status. I know people quite often have this view. I'm inclined to think that consciousness may, may ground moral status in some cases, quite independently of its valence. And even beings with unvalent states of consciousness could still have moral status. Yeah, so you write about like a type of creature that you call a Vulcan that is like very intelligent and has many of the same sorts of conscious states that we do, except for without the valence, so they're never happy or sad or feel pleasure or pain, right? And you say that you think they would still have moral status in the sense that it would still be wrong, for instance, to kill a Vulcan in order to save an hour on your way to work. Can you just talk a little bit more about that intuition and why you have it and yeah, why you think it's important? Yeah, I guess it just seems like a fairly clear intuition to me. I mean, maybe it's worth stepping back a little bit and thinking about consciousness and moral status in, in general. One way that I've tried to motivate this and the work I've been doing on this is to think about various trolley problems where um, one being on one track, five being on the other track are going to die, and you've got some choice on the matter. An initial case is the zomb is a zombie trolley problem where uh, you have a conscious human on one track and uh, five non-conscious humanoid zombies on the other track, and maybe the trolley is going towards the one conscious human, and the question is, should you divert it to kill the five non-conscious humanoid zombies? At least if you're prepared to take the idea of a zombie seriously, many, many people at this point have the intuition that it's a better thing to do to kill the five zombies than to kill the conscious human, precisely because the zombies are not conscious. That may be because you think if they're not conscious, they have no moral status at all, or maybe because if you think they're not conscious, they have a much diminished moral status. But you know, many people I've encountered have that intuition and the zombie trolley problem. But then the question is, which features of consciousness are responsible for our moral status? And some people at this point say it's valence states like pleasure and suffering. And that's all that matters for our moral status. I think Peter Singer, at least at some point, is on record as taking that view. And it's fairly common among people who think about animal ethics to take that view. And I mean, I find that surprising because my intuitions don't go that way at all. One way to bring this out is to think of your paradigmatic, you know, extreme case of the Vulcan from Star Trek, who, let's say, has no effective states at all, but nonetheless has very rich, both sensory consciousness and cognitive consciousness. So they're, you know, they're constantly thinking about the world, maybe thinking about mathematics and science and the world around them in various ways without any valence states of pleasure and suffering. And they also have rich sensory 
consciousness. And then the question is, does that being lack moral status entirely? To me, it just seems bizarre and almost crazy to say that uh, that being lacks moral status, and it's okay just to call them. We're talking about a conscious being here who who senses, who thinks, who reflects. So if we had a Vulcan trolley problem with a, a conscious being and five Vulcans, no, it would not be okay to uh, switch tracks to kill the five Vulcans. And okay, maybe the fact that the Vulcan is not experiencing pleasure and suffering is in some way morally relevant to assessing the amount of value their existence contributes to the world. But to me, the amount of pleasure and suffering they're undergoing seems to be a relatively small consideration on top of the, the great value conferred by their consciousness. I don't know if this is an intuition that just I share. I also share the intuition that it's bad, but I think that intuition is coming up for different reasons. So for example, it's just like, it's very hard to imagine a creature that has all of these conscious states, but no affective states. So like nothing feels good or bad. So I think it's just very hard to like intuitively grasp that idea. So it's like some of the like, in the sense that they must feel some pleasure in playing is like getting smuggled in. Then there's also the fact that just like creating a culture in which we can use violence against other creatures seems like it would have bad consequences. And then there's also the fact that if you start just engaging in violence against, you know, other agents that can retaliate, then that's like also a very bad idea because they're going to like fight you and you end up in conflicts. And the fact that they don't have effective states isn't uh, going to change the fact that they're potentially going to like resist your attempts to like thwart their preferences. So even if you don't think preferences per se matter, then there's like, it can be very strong reason to cooperate with the preferences of, of other agents, even agents that you think have like no terminal moral value. And of course, there's, there's the fact that the Vulcans might have instrumental value to like other creatures that might have, uh, that might be capable of effective states that have terminal value. So it's kind of all these reasons why I'm like nervous as this intuition is not super reliable. Sure. I can, yeah, I can see all those, all those reasons. I'd like to think I can sort of factor out the intuitions about instrumental value and maybe about the practices of violence and so on. Maybe the first point runs, potentially runs deepest here, that maybe we can't imagine beings without affect, or it's a lot harder than we think. And maybe that, in fact, when I imagine these Vulcans, maybe I'm tacitly imagining some affect in there. For example, I am imagining them reasoning about the world and choosing what to do. And at least on certain views of reasoning and action, maybe doing that always involves some kind of valence, like trying to do something and achieving it might somehow always involve some positive valence and and arriving at contradictions in one's reasoning might somehow always have some negative valence. So I do take views like that seriously, but nonetheless, it does seem to me that I can coherently, I'm inclined to think I can imagine a being without significant affective consciousness. And it turns out those kinds of affects are the ones that those kinds of affects matter a lot. Even that would reconfigure a view from, say, a pleasure and suffering based view. But I mean, prima facie, I'm inclined to think that I can imagine a being without much in the way of affective consciousness. And still, it just seems, actually seems monstrous to me to think about killing such a being. Now, it's true that intuitions about their preferences may come in here. If you had Vulcans who actually, you might say, okay, well, you also thought that if you have no affect, you have no preferences. And then, you know, Vulcans were such, they had no preference whether they live or die. Then you might think, well, the moral status questions are tricky. If they preferred to die, maybe it would be fine. I don't know. To kill them. Even then, even then I, I've got some, uh, some qualms. But yeah, even that requires a link between affect and preference and then giving a certain weight to preference satisfaction that might well start taking us beyond consciousness alone. So I feel pretty unsure about this whole thing. But just to Rob's points, it seems like all of the factors that you brought up also apply to the case to the zombie trolley problem, right? So it's like a, a bit hard to imagine zombies or, you know, beings who aren't conscious, but otherwise are completely like us and act like us. And also it seems like it would be bad to just go around killing beings and would, you know, create this culture of violence and so on. And there's, you know, possibly they're instrumentally valuable, but I do at least share the intuition that it's 
it's much more, it gives me much more pause to think that it would be good to kill a uh, five Vulcans to save a person than to kill five zombies. Do you not have a difference there, Rob? Well, I, get, I, I agree that killing the, the pea zombies is bad for like many of the reasons that, that I gave. I guess it's like, it seems like it's two different framings on the problem, which gives you like different intuitions. So in one case, you're imagining them kind of as, as objects or something in the, in, 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 when you're imagining them as, as zombies. So you like imagine there's just like no lights on inside whatsoever. In the other case, it's like you're imagining them, I think, as agents, which is causing you to, to like treat them differently, even if they can't feel any like good or, good or negative states. So you're thinking we, we want to treat Vulcans as agents more than we want to treat pea zombies as agents? Well, I, I share the intuition that when you think about the pea zombie case and the trolley problem, I'm more inclined to say, well, run over the five pea zombies. And I also agree when you, when you talk about these Vulcans and you like paint the picture of how they have this like vivid internal life, even if it's like doesn't involve positive and negative affect, then I'm much less inclined to be okay with harming them in as much as they can be harmed. But I think that that's probably like, I agree that we should try to reconcile those uh, two intuitions. So actually, well... Maybe not. <laughs> Why not reconcile them by moving towards a view where consciousness matters to some degree, independent of its valence? I mean, valence may matter too around, maybe we'll get some weight in the equation, but why not think that consciousness itself carries a moral status? Yeah, I guess it's just when I, when I think about it, so then I have this intuition, this third intuition that then like met, like says that they should be the same answer because I, I also have this intuition that conscious experiences that don't have positive or negative valence are not valuable. So then it's like, I, kinda have the, I can't have all three of these <laughs> different intuitions. So I got to drop one of them and it's kind of a choice of which one you, which one you drop. I'm going to give up the third one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to know, how would you evaluate whether conscious states are good or bad if they don't have any affect associated with them? It seems like then it becomes very tricky to evaluate. I mean, even the Vulcans might not have a view on <laughs> whether they're good or bad. I mean, first of all, I'm not sure about, you know, some atomistic view of adding up the value of your conscious states to get to the value of your existence. It's probably going to be, so we're going to have to, at the very least, evaluate, you know, something like total states or total streams of consciousness across time. I guess I'm inclined to think that there's at least a certain baseline value that you get for being conscious. And maybe there's also some different kinds of consciousness may well carry different kinds of moral status. I mean, sensory consciousness may give you a primitive kind, but cognitive consciousness, thought, reflection may well send you into a different league. And here I'm, again, I'm just speculating. I don't have a, uh, I don't have a theory, but then within those realms, affect may make it more positive and more negative, but somehow at least relative to baseline, I guess my attitude is even if you had a Vulcan who you went from the, the Vulcan case to a being who suffers occasionally, then so that you know, on an atomistic view, it would all add up to negative valence. It would still be monstrous to kill them, even though you'd be reducing the amount of suffering in the world. So then, yeah, I guess I would just be inclined to think there's some baseline value contributed by being conscious at all, and maybe but contributed by having consciousness of certain kinds. I think that that's at least consistent with the idea that in order for a being to have moral status, it has to be capable of valenced conscious states like happiness or suffering. But I guess maybe that would be a weird view because then it's like you can have moral status, but it can't be the case that any of these other states are actually adding to the, the like goodness of your existence or something like that? I guess I think that even if a Vulcan was completely incapable of pleasure or suffering, it, my intuition says very strongly they have moral status. So I'm not even clear I'd like that week a link between moral status and consciousness. Are there states for humans that don't have any affect associated with them? How tightly are like conscious states and affect linked, do you think? I mean, I think on the face of it, for example, something like visual consciousness can exist without affect. It's not to say that we don't very frequently attach some positive valence to uh, to what we see or to experiencing it, and sometimes negative valence. But I'm inclined to think the baseline case in perception is neutral affect in some sense. And there's 
happens relatively frequently. Now, maybe that's getting perception all wrong, and there are theories of perception all about affordances and action and getting signals to reach for things, and you get positive affect when something goes right in perception and when not. But I mean, those strike, those are at the very least controversial and speculative theories of perception. I'd be inclined to think the neutral case is, is affect-free. When it comes to cognition, thinking, reasoning, acting, it's a bit more complicated because now there's often the question of you know having preferences and goals which can be satisfied or otherwise. And you might think that when you act, you try to do something and you do it, then there's automatically some positive affect for that. I think it'll even that is going to depend a lot on how you think, what you think is the connection between affect, action, and reason. Likewise, when you, you, know, you engage in a proof from reasoning and you come up with a justified conclusion, maybe on some views, there could be some positive affect attached to that. Maybe my view of affect is limited, but I'm inclined to think it's also quite possible to reason without much in the way of, of affect there. So we've been talking in a sort of like science fiction-y realm of, of Vulcans at the moment, but it seems kind of plausible to me that there could be creatures that have conscious experience, but not affective experiences. So like maybe, I mean, this is all totally speculative, but like maybe insects have conscious perception, but they don't feel happiness or suffering. So just to clarify on your view, that would imply that insects have moral status, whereas a lot of people would have the intuition that if insects only had conscious perception and they didn't feel any kind of pain or pleasure or happiness, they wouldn't have moral status. Does that sound right? Yeah, except I'm not sure that I'm committed to the claim that any state of consciousness confers moral status on you. I think in some ways that's the most natural view around here, but it's not the only possible view. You might think there are kinds of consciousness that convey moral status on you and there are kinds that don't. That said, I'm inclined towards the view that any degree of consciousness at least puts you in the realm, you know, in the ballpark of having moral status. And therefore, I'd be inclined to think that if it were the case that ants were conscious but didn't have affective states, then we'd at least want to start thinking about giving them some weight in our moral calculations, if a very small one. Now, as a matter of fact, I think that it's plausible that if ants are conscious, they also have states of pleasure and suffering. I think, you know, pain seems to be very primitive and there's lots of evidence of pain behavior in insects. So that if they're conscious at all, I think it's very plausible that they have states. It's at least as plausible to have states like pain as that they have states like visual experience. So in that specific case, it may well be that the worry doesn't come up. But if we imagine some creature we discover with, uh, with consciousness but not suffering, I guess I'd be inclined to think that, yeah, this probably will mean we should take their moral status seriously if give it relatively little weight. I feel like imagining these other beings as the Vulcans potentially supports my debunking explanation for the intuition that that uh, killing Vulcans is bad or my alternative explanation for why we feel that way. So if you imagine kind of a computer that we create that has perceptive consciousness, so it has like a camera and it can like see things and hear things, but it doesn't feel anything positive or negative or like perceives things but has no effective states and maybe like doesn't do anything. So it's just like a passive computer that sits there perceiving things. It seems like in that case, I lose the intuition that it's like bad to turn it off. And it seems like maybe that's because it's like it no longer has this agent quality where I feel like I need to interact with it and cooperate with it in the way that I do like beings that have preferences and, and do things. Yeah. So this is, what I'm picturing here is a computer that has mere sensory consciousness, maybe has states of visual experience, but no, no cognition, no action, no affect. I mean, I guess I, I share your intuition to some extent there, at least that the, uh, the moral status would be relatively minimal. And that I think goes along with the idea that sensory consciousness may be a relatively, may bring along with it only a relatively minimal moral status and things like cognition, the consciousness associated with thinking, reasoning, reflection, action, as well as affect may well convey much more serious moral status. So I guess I'd be inclined to 
accommodate the situation that way. I'd also be a little bit inclined to, yeah, I'm not sure I'd, I'd want to go all the way to saying no moral status. Interesting questions about whether it's okay to, yeah, turning such a system off, destroying such a system, and so on. I don't have better intuitions about this. I guess my intuition is it would probably be fine to turn it off. Well, you could always turn it back on again. Turn it off for once and for all. Yeah, I mean, around here, the intuitions are very messy, but... Uh... Okay, so, so we'll add something else here, Dev. So the machine does reasoning. So it reasons about what people will do and makes predictions about like what actions people are going to take or what they're going to say, but feels nothing about it. So it's like, it's doing analysis now and like, but I still just feel it's like, I mean, we have like, you know, AlphaGo tries to figure out the best Go move and like tries to predict its opponent's move. And that, that doesn't seem to me in itself like it would give something uh, like, yeah, being moral status. Well, I guess I'd need to know more about its actual conscious states at this point, saying that it's doing reasoning and so on. Yeah, we might be imagining all that going on completely unconsciously, which is what we typically do when we imagine beings like AlphaGo. But if it actually turns out that, you know, more sophisticated versions of AlphaGo are actually undergoing complex, cognitive, conscious experiences of thinking and reflecting and deciding and acting, then my intuition that they don't matter morally starts to weaken a lot. It may well be that having, for example, the sense of having projects and reflecting on one's own existence and so on, all these things also matter a lot to morality. So it may be that you're imagining the being lacking cognitive states like that. But again, I, I, I certainly don't have the sense that it's only affect that you could add that would suddenly put it in the realm of serious moral status. I guess I'm, I'm skeptical of this whole methodology, I guess, in, in philosophy of just like probing intuitions like this, because I feel like they're often just so polluted by like other considerations and your intuitions are like all of these hybrids and then it's like actually very difficult to tease apart. I, I do agree. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to take much I've said here too seriously as a positive philosophical view. But I would say on the other hand that I think many people in this domain are strongly committed to the, to the opposite view, to the very specific view that only effective consciousness conveys status. I think they should be very skeptical of that view, which is itself based on intuitions, which I think are, are highly arguable. So if someone comes out of this agnostic, then good. But I think we ought to be open to a much broader range of views here. One thing that feels like it's influencing the way that I'm thinking about this is that, you know, even if I thought that some being had moral status that didn't have any effective states, I wouldn't really know how to respect that moral status. Like I wouldn't know like how to avoid harming it or like it's not even like super, it's just not clear what it would, what implications it would have for ethics, even if I was convinced that it had moral status. Yeah, that's fair. Sometimes, you know, we can ask it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so on, beings that have, uh, have language and certain kinds of sophisticated behavior, but that's now then going to turn on things like preferences. This connection to affect is, is, is unclear. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I don't have anything like a uh, positive moral theory of how one ought to act towards such beings. I just have the intuition that we're morally required to think about it and somehow to respect their consciousness. But yeah, exactly what that consists in is a great question. Okay, great. I want to move on to talking about some ethical implications of like particular views of consciousness. So we've been talking about a lot of ethical implications that might come up on like many different views, but it seems like just sort of which view we like put the most credence in might have big ethical implications. So this seems especially true with the two like you might call them most extreme views of consciousness, panpsychism, the view that, you know, everything is conscious or everything has consciousness in some sense, and illusionism, the view that nothing does. So like on the face of it, it seems like if illusionism is true, that means we wouldn't have any reason to reduce suffering because suffering itself is an illusion as a conscious state. So maybe some people would say, well, 
suffering really isn't a conscious state if illusionism is true. Or maybe some people would say, yep, that's it. Yeah, it turns out we have no reason to reduce suffering if illusionism is true. Do you have a view on this, what the implications of a view like illusionism would be? No, it's a, it's a great question. I do think it's pretty clear that something has to give. I mean, you better not hold, number one, that consciousness is required for moral status. Two, that consciousness is entirely an illusion. And the three, some beings have moral status. That's an inconsistent triad, as we say in philosophy. You can't have all three of those. I'm myself inclined to reject illusionism, but let's make all this conditional on illusionism. Then where should you go? An extreme view would be then to say, okay, so nothing does have moral status. Suffering, pleasure, all conscious states are an illusion. We think we have moral status, but only because we think we're conscious that moral status is an illusion too. People sometimes read up, people in the Buddhist tradition are saying things, at least in this vicinity, that the self is an illusion, suffering is an illusion. We ought to reconfigure our whole morality in light of that. I'm not an expert, though, on that tradition. I guess I think the view that some beings have moral status is very hard to give up on. Maybe one would end up going in more of an anti-realist direction, depending on yeah, if you thought that, for example, it wasn't consciousness that mattered because consciousness was somehow the best candidate for an objective source of value. I'm, I, I think it's very hard to give up on the thought that some beings have moral status and others don't because you know life basically ends up collapsing. So I'd be inclined to think the illusionist should then reconfigure their view that consciousness is required for moral status. They could say that's a false. Insofar as we have illusions about consciousness, we should say, well, that's another illusion. That's another false intuition that comes along with the illusion of consciousness. Yeah, I guess that does seem like the way they might want to go. They'd say like, well, the thing that you call suffering is still bad. I agree. That's bad as an illusionist. It's just that I don't think it's conscious. Do they then like reconceive it as like having preferences thwarted or something like that? And maybe preferences don't require consciousness per se. Yeah, there's a few different ways you could go here. One is to say that what actually matters is the illusion of consciousness or the illusion of suffering. So if you have the illusion of consciousness or the illusion of suffering, that gives you that certain kind of moral status that we think goes along with consciousness or suffering. I find that view rather odd. Because you can tell from my laughter, that does sound quite funny. <laughs> well, it's just a diff- it, could, it could just be correlated with being the kind yeah. of being that has... Yeah, it could be. You could say that there's... I mean, we do believe there's such a thing as unconscious suffering, and there appear to be valences in unconscious processing that people roughly understand by their effects on action and so on. And you could say that those things carry moral status. And I think that's, you know, that's a very natural thing, I think, for an illusionist to do. Of course, the question is going to be, why should those things which have those effects on action, why should they carry non-derivative moral status? And it's not entirely clear. And yeah, and the third way to go would be to some kind of preference satisfaction view, where what matters is the satisfaction of your preferences. And when you're suffering, you're in states that you that you don't want to be in, or something like that. And maybe that's the most natural way to go, even if there are questions about yeah, the foundations of the preference satisfaction view, that's probably the simplest view to take. Your philosopher, Francois Camera, has been writing about this. He's an illusionist. He's strongly inclined towards the intuition that consciousness grounds value. He's been thinking about our, uh, what our options should be in response to that. I do think this is a, insofar as it's true that, for example, many people in the effective altruism community are inclined towards some kind of illusionism about consciousness. I do think this is a question you have to think very seriously about. I remember Luke Mulhauser said he had precisely this combination of intuitions. Consciousness matters for moral status and consciousness 
is an illusion and some things have moral status. So yeah, something has to give. There's, there's something very funny to me about the combination of views that like consciousness is what would create morality, but consciousness doesn't exist. It's like, we're going to like privilege or like place great value on this like concept that you're going to argue is incoherent and doesn't exist and presumably couldn't exist and say, but this thing that is like, doesn't make any sense. That is what morality is. It's like, you're just kind of saying morality also doesn't make sense. I would think. You could use this to motivate an error theory about morality. Yeah, in fact, morality is a giant fiction and and nothing has it. And if there was the special property of consciousness, then there would be morality, but there's not. So maybe the, maybe at least there's no capital M morality. Maybe what we're left is, is small m morality. Capital M morality would have been somehow objectively grounded. Small m morality is not. It's merely grounded, say, in our preferences, but that's the best we have. I'm not unsympathetic with, uh, I think a view like that could probably be made be made coherent. Do you know any illusionists who've gone full error theory or like full nihilist just been like, yeah, if you tortured me, it wouldn't be bad. It would just be a confusion on my part to think that that was bad. I don't think I've encountered anyone with, with that view, but it's actually very, there are very few people who are on the record embracing strong illusionism. There's no such thing as conscious experience. Most illusionists for one reason or another end up backing off, back off making that claim because it seems so, so crazy. It's only a I can only think of probably two or three or four illusionists of him. The only one I know who's addressed the issues about morality is Francois Camera, who's tried to reconfigure morality in light of. This sounds juicy. Why, why do they? Why do they kind of back out at the last minute? I think it's because it sounds like a crazy view. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's the, you know seems like you're denying the uh, the manifest. Dan Dennett, back in the 1980s, used to write articles with titles like "On the Absence of Phenomenology." Finding qualia, where there's no, there actually is no phenomenology at all. There's actually nothing it's like in this sense to be us. And, you know, people looked at him funny. They gave him what David Lewis called the incredulous stare. And uh, I think he just sort of stuck to his guns and said, nope, we think we have these states and we don't have these states. But he ended up kind of backing off and softening and saying, of course we're conscious. We just don't have those special, high grade, theoretical, phenomenal properties that philosophers one about. And it turns out the view is more palatable that way. It ends up, I end up calling this sort of weak illusionism. You're, we believe our consciousness has some properties that it doesn't have. I just think that view is in the end too wishy-washy to really help solve the problem of consciousness. But I do think it's sociologically much more acceptable. And if you say, actually, no one is conscious and no one is really feeling pain, people just, yeah, people just look at you funny. And it's, it's not a view that gets a lot of purchase in the marketplace of ideas. Although I do hope that in that, I mean, I'm very glad that illusionism was just the last couple of years being taken much more seriously than it had been taken before. And I do hope this leads to this strong version of illusionism actually getting a fair run for its money, including people coming out and saying the, the crazy sounding thing and saying, here's how we ought to revise our theory of the world in response. Yeah. I'm in this classic tricky situation where illusionism seems crazy to me. And then like lots of the smartest people I know kind of buy into it in one way or another. It's like some of my best friends are, are illusionists. <laughs> I'm like, well, what do I, how do I reconcile? Okay, well, tell them they've got to actually, they owe it to the world to actually develop their, their views and publish them and put them on the web. And it's, it's not helpful to actually, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen these views developed in a sophisticated way, but if they're effective altruists and illusionists, they really owe it to the world to figure out where our theories of value stand in light of it. Otherwise, we could just be, this whole movement could be based on a whole bunch of very dodgy intuitions about suffering and pleasure and so on that are, based on an illusion. Yeah, I think to be honest, like the, the, the problem is with me that I haven't taken the time to understand. Well, at least that's what I've suspected that I just don't have either the, the intelligence or the expertise or the, or the time to really fully grasp what they're, what they're saying. But, but maybe you disagree. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think we'd, we'd actually need to see some... This is important enough that if, if they have this view and they think it's obvious, they ought to uh, write it down to publish it and let us evaluate it because 
this is this is at the foundation of, as far as I can tell, of everything that matters in morality. It seems like this is also an area where there's a lot of mere verbal disagreement about things. So people using the word consciousness differently, but also just talking past each other about what they're saying doesn't exist. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the illusionists you know do believe in the thing you believe in. It's just that you're using different words to talk about them. When you put it in terms of, say, feeling pain, it's like, yeah, are they prepared to say no one ever feels pain? Well, that's a, yeah, that's a hard thing to say. Although that's also, <laughs> that's also such, I mean, it seems like illusionists would say, yeah, of course, feeling pain. Yeah, people feel pain, but that's just a neurobiological state that carries with it no phenomenology or whatever. I think the moment you've got feeling pain, like the experience of feeling pain, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about, you can say people undergo pain where that doesn't carry any implications of conscious experience and it leads to it states that brought on by damage and lead, lead to aversive responses. They can say that happens. Sure, people undergo pain. But I say, no, that's, I'm just talking about the feeling, the feeling of pain, the thing which seems introspectively obvious that it exists. I think that they should deny and be very clear that they're denying. But I think very few people are really willing to be very clear that they're denying that. You can understand the position in, in practice maybe as like they think that illusionism seems likely, but they're not nearly confident enough to just like dismiss the suffering or pain of others. So it might be one way of reconciling the actual behavior with like their stated analytical yeah. views. And kind of, yeah, to bring it back to what Arden was asking, I mean, if, if Pan, so just, okay, we talked about, I guess, like if illusionism is true, do we then lose morality? Maybe, maybe not. If panpsychism is true, then like it seems like now our like responsible, well, we've just got, we've got a lot, of, a lot of research to do to figure out how to act on that and figure out like what are the, how can we benefit or harm like all of these other things that might have some degree of consciousness? Do you have any views on the practicalities of that? Yeah, not well, uh, not well developed ones. I mean, you can certainly imagine ways it could go that would have extreme consequences. Just that we turned out to be such robust panpsychists that we thought that every elementary particle has a conscious life like ours, as rich and its sensory and cognitive and affective consciousness as a human consciousness, then boy, somehow we'd have to reconfigure, I think we'd be somehow morally required. It looks like we'd be morally required to reconfigure our practices greatly. I don't know exactly what we could do in the question, but turn on how you can affect particles, consciousness, and who's to say, maybe it would be enormously difficult, but I think from some moral standpoint, it would be required. Now, the versions of panpsychism that people currently entertain are not as robust as that. Nobody thinks that particles are thinking and reflecting and so on. Mostly people think they have very, very simple states of consciousness, which are somehow maybe analogous to very simple states of perceptual consciousness. But it is possible that they be, for example, analogous to states of affective consciousness. I've heard people entertain the idea that, you know, for example, things like forces of attraction and forces of repulsion might correspond to something valence at the level of consciousness. So just say it turns out the particles have some very simple valence in their consciousness. Should this be taken into account morally. Around here is where I get the intuitions. I mean, I think one can go different directions, but around here is where I strongly get the intuitions that different types of consciousness may matter morally to a very different extent. So this very simple type of consciousness may only have the most minimal moral weight. The kind we have with cognition and reflection may carry an enormously different degree of moral weight. You know, maybe it carries even infinite, infinitely more moral weight. So it could turn out that you know, even worrying about any finite number of particles will never add up to worrying about the morality of a, of a single human being. So I don't have any settled views here, but I guess I think there are, in principle, versions of panpsychism that would very clearly press a worry on us. The kinds of panpsychism that people are now inclined to believe in could, but maybe don't. And around here, maybe there's also some moral conservatism that plays a role. 
thinking so it's just kind of baseline that particles humans matter and particles don't matter and let's rejig our moral system to uh, take that into account and whether that's actually an okay methodology here is is itself a very deep question some philosophers i think are very moved to somehow respect common sense about morality here but insofar as we're bringing in views about the mind that don't respect common sense what should we revise it seems worth noting that if you had a view where it's not just consciousness, but some feature of consciousness, maybe it's effective states, maybe it's ability to reason, maybe it's having your preferences satisfied, as long as that goes along with consciousness that grounds moral status, that then you wouldn't have to worry about this implication because presumably particles don't have preferences or, or any of these other more sophisticated things. Although it's, I guess you said you thought they could have effective states. Yeah, I mean... I don't, I've got no idea what, uh, I, I don't want yeah. to call any <laughs> positive theory of, uh, of particle <laughs> phenomenology, but, you know, but insofar as their states are in any way analogous to ours, I mean, something like affect may be one of the more plausible candidates for the kinds of consciousness we have to be present. I mean, you might think there are valences and there are potential valences. If you think there are valences associated with action, then maybe you could find those, those valences at the bottom level. But you're right that even if they did have affect, or a primitive version of affect, this wouldn't necessarily involve preferences, where we think of preferences as something more cognitive, involving something at the level of something more like thinking. I mean, maybe they could be primitive goals, and particles could be said to pursue primitive goals. But yeah, but around this point, I think putting things in terms of preferences may well be one way to exclude particles. I'd, if I did do things with particles, I'd still be inclined to put things in terms of conscious preferences and conscious goals somehow carrying the most moral weight so that a zombie who had some non-conscious analog of preferences wouldn't get the, get the same moral status. So it would still be saying that consciousness matters, but this would be a version of the view where, yeah, it's kinds of consciousness that matters and consciousness at the level of judgments and preferences carries at least enormously more weight than consciousness at the level of the mere sensations and primitive affects. I feel like one way to make panpsychism sound less crazy is to say that kind of yeah atoms or something have consciousness, but like that doesn't include affect or valence or preferences or anything like that. And the way to benefit and the consciousness of an atom is to turn it into a person that lives a good life. And the way to harm it is to turn it into a person or some other agent that like has a bad life. Does that? I'm, am, am I going too far trying to? I don't try, like this, to save the, the, view? the second part. I, I like the first part makes sense to me, but the second okay. part seems like you'd be double counting yeah. the. Uh, you know, it's like oh, it's good for the. Adam and it's good for oh. me for for me to have a good day. What I'm saying is like, but it's the one and the same thing because then it's like it's to it's to change the form of the consciousness into like what is a person person's consciousness, right? We've got some deep questions about personal identity here, or possibly atomic identity here. Yeah. If you <laughs> atom into a person, is it still the same being, or have you just destroyed the atom and created a, an entirely new being? So this is kind of a methodological question, but you know we're we're entertaining some pretty out there ethical implications. I'm wondering how you feel about reasoning from ethical premises to conclusions about the mind. So like if, if I say, well, OK, I have these reasons for thinking that a certain version of panpsychism is true that implies that like I have to do all of these things to like think about how I can benefit every everything in the universe, because it turns out everything is conscious. That's absurd. So that version of panpsychism can't be true, even if there are some arguments that support it from the philosophy of mind. Do you think that kind of, is that good reasoning in your book or would you prefer go the other direction? I'm inclined to be suspicious of reasoning like that. And my natural instincts are to go in the other direction, but you know, I don't want to completely dismiss it out of hand. I mentioned before a certain kind of moral conservatism, if you know, a view has a consequence that Nothing has any 
moral status, then I'm inclined to think you've probably done something wrong. Maybe what you should have done instead was to reconfigure your view of moral status, where it's somehow more lightweight, more subjective. But if you had that view, then you've probably done something wrong. So probably there can be probably there can be moral reductio ad absurdum. Whether panpsychism would be one, I'm not sure. Again, my first inclination would always be to say, well, it looks like panpsychism has these vast moral consequences. Well, one part of me wants to, you know, the radical anti-common sense philosopher wants to say, yeah, maybe we do have these massive obligations that we can never live up to. I mean, there is a part of me that thinks this is just a moral situation in general. We have enormous moral obligations that there's, there's just no question that we'll ever be able to we'll ever be able to live up to. And maybe what goes on with panpsychism is just somehow a, already a, an extension of a situation one finds with non-human animals in general, or even like, you know, intelligence throughout the world and throughout the universe. I mean, it wouldn't entirely surprise me if that turned out to be uh, the resolution here. But of course, the other resolution is to look at reconfiguring the connection between those relevant empirical facts and the moral facts. So you, you thought you thought that consciousness required any consciousness conveys moral status that places demands on our action. And now we're going to say, OK, only certain types of consciousness can carry the kind of moral status that places demands on our action. So I'm a little bit more inclined to take that move, but I do Maybe that does that does rest on a certain kind of moral conservatism, though, that I'm not certain that's correct. If everyone's inclined to be morally anti-realist and subjectivist, maybe there's a bit more room for uh, for that kind of move here. If it's ultimately a matter of somehow our attitudes. This, this reminds me almost exactly of a conversation I had where I pointed out to someone that there's actually like more neurons in all of the ants in the world than there are in in humans, and they were like they felt confident that they knew the conclusion that all of the humans in the world mattered more than all of the ants in the world. And so they're going to use that then as a premise to like reason that either like ants aren't conscious or maybe I'm wrong about the empirical fact about how many neurons there are. And this seems just completely ass about to me. It's like, there's no way that you could know whether humans, all of the humans matter more than all the ants before, like, you know, these other things. It's like, cause that's downstream of it. So it's like reasoning from like something that is like causally or like factually like you know, coming after these previous things, and then reasoning back to the premises just seems like uh, very questionable. In this case, it sounds like there's a rather flat-footed premise about the connection between number of neurons and moral status being proportional to the number of neurons. And okay, in this case, that seems pretty clearly like the one to reject. So that's one thing that you could reject, but then they'll be like, "Well, I have to reject that because I know that it's like the humans have to matter more." And I'm like, "No, that's like bad reasoning. You shouldn't be doing that. Like, maybe maybe it is true that the neurons is like not at all correlated with consciousness or the valence or whatever, but." Uh, you should think of that for a different reason. Yeah, I do think there are things we could discover about ants that would make it the case that somehow they mattered more. Like I say, if it turns out every ant has a, you know, a Cartesian ego and a sophisticated thinking, reasoning being in the same way that, what is it, the, the mice were supposed to be in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? <laughs> yeah. Well, if that's the case, then yeah, they, uh, they matter more. So I don't think it could be totally out of balance to say that ants matter more. But of course, uh, yeah, the less consciousness we ascribe to them, the more room there is for uh, debating about precisely what kinds of consciousness or what, which features are relevant to moral status. Let's return to virtual reality for a minute. So if we make virtual worlds, which seems, you know, at least possible, then we might want to live in them someday by uploading ourselves into them. So some people have the concern that if you uploaded your mind, somehow the resulting mind, even if it could think and everything, wouldn't be conscious. What do you say to that worry? I'm inclined to think an uploaded mind at least can be conscious. There are really two issues that come up when you think about uploading your mind into a computer. One is, will the result of this be conscious? And the second one is, will it be me? 
maybe it'll be conscious, but it won't be, uh, it won't be me. It'll be like creating a twin of me. But let's, I think in a way, the second is the most worrying prospect. But let's just stay with the first one for now. Will it be conscious? I mean, I mean, some people think that no, say, silicon-based computational system could be conscious because, say, biology is required. I'm inclined to reject views like that. And there's nothing special about the biology here. And one way to, to think about that is to think about cases of gradual uploading. You replace your, uh, your neurons one at a time by silicon chips that play the same role. I think cases like this make it particularly hard to say that if you say that the system at the other end is not conscious, then you have to say that consciousness either gradually fades out or during this process, or it suddenly disappears during this process. And I think it's at least difficult to maintain either of those lines. You could take the line that maybe silicon will never even be able to simulate biological neurons very well, even in terms of its effects. Maybe there's some special dynamic properties that biology has that silicon could never have. As far as I, I, mean, I think that would be very surprising because it looks like all the laws of physics we know about right now are computational. Roger Penrose has entertained the idea that's false. But if we assume that physics is computational, that one can in principle simulate the action of a physical system, then one ought to at least be able to create one of these gradual uploading processes. And then someone who denies that the system at the other end could be conscious is going to have to say either it fades out in a really weird way during this process. You go through half consciousness, quarter consciousness, while your behavior stays the same, or that it suddenly disappears at some point. You replace the magic neuron and it disappears. So those are my arguments. Those are arguments I gave well, years ago now for why I think a silicon duplicate device can be conscious in principle. And once you do that, then it looks like uploading is okay, at least where the consciousness issue is concerned. I think I see why the sudden disappearance of consciousness in that scenario seems kind of implausible. It's like, well, what's so special about that magic neuron? But I don't immediately see why the gradual fade out of consciousness isn't a reasonable possibility to entertain there. So what do you, how are you thinking the gradual fade out would go? Um, we'd, first, we'd lose visual consciousness, then we'd lose auditory consciousness? Or? I, I don't know, obviously, exactly how it would go. But if we've already... If we assume that consciousness can come in degrees, then why can't it disappear in degrees? Yeah, I guess I'm thinking that let's put some crude measure on a state of consciousness, like the number of bits involved in your state of consciousness. One way of imagining it fading is somehow lowering in intensity, and then suddenly the intensity goes to zero and it all disappears. That, to me, sounds like a version of sudden disappearance because the bits would still go from you know, a million bits to zero bits all at once strange in the way that sudden disappearance is strange. So maybe looking more continuous, then somehow the number of bits in your consciousness has to gradually decrease. You go from a million bits to 100,000 to 10,000 to whatever. And how would this work? I mean, maybe my visual field would gradually lose distinctions, would gradually become more coarse grained. Maybe bits of it would disappear. Maybe um, one modality would go and then another modality. But anyway, you're going to have these weird intermediate states where you say the system is conscious, is saying it is fully conscious of all these things because its behavior is the same. I am visually conscious in full detail. I'm auditorily conscious. And in fact, their conscious state is going to be a very, very pale reflection of the conscious state they're talking about with very few say, bits of consciousness. That situation is the one that strikes me as especially strange. A conscious being that appears to be fully rational and believes it's in this fully conscious state. In fact, it's in a very, very limited conscious state. If you're an illusionist, you might think this kind of thing happens to you all the time. So I think this is totally wrong, but it seems you could have a view where like 
the brain, so there's like information processing going on in the transmission between the neurons and that's what's caused generating the behavior. But then there's like mm -hmm. some other secret source that's happening in the brain that we don't understand and that we would not then replicate on the silicon chips. So as you go replacing like each neuron and each of the synapse with like the machine version of it, the information processing continues as before and the behavior remains the same, but like you've lost some, the part that was generating the consciousness, you haven't engineered that into the, into the computer components. And so just gradually you like the consciousness disappears. I can suddenly, you know, I can imagine this is, this is at least conceivable, but then what are you going to say about the intermediate cases? Will there be cases where there will have to be cases where the being is, is conscious and is massively wrong about its own, about its own consciousness. Is that what you're, it says, you know, having experiences of bright red and green and orange right now. And in fact, it's having a uniform gray visual field or Thing like that seems possible, right? I guess I also don't find it as implausible as you seem to, Dave, that we could be wrong about our conscious experience or how much conscious experience we're having in this gradual uploading example. That's fair. And there certainly are many cases where people are very wrong about their own conscious experiences. So certainly there are all kinds of pathologies where people, you know, there's blindness denial where people say they're having all kinds of visual experiences when it appears that they're they're blind, they're not having them. So maybe it could be like this. I mean, this is strange because functionally the system doesn't seem to have any pathologies. Anyway, I do allow that this is conceivable. And I can't, I certainly can't prove that it couldn't happen. The more open you are to beings being very, very wrong about their consciousness, maybe you'll be more open to this case. Here's one thing I'll say at the very least, if this actually happens and we go through it and our behavior is the same throughout, then we have beings whose, whose heads are, you know, First a quarter silicon, then a half silicon, half silicon, and so on. They say, everything is fine. Everything is fine. My conscious experience is exactly the way it was. They're telling us this. They're, they're talking to us. We, they update every week with a, few, with a bit more, <laughs> more silicon, and we, we keep talking to them. We are going to be completely convinced that, uh, very nearly completely convinced that they are, they are conscious threats. It's going to become impossible to deny it. So at least as a matter of sociology, I think this view is likely to become the obvious seeming view. So I think it's very likely that if we manage to yeah, replicate most of the information processing that's going on in the brain, then we'll be like, then we'll be conscious. But then the other objection that people make is like, would it, would it be me? I have the very strong view that it would be me, at least if it was, if the person was similar enough. Uh, but do you want to comment on this issue of continuance of personal identity? Well, I'm very, I find personal identity very confusing. I don't have settled views about the matter, but I guess I'm inclined to think again, the safest case is gradual uploading. If you gradually replace my neurons by silicon chips, just, you know, 1% of the brain per week, I go in every Saturday and get a new, another 1% changed over, then I'm inclined to think at, at every step, I'm going to be the same person. And by the end of it, I'll still be the same person. Somehow I'm there, my consciousness is there throughout. Now, the hard, the hard case by comparison, the hardest case is the case where you create a duplicate of me and the original is still around. Then I think many of us are very, very tempted to say that, well, the original is you, and the new one is a mere copy of you. So if you don't want to say that, then you've got to say complicated things like they're both me, but then are they the same as each other? Or they are both like descendants of me? They're both you. Just to... <laughs> are they each other? I mean, I'm, they are I'm in gonna, different spatial locations. I've got to get myself into hot water here with like two people who know much more about this philosophical issue than I do. So on your view, you say that, okay, there's the original one that is Dave. He's originally biological, so he's bio-Dave, but he's got this descendant who is bio-Dave. And he's got this other descendant who is DigiDave. So you say Dave is the same person as BioDave, the one that survives biologically. And Dave is also the same person as DigiDave, the one who survives digitally. Now, 
if from A equals B and A equals C, it usually follows that B equals C. So now you have to say that BioDave and DigiDave are also the same person, but it looks like these are two totally different people. They're now existing. They're both going in different directions. They're in different places. They may have entirely different mental lives after a while. Do you want to say they're the same person? So I'm considering the question pretty differently as a question about like my preferences or like our preferences about what we care about in terms of like what agents do we regard as ourselves and do we regard as caring about as much as like our future selves? And I'm like, well, in the case where you duplicate me, then I care equally about both of the descendant creatures. So I agree, like there's some sense in which like two different atoms are two different atoms, like even if they have like, even if they have all the same properties or something like that, I'm not super up on muriology, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, philosophy of, of identity, but it seems to me like I just don't care about the philosophy there from a like, what would I actually do point of view to me like when I, the more i've thought about what are the properties that make me regard something as myself and to like care about it in the way that i do like my future self it's just a similarity relationship around here there's a question is it what we do care about or is it what we should care about if it's a matter of what we do care about then i think well we're going to have to do some experimental philosophy and some sociology but it may well be as a matter of fact people care a whole lot more about their you know, the descendant in their biological body than in their in the digital bodies. So things are not going to go your way. Maybe you can say that's wrong and, and it's a matter of what you should care about, but then what grounds these facts about what you should care about? But then on the should, I'm just going to say, well, it doesn't matter whether it's you or not. You should just like regard all beings, whether they are you or not, as having like equal importance. Or like it, it just simply it certainly has nothing oh, to do with on. that. But now, we're, now we're just getting rid of self-interest yeah. entirely. Yeah, sure, from the point of view of morality, everyone gets equal weight. But I take it- You said should. There is, there, there is, there is such, a, such a thing as self-interest and what's, self-interestedly rational action. Maybe you, and I think, I take it those are the ones that seem to be tied to personal identity. And there's a should of, yeah, there's a should of self-concern. Do you, you reject all such facts? There being any facts about self-interest and what you should do? Well, I just think that they are just part of morality. Of like, once you start saying should, then there's only one should and it's like, an, uh, like about moral facts. And like, well, we can talk about this other domain of like, what if you thought about it more and reflected on it more Then like, what would you want? And like- Yeah, okay, great. But now all facts about personal identity are going down the drain because I shouldn't care about my future self anymore than I should care about yours or, or Arden's or anybody else's. Now we've just lost the whole domain of personal identity. Well, there, there sure. well I'm inclined views... to do that. So. Okay, oh, I see. We, okay, so we should all upload because it's the moral thing to do and self-interest doesn't enter into it. Yeah, good luck selling that one to the, <laughs> the general population. Look, I didn't, I was, I'm not going into marketing, right? But You could think that even from a moral perspective, personal identity matters if you think that you know it's better to continue existing yourself than to like create a new being in your place. In which case, maybe you shouldn't upload and kill the biological being, whereas otherwise it's fine. This is a certain force of conservatism, right? It's like, yeah, there's a certain value to beings that have history and so on. And or maybe termination of lives is bad, even when qualitatively identical ones come into existence. Now we're getting into population ethics, which I think is a, maybe a, too big of a can of worms. Yeah. Do, do you worry that you're just like a different person at every instant? I think I could be, yeah. I take that view seriously or... And then, and then I'm like, who cares? <laughs> and well, that's, that's a reasonable view. And that's the view which Derek Parfitt, who wrote the kind of the classic treatment of personal identity issues in his book, Reasons and Persons, ends up having a view which is not that far away from that. He says, we imagine there are these deep facts of continuity over time that make us the same person over time, deep further facts, like as if there was a Cartesian ego running through our lives. Ah, there's no such thing. Even our moment-to-moment -moment survival doesn't involve that. It just involves some causal and psychological relations. He says, and this might be viewed as a twist on the old Buddhist view. You know, there's, I think there's a Buddhist view where at every moment, a new self comes into existence insofar as there are selves at all. And yeah, as with many, many domains of philosophy, 
you may well end up with a view where capital P personal identity, or I don't know if it's capital I identity, doesn't actually exist. And there's merely lowercase I identity that does go on through time. So all we have is some deflationary thing. And once we have that deflationary thing, maybe it starts to seem more likely that we could stand in that relation to our uploaded descendants and maybe even to more than one being. So I guess that's actually the view I'm inclined to have, but I still find this very confusing and I can't reconcile all of my reflective intuitions on the matter. Yeah. So you've talked a bit, Dave, about how some people have the intuition that living in a virtual reality would, assuming we're conscious and there aren't any issues of identity that are screwing us up here, that it would still be in some sense less valuable than living in the quote unquote real world or the original world or something like that. My sense because of your virtual realism is that you're not going to be super sympathetic with that idea. But is there anything that feels persuasive to you? Are there any like reasons that you're sympathetic with for thinking that life in a virtual reality would somehow be a less good life? Yeah. So this resonates with the issues about whether uh, virtual reality is real or an illusion and so on. Insofar as you're inclined to think that any virtual reality somehow very deeply involves illusions, you might think there's going to be something worse about being in virtual reality. But if you've got a view like mine, where virtual realities involve entities that are real and need not involve illusions, then at least that reason for worrying about VR is gone. At this point, we needn't be thinking about anything so far out as uploading our consciousness into VR. We could just think about perfectly ordinary beings still with their biological brains, you know, putting on VR headsets and entering into VR for extended periods of time. And some people have the intuition this is going to somehow always be, you know, at best escapism or or something, not a way to live a real life. Maybe the classic version of this was put forward by Robert Nozick in his thought experiment of the experience machine in his book, Anarchy State and Utopia, where he says there are super duper neuroscientists who offer you the chance of plugging into an experience machine that's going to give you amazing experiences for the rest of your life. But, uh, you know, you can never come out. You know, that's all going to be amazing and wonderful and full of pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment. Would you do it? And Nozick says, no, we clearly wouldn't do it. And some people have taken this to be an argument against entering into VR at all. That uh, somehow it just doesn't have the value of a normal reality. Now, I think actually people's intuitions on the experience machine differ, but there is a, I feel a fairly solid intuition against getting into the experience machine. But I do think there may be some differences. The biggest, when I think about Nozick's case, the biggest reason for worrying about getting into the experience machine is that it's pre-programmed somehow. Everything that happens there is scripted. You're living out a script. You don't get to play any autonomous role really in determining what happens to you. It's really somehow a passive experience, even though it might feel active. Whereas VR is not like that. VR, you enter a virtual world. Um, it still involves real people interacting with each other. We're not in any sense living out a script, unless it's a very scripted video game. Um, just so we go into Second Life, then you know we still get to make choices and decide our actions, at least to the extent we do in the normal world. So um, I, don't, I think at least those issues about autonomy don't arise, which, which I think are the most serious issues for Nozick's experience machine don't arise for VR. Just to, on the differences between the experience machine and VR, the thing that always disturbed me most about the experience machine, or well, two things. One, you don't know you're in it, I think, in, on the canonical 
or the way that people usually imagine it. And, and you know, that feels bad because you're like, you, you're you can't like, reflect on you're deep massively form of fooled or something. Yeah. Whereas like in VR, like you could presumably know that you were in it. And also like, I think there's nobody else there with you really in the experience machine, usually on most versions. I and feel like um, that's the that seems really bad. The sense of betraying everyone else, you know, in normal life and just disappearing to like go off and play your computer. I was yeah. just thinking you don't have any true genuine relationships. And that, that oh. was what was bad. I see. Oh, because there's no other like actual people. In yeah. The, yeah. yeah. It seems like if everyone gets into the experience machine and then they're like all living this great life and in, inside the experience machine, it seems like quite a bit more appealing. Yeah. All your friends and family go in and um, in one version, I said, you know, your mother's not there. You're, there's a simulation of your mother, but it's like, hey, no, well, damn, I wanted it to be my mother. This is just a mirror simulation of my mother. Maybe it's a conscious simulation of your mother, but even so. Right. Well, I suppose, and then I suppose if it's really her, because the personal identity questions go the, yeah. the right way, then it's there's no difference. What there. if it's a simulated replication of exactly what your mother is doing at the time in a different world? Ah. Is that good enough? I think Nozick would claim to say, well, I really want interactions with my mother and not with a mere simulation of her. You know, if it's appropriately grounded in my mother by actually observing her and projecting her here, then maybe in that case, it's not even a simulation anymore. It's just a, you're basically, in some sense, interacting with your mother, and that would be okay. But if it merely is set up to be parallel, yeah, the questions about personal identity run deep. But anyway, for VR, you know, again, where it's just like people, the same people in the physical world enter the virtual world and they retain their personal identity, you can go in with your friends and your family if you choose to, or you can go somewhere else without them if you choose to. That seems to me, you know, much more analogous to a uh, ordinary physical reality. So, I mean, there is the worry about some people value interactions with nature, you know, with uh, Nozick says this, this would just be a totally artificial reality. You know, I live in New York, so I can't complain about artificial realities. Artificial realities are all right. If someone prefers the country or someone prefers na nature, then, you know, then good for them. I think that's a reasonable value for people to have, but it seems an optional value. So anyway, I'm inclined to think that basically VR can support roughly the same range of values as ordinary physical reality. And if we end up, for whatever reason, needing or wanting to spend an awful lot of our futures in virtual worlds, there's no obvious reason why that would be a, a much less valuable future. Or, you know, some people think it would be somehow a dystopia. I think it could be a dystopia in various ways. It could also be a utopia and it could, could have all, this, all the uh, kinds of value you might have in between. It seems like the, the experience machine intuition often flips if you, you know, do, do the reverse and get rid of kind of the status quo bias. So if you imagine that someone comes to you now and says, oh, actually, you've been an experience machine all along. And uh, I guess I know your life doesn't seem that great, but in fact, this was the best we could do for you within the simulation. And in fact, like the outside world is this like terrible hellscape that we like decided to send everyone into the into this experience machine to escape. Would you do you want to leave to like go out and like be alone to, with a bunch of people you don't know in the terrible outside world? They made a whole movie about this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he made a big mistake. I mean, I think that, isn't that the conclusion of the whole thing? That oh, maybe it was necessary for the world to continue, but I don't, it doesn't seem like Neo made the right call to leave. How did Neo know, by the way, that he was actually escaping the uh, the Matrix? It's like someone gives you a red pill, and it's suddenly followed by a massive yeah. adventure and a spaceship. <laughs> and so I'm saying, it's like the red pill has put me into the simulation. It hasn't taken me hasn't taken me out of the simulation. I think Neo was completely irrational. Maybe he's just taken a really good party drug or something like that. I feel like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I think you're right about the status quo bias. And uh, yeah, Felipe de Brigade, a philosopher, has done some experimental philosophy on this. Takes the case where you're initially in the experience machine and then saying, would you choose to exit the experience machine? And people are reluctant to do that. So maybe almost the extent they're reluctant to uh, enter it. So he diagnoses all this as, yeah, you want to be where you've been already. You want to have relationships. You want to be in that world. I polled my students in my Minds and Machines class 
just the other day about this. I was teaching experience machine last week. Arden will remember this well from from the the course a year ago. And yeah, they had roughly the same reaction. I mean, there were relatively few of them were willing to enter the experience machine, but almost as many were reluctant to exit it. I mean, there's a sense where you exit it, maybe there's some good things. You're somehow discovering more of the world, you know, the world around you, it's adventurous. It's like you started off in growing up in Australia and you had to discover, oh, there's a whole planet containing it, which I can explore. I haven't even been to like simulated Italy yet. So where do I need to go out and like to some fancy (laughs) other universe? (laughs) Well, you know, escaping the simulation is presumably a whole new level of, of value and exploration. For what it's worth, I would not go into the experience machine because, I mean, you know, I'm not sure about this or anything, but, you know, my sense is that there's a lot of valuable things that aren't experiences, but I would still be, I think, happy to live in virtual reality, you know, under the right circumstances. So I'm just saying those things, those intuitions don't have to like go together. Because you think the valuable things which are not experiences are things that, you know, you want to you want to happen, maybe have achievements and so yeah, on. Yeah, and it that, seems like you can do that in virtual reality and you can have friends in virtual reality and you can know things about your environment, even if it's a simulated environment in virtual reality. Yeah, I think that, that seems right to me. A lot of the important values, friends, achievements and so on, if VR is real and not an illusion and so on, I think, yeah, you can have those. Maybe some things, if you value nature, if you value living at level zero reality, then maybe you're moving a bit further away from those things. But those seem like... Less deep values, more optional, more like optional preferences to me. Has anyone tried coming up with like non-hedonist experience machines? So it's like, you know, you're going to this machine and your experiences won't be any better, but oh, by golly, your achievements will be incredible in the experience machine or your your relationships will flourish so much. I feel like this is like, you you sort of live this in, in like everyday life. Like whenever you decide to sacrifice- <laughs> well, some of us do. Well, I'm, sa- I'm just saying- <laughs> Whenever you decide to sacrifice pleasure or happiness for some other value, you're basically deciding to just try to increase that value without increasing pleasure. Well, of course, if you know that you've achieved the achievements, then then these things all get confounded because you might think there's an awful lot of pleasure or fulfillment in knowing this. And if you know in advance that you're going to have these achievements in the experience machine, then, well, there's something weird about that. To what extent is it really an achievement if, if you could have known in advance? Uh, but the same is, I think, true in the normal world. It's like, what if you're like the very best swimmer because you just like were born with these like extraordinary genes and you can totally foresee winning the Olympic gold medal because you're just way better than everyone else. I mean, I guess I don't care about achievements, so, <laughs> so this doesn't bother me, but it seems like this shouldn't bother someone who does. We're going to set up the world so you're going to be the best. Yeah, it's going to feel... But that's, ha- but that's what it is. That's what it's true for like the, the best swimmers now. You can always screw now. it up, you know? Okay, yeah, they have to like leave you the option. Swimmer, they to- have to get very lucky. If it was guaranteed, then I don't know. Well, you got very lucky to get this incredible offer, right. <laughs> the experience yeah. machine. I'm making a whole thing out of missing the point of all of these thought experiments. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Although I do think that, uh, you know, again, I do think this is actually of practical relevance. Uh, people are going to be spending, people spend or already spend a lot of time in virtual worlds, say, you know, 10 years ago, Second Life, people were spending, you know, 12 hours a day in there. And it's still out there, even though less, less people are doing it. Facebook is about to introduce their own social virtual world in the next uh, in the next few months that people are going to be able to do with virtual reality. And uh, yeah, it's still just uh, just beginning. But these questions are actually going to become serious questions for people. And yeah, if it's always going to be merely escapism, like, you know, kind of like going to the movies or watching TV, then it's always going to have very limited value. So I think it's kind of important to think through it. Whereas I'm inclined to think that life in VR can have the same kinds of values as life in ordinary physical reality, maybe not eventually much greater than this presumably ought to enter into into the calculations of people thinking about how we can construct the best world. 
So funny, some people worry, I guess, about, yeah, you set up the conditions in the VR world such that it's like too easy to like live a good life and you wouldn't actually be accomplishing anything. But I wonder, are they against policy changes by government that make it like easier to live a good life, to like find friends and like, get a job and have that? Really? They're like, <laughs> no, it's okay. Be like, yeah, no, we should like shut down the health system to give people like a greater sense of achievement, even just from surviving or like, I don't know. There's, there's something very odd to me about this. It's like, we, we want to make the world easier in this world, but then they're like, now we just like, we've made it too much too easy in this like VR world. But there are certain ways of making the world easier, which are somehow counterproductive, right? Yeah, well, we'll just give everyone pleasure. Yeah, you didn't like working. It's like, okay, we'll just give you a life of leasure and and uh, and pleasure. And then it turns out people are actually massively lacking certain forms of fulfillment and meaning. Well, we'll create the fulfillment machine that just like fills you up with fulfillment. Yeah. And would you really agree to a fulfillment machine in advance? Well, yeah. I mean, Maybe. Depends how good it is. I guess I'd have to try it. If it's a fulfillment machine that merely, you know, somehow tells me what course of action is most likely to produce fulfillment in me, given my psychology, then I think, yeah, that's all right. That's just a really good life coach. Okay, yeah. And, and you guys, 80,000 hours are basically in the business of helping people at least, uh, at least figure this out. So, yeah, if it turned out that you guys are like programmers in the experience machine, you may be actually making everyone's life dystopic without realizing it by, by reducing their autonomy and figuring out their own fulfillment. No, I don't think it's plausible. But it does suggest that certain ways of producing your expectations of high fulfillment are, are more, uh, at least intuitively, reasonable and good than others. I'm just thinking of it could be a good prank where you like go and find someone who's accomplishing amazing things. I don't know, go find like Angela Merkel and like tell her, oh, well, actually you've been in this experience machine or this fulfillment machine and accomplishment machine the whole time where we set up these conditions such that you would like thrive as the leader of Germany. It's like, do you want to like reset? <laughs> yeah, she'd be crestfallen probably, right? Mm. And that seems to suggest it's true. Well, yeah, maybe we shouldn't tell her then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I take this seriously occasionally. It's like, you know, I find myself thinking so much about consciousness and simulations and so on. This would just be a very, very likely kind of life for people to, you know, for someone to have set up for me in a simulation. Oh, you think it's more likely because yeah. you're thinking about simulations? Like they want to see what it's like when a human being thinks the trolls about of the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I, I ought to be giving pretty high credence. This ought to be making me update me. And, and if people actually take seriously my thoughts about consciousness yeah. <laughs> and being in a simulation, that's, oh, that's a definite sign that... <laughs> But yeah, that happens way more often to simulated beings than to non-simulated beings. So yeah, I'm, maybe I ought to be at 90%. All right. That has been fun, but we should probably move on to more material uh, urgent issues. So 10 years ago, you wrote this paper, this uh, fairly early paper about kind of a singularity that might be caused by uh, an intelligence explosion before this idea was uh, nearly as mainstream as it is these days. And indeed, it was kind of more often mocked as kind of a, a, a ridiculous idea than at least I, I perceive it to be today. I guess, yeah, the rough idea comes all, is like all the way back from I.J. Goode's ideas. I think back in the 50s or maybe it was 40s? 1965, I think. Oh, okay, 65. Maybe there were some antecedent pieces where he discussed a similar idea, but the classic statement was from his paper on the possibility of ultra-intelligent machines or a title like that, I think in 1965. So in, in that paper, you seem kind of sympathetic or open to that idea. I guess I'm curious to know, how did people react to that at the time? And have your views changed over the last 10 years? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it certainly wasn't, it wasn't my idea, but it's an idea that a number of people seem to have hit on independently. I remember thinking about this back in the 90s and having the sense that, ah, here's this amazing idea I just had. 
I'm actually, I've got a, uh, it was an interview I did back in 1995 with Australian TV. It was Late Line. You must remember Maxine McHugh. Yes, yes, very well. It was Maxine McHugh with Rod Brooks, Doug Lennart, and me talking about the future of AI. And I said, here's this cool idea about, <laughs> you know, if we create machines smarter than us, they'll create smarter machines still. And so on. I suspect I'd probably read about it somewhere, maybe Hans Moravec. But at this point, I didn't know any existing literature on this. I thought this is very, very important. And then in 1997, I remember I came across the word singularity for the first time. That was actually on Eliezer Yudkowsky's website. Maybe I was searching around on the internet for stuff. And here was this paper on staring into the singularity, where it seemed to me, okay, he had two ideas. One was the idea that more intelligent beings would be able to create more intelligent beings in turn. So you get an intelligence explosion. But second, the idea that this would all also happen faster and faster. You'd get a speed explosion and that Moore's law speeds double at regular intervals. But when the AIs are actually running on computers with increasing speeds, then the interval at which they double will get shorter and shorter. So anyway, you kind of expect there to be a point in the future where speed goes to infinity and intelligence goes to infinity, even without, at least in a world without physical limitations. Of course, physical limitations like the speed of light will impose some limitations. So I really like this idea that I thought this was an extremely interesting idea that maybe there'd be a point at which all of human history would somehow converge or go crazy. And even, even with physical limitations imposed, the idea of the, the quick takeoff from human-level intelligence to superintelligence always struck me as extremely interesting and important. And then, yeah, eventually, maybe 10 years later, I started hearing about the Singularity Institute and their conferences on connected themes. So I, yeah, by this point, this was a very, I think the idea was fairly widespread in things like the AI community and the rationalist community. But it struck me, it struck me that it needed a good philosophical treatment. So I tried to really take that, take that big idea, really, which goes back to I.J. Good's article and make it philosophically rigorous. So it's still, even though many people see this as gratuitously speculative science fiction, my own view is there's actually a fairly solid philosophical argument at a space put forward by Good that I tried to make for the conclusion that there will eventually be much greater than human level intelligence. And in particular, that first we'll get to human level intelligence, then we'll exceed human level intelligence. And then once we've exceeded human level intelligence, there will then be a rapid, a rapid process that leads to much greater than human level intelligence. And that's the spiral of once you've got a machine which is more intelligent than me, it'll be better than me at making machines. It'll, therefore, it'll be able to make a machine better than the best machine I can make. Therefore, it'll be, be better, able to make a machine better than itself, and so on. Repeat this process, spiral to superintelligence. So that's the basic idea of the intelligence explosion. And in this article, I mainly tried to turn that into a philosophically rigorous argument and to look at the ways in which if it didn't have, if, if there's not to be an intelligence explosion, it looks like there's only certain very limited ways it can fail. I'm still inclined to think it's a good argument. I'm still inclined to think that once we get to greater than human level intelligence, there's at least a very significant chance that will rapidly lead to much greater than human level intelligence. I don't know exactly what people's attitude is to this argument these days. One thing that's happened over the last 10 years or so is that people have tended to focus more on just the, the point where we get to greater than human level intelligence and greater than human level intelligence, which already poses many of the, uh, the difficult issues for thinking about society and value and so on. Once the machines are smarter than us, well, much smarter than us or smarter than us, even smarter than us is a very serious issue. So I think, for example, in Nick Bostrom's book, he doesn't put so much focus on the intelligence explosion, but just on the, the level of machines being smarter than us. So maybe that makes sense from a point of view of thinking about this from a practical perspective. 
among people that I know that the intelligence explosion idea has become less popular, I think, over the last 10 years, mostly just from people pointing out that there's lots of positive feedback loops in the world and there's like positive feedback loops that kind of, you know, feed on themselves a little bit. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be incredibly quick. It could be that, you know, the AI reprograms itself to make itself better at reprogramming AI, but it just takes a long time each time for it to like find the new better design. And in fact, while you do get this increase, it just happens over many years or possibly even decades. And so you just like knowing how like tight that feedback loop or how strong that feedback loop is, is just kind of an empirical question. And historically, we usually don't see feedback loops that are so strong that you get like the world completely revolutionized overnight. It's like there are just physical, physical constraints among like other things that tend to, to slow things down a bit. So I don't see any reason in principle to think that you couldn't get a very rapid intelligence explosion, but I also don't see any reason why it kind of has to be that way. It could just be that like, you know, as, as you program an AI to be like more and more intelligent, the, the problems that you need to surmount to make it even more intelligent, just get like more and more like harder, like very quickly such that like you get kind of stuck. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of different issues here. One is just how fast the feedback loop is. I mean, it's certainly true that I mean, some people here have talked about it happening overnight. I don't think much that's essential to the idea depends on it happening in a, in a few seconds or a few hours or a few days. In the article I wrote on this, I think I operationalized it in terms of something like a few decades, a few centuries, within a few centuries to get to greater than human level intelligence, just to be conservative, within a few decades after that to get to much greater than human level intelligence. Again, I think aiming to be conservative. And then I think the thought was, you know, there's not too hard to motivate something like within a few decades, just by reasoning about cases where the AIs we create that then put to work on the uh, the programming and a few stages of this happening in a fairly deliberate and cautious way could easily happen. It seems prima facie a few a few decades would be relatively conservative. Now then, but then there are other ways it could go wrong besides just thinking about the timescale. And I think maybe you mentioned one, which is the possibility of diminishing returns. Yeah, maybe that could be, maybe it could be like sort of the first increase of 10% of intelligence is easy and the next increase of 10% is harder and the next increase is, is harder still. Maybe there are limits in intelligence spaces or massive mountains to overcome. And I don't rule that out. I just think my own view is that would be surprising. I think it's more natural to think of intelligence space as containing many paths in many different directions, which are going to lead up, you know, lead up hills and so on. So in the article, I tried to make a kind of a back of the envelope case that it's unlikely that sort of you're going to come up against diminishing returns quickly. But yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a possibility. What I really tried to do in my analysis of this was look at the ways it could go wrong. If there's not going to be an intelligence explosion, why won't there be? One will be we kill ourselves. One will be we decide not to create AIs. Those are, you know, roughly reasons tied to our motivations. And then, but the other, you know, one possibility is diminishing returns. And the other one, which is interesting is maybe, I think the argument for intelligence explosion turns out, basically turns on there being some increases in an underlying capacity, which correlates with capacities we're interested in. Maybe those, those could fail. Anyway, I don't know, there's one, one or two of those you think are really worth pursuing. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think I'm most interested in the last one that you just mentioned. So I thought it was interesting that you said like, well, you could sort of decompose intelligence into like multiple different capacities. And the argument sort of requires that like the capacity that is self that builds on itself through generations is correlated or correlated with or produces increases in some other capacity that we like think is really important, like power or general reasoning ability or something like that. And I think you pointed out in that paper that like that isn't completely obvious. And I wonder if, yeah, I don't know, Rob, do you think some of the people that are more skeptical of the singularity idea now are thinking maybe there's 
a break between the thing that builds on itself through generations and the thing we really care about? Actually, I haven't heard much of a focus on that. So, yeah, I'm interested to know whether you have. I think the slogan I had in the paper was, I just looked it up, self-amplification plus correlation plus manifestation equals singularity. So you need a self-amplifying capacity that obeys what I call the proportionality thesis, that 10% increases in capacity will produce the capacity to create beings with a 10% increase in capacity over that and so on. That's what I call the proportionality thesis. That could be false if, for example, we came up against diminishing returns. Then we need correlation between that capacity and something we really care about. And then we need manifestation. It's not enough to have the capacity. People need to act on the capacity. You know, they might, we might choose not to create smarter AIs, even though we can. But I, but I think if you have those three things in place, self-amplifying capacities, correlations with things we care about, people acting on their capacities, then you will get explosion in the things that we care about. So that means to oppose this, I wanted to say, well, you could come out here and oppose one of the premises. It's not enough to say this is crazy science fiction. Okay, come out in favor of diminishing returns and against self-amplification, or come out in favor of there not being interesting correlations between our capacities, and maybe you could go wrong. And yeah, maybe you could say that you just get a mere explosion in, say, programming ability, but that won't correlate with anything else, like power to do important stuff in the world. That would be surprising because you'd think that as you get improved programming abilities, you'd get improved abilities to create beings that could do important stuff in the world, and therefore you'd get corresponding improvements in that capacity. But maybe there are other ways to, to oppose correlations here. It seems like in as much as you're just imagining that AI will get much better over many decades, in as much as like that's the vision, it just seems like it's kind of a continuation of what we have now, just with like another positive feedback loop, like the many other positive feedback loops that we have in the economy, where it's like, we get richer, that means we can have more scientists. It's like we get better information technology, which means we can have more scientists and like communicate more and then like build more things because we can, it's like all of these virtuous circles that we already have. And this this might be one that's like quite powerful or yeah, quite powerful at, at some point, a stage in the process, but it doesn't seem completely unique. I mean, maybe you're right. I mean, the argument already turns on, at least the way I put forward the argument, there's first an argument that we'll get to human level intelligence, roughly based on human cognitive processing being simulable. Then there's an, what I call an extension. That's an equivalence premise. Then there's an extension premise for why we should get to beyond human level intelligence. And that turns on just the regular kinds of technological amplification and improvement that we have already. And then there's a third premise, the explosion premise which is the one that with a rapid progress to an intelligence explosion. But it's true even without the third premise, what you've got in that second premise, the extension premise, already involves some kind of some kind of extension or probably a positive feedback loop. And it may well be that would be enough to get you to superintelligence eventually. I guess I just thought of this as an argument for it happening potentially much faster, you know, getting to superintelligence that stands to us as we stand, say, to a mouse within decades, as opposed to via the existing positive feedback loops as far as like, and existing extension processes didn't seem to me to motivate clearly anything much stronger than, I don't know, within centuries or within millennia. So that speed up may seem to be the interesting thing. But I mean, of course, that maybe there are reasons to think that there are ex other positive feedbacks, feedback loops that could, that could extend this in a similar way to a similarly short time frame. But if so, I'm curious to hear about them. Oh, well, I guess you could have, you know, you get advances uh, and so like AI becomes economically much more useful and so you get way more investment, way more people and capital move into the area or something like that. I mean, that's not doesn't sound like it's going to be completely game changing because we've seen that happen before. You know, you get like planes get better. So people like build more plane factories and then there's economies of scale. But I guess that's like one force that would be pushing it. 
One thing I just want to ask about is there's a lot of this focus on, and, and then it like then it reaches human level intelligence, and that's the kind of the point where we might expect some intelligence explosion. But it seems to me that like reaching human level intelligence is like neither necessary nor sufficient. Because so you can imagine we just like we have like very declining returns to more research in AI. So it's like we very gradually like increase like, the intelligence of our ML systems until they get about to human level, and then we turn to it and say, All right, we've gotten here now. How do we like improve you like a lot? And it kind of says, well, I'm just as baffled as you. I'm only as smart as you guys. So it's like, well, we're just going to need a lot of time and like, give me a lot of, give me a lot of compute. And then I'll like, uh, we'll, we'll like struggle forward gradually, just like before. And you could imagine alternatively that you've got an ML system that like, isn't very intelligent in a general sense, but we've like trained in this very narrow skill of programming AI and designing good chips and like figuring out how to like create this feedback loop. And, but it can't like do many other things. It's like terrible conversationalist, but it's like, but then you get like way before it reaches general human level intelligence, you get this like sudden takeoff. Do, do, do you that kind of vision? I certainly agree that you could, in principle, get an intelligence explosion that starts before the human level. Yeah, just say we create a system at dog level intelligence. It just has this amazing ability to one ability to augment itself. And yeah, this leads us from dog level intelligence to monkey level intelligence to chimp level intelligence to human level intelligence and on from there. I mean, maybe maybe that could happen. I mean, it's okay. I mean, we already see ML systems that are like, you know, less smart than me in a general sense, but you know, would kick my ass at Go. <laughs> so it's like just a question of like, can we train it in something that's sufficiently narrow without it knowing much more stuff? So I don't rule that out, but I think what this line of reasoning is missing is the fact that in the case of human level intelligence is actually a positive reason to believe that this self-amplifying capacity will be kicked off in a very specific way. And you're also right that it requires more than human level intelligence. It requires greater than human level intelligence. And it doesn't just require that. It requires greater than human level intelligence itself created by human level intelligence. And it's that combination that really gets the argument going. Because if you've got greater than human level intelligence that humans create, then we have reasons to believe they will be better at creating intelligence than humans are. It then follows that they'll be, be able to create intelligences more intelligent than the most intelligent beings we can create, therefore beings more intelligent than themselves. So that specific combination that gets us to the intelligence explosion. And it's true that if we got to monkeys creating beings more intelligent than monkeys and so on, maybe something similar could happen. It's just we don't have any particular reason to think that we're ever going to get to monkeys creating beings more intelligent than monkeys. But we do have pretty good reason to think that eventually humans will create beings more intelligent than humans. Once you have that combination, then you have exactly what you need for the intelligence explosion. So the reasoning goes, if you could like do that previous step where you went from like 10 created something that's 11, then like why wouldn't you have 11 to 12? Or why wouldn't that be roughly similarly difficult? Yeah, well, this goes along with what I call, again, the proportionality thesis. This involves capacities so that a certain increase in that capacity, say 10%, will long increase ability to create beings with a further 10% increase in that capacity. And you could deny that, but I think it's fairly plausible for some capacities in this vicinity. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fair enough. And the mere fact that maybe even be running on much, fast, much faster hardware through hardware speedups might itself give us a speed explosion that gives us an enormous efficiency gain. Although then that kind of looks like the argument that we've actually, in reality, we've made something that's smarter than us because we just then we threw tons of compute at it and then it was able to think way 100 times faster than us. And so that's why things sped up. I don't necessarily want to say that merely being faster than us counts as an intelligence increase, but it might play a contributing role in getting us to intelligence increases much faster. What would have taken centuries on slow, the slow hardware that we have might happen in decades or years on, on hardware that runs 100 times faster. It might count as an intelligence increase in the way that people care about, because like speed, even if it doesn't go into like under some definition of intelligence, it's still like a way that you can be more powerful with your mind and do more stuff. Yeah. 
No, speed matters. And if you know, if you got, if you had one, had someone with exactly the capacities of other people, but did things a hundred times faster, they're certain. Yeah, obviously, they're probably going to be treated as super geniuses. Yeah, quantity has a quality all of its own. So on the on the difficulty of the feedback or on, on, on the like declining returns issue, it seems like we should be able to learn from like other examples of technologies that we've tried to advance, where it does seem like we get pretty sharply declining returns. It's like in, in like many areas of science and technology and engineering, you kind of maybe every so often you get these like big leaps where it's like things kind of improve, and then it's like there's leveling off as we like eke out all of the returns within kind of the current design that we have. You're sh- shaking your head, looking looking skeptical at this. No, no, I agree. I agree completely. I mean, we see this a lot in science. I've been hanging around and. Take attention, say, to various areas of science over the last 30, 40 years, and so many of them have slowed down. I mean, you know, John Hogan wrote this book, The End of Science, which is maybe a bit extreme, but nevertheless, look at the advances, say, in physics, even the advances in neuroscience and cognitive science. You know, they've been kind of disappointing compared to what we might have expected given the advances, say, the advances from the beginning of the 20th century through, say, 1970, and what came after that. There's a sense of a slowdown in almost every field except for technology. So, um, it's true that technology is exempted here, but yeah, we do see, we do see slowdowns, we do see diminishing returns in intellectual areas, and it's not entirely out of the question this could happen in AI. Well, even in technology, it seems like maybe it's just kind of progressing as fast as it was before, but we've got way more people working on it. So there's like declining, declining returns, yeah. like a given a number of inputs, certainly. I mean, some people have argued, well, there's like institutional bureaucratic reasons, or like, yeah, the system of research has changed and that's slowed things down. But it seems to me like just a big part of it is going to be just getting harder and harder for humans to find something new because like, we've, we've found all the things that it's easy for humans to see. Yeah, no, it is interesting. I mean, there's this idea that, yeah, there's so many fields now in which there's fewer great, I mean, it, it applies in aesthetic domains as well. There's fewer great physicists than there were 100 years ago. There's also fewer great musicians, let's say, by, by many people's standards than there were certain points. And it looks like, yeah, there were some big ideas and some big styles that were easy to, there were some big steps that were easy to take once you hit critical mass and then, and then things slow down. And it's a really interesting question why that happens. And the explanation, by the way, I feel it in philosophy as much as anything else, you know, there've been fewer grand world revolutionizing level philosophers now than there were 50 years ago and fewer then than there were 50 years before that. And I think maybe it's, uh, again, the big ideas are out there waiting to be taken. And then there are only uh, diminishing returns after that. I guess my hope would be that with increasing intelligence, somehow this would provide a, a way out of that particular kind of diminishing returns. If you had beings with whole new levels of intelligence, there'd be whole new spaces to explore, but that's only a hypothesis. Yeah. So, so I agree that that might well help and make things go a bit faster, but it's not completely different than what we have now. Because of course, like any technologies that we build potentially help us to do research better. So you already have like some positive feedback loop here. It's just that I guess maybe you think like, well, we've just like, we've, we've improved all the paper and the computers and the texting and so on. And like, actually now we're just super bottlenecked by the brain, which we really can't redesign almost at all. So that's the limiting factor. And then if we could, if we could play with that, then, then things would like really take off. I guess I think the difference, even relatively small differences in intelligence are responsible for vast differences in what it can lead to, whether it's the difference, say, between an Einstein and an ordinary person or an ordinary person and, uh, I don't know, a chimpanzee or something. Relatively small increments lead to massive differences in the kinds of, say, science that get done or the kinds of ideas that get had. So my thought was that, you know, and moving from, say, an Einstein to someone who stands to Einstein as as Einstein stands to an ordinary person, would prima facie lead to a correspondingly vast increase in capacities and in available available ideas. But you know, it's possible that's not the case. Maybe there are just jumping points in intelligence space. And yeah, the jump from chimps to humans was one of them, but it's going to be hard to reach the next jumping point without a massive, without a massive increase. I'd just be surprised I'd be surprised if it worked that way. I don't see 
much reason to believe it'll work that way. But you know, but of course, it's speculation. Yeah, I probably I probably sound very skeptical here. I guess I'm kind of agnostic, and I suppose none of the premises required to get you know a very quick shift are that implausible. So it seems like we can't rule that out. So that's that's kind of worrying, uh, even if we don't think it's terribly likely. Yeah, if someone just took this as there's a the conclusion of the argument to be there's a 20% chance this is going to happen, then from a practical perspective, yeah, then the case for thinking hard about it is still going to be extremely strong. Yeah, I think it's maybe a little bit less than 20%, but still is like something that a lot more people should be thinking about. <laughs> How would we deal with? I think it's at least 25. I, there I was talking about, you know, something that happens over weeks or months. It's like, I think the odds of that happening is like well under 20%. But then if we're talking about like a, a big shift that happens over decades, it seems just like more likely than not. Okay, well, good. Then maybe we agree. Did anyone kind of make fun of you for writing this paper? It seemed like maybe academics were scared to talk about this this issue because it just sounds like science fiction and they don't want to be associated with that. Not really, as far as as far as I recall. And in fact, I, I wrote an article that came out in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. There were twenty five or so responses published, mostly by academics, and you know, with ten to twelve academic philosophers. And yeah, maybe some people took it more seriously than others, and some people are. You know, no one was was exactly uh, making fun in response, but some, you know, someone like Dan Denner is relatively dismissive of the idea, for example. But actually, my purpose in writing the article was to was to get people who are skeptical about the idea to be clearer. One of my purposes was to get them to be clearer about why they're skeptical and say so you have to de- you have to deny this premise or deny this premise and deny this premise. And it was somewhat frustrating that <laughs> like Dan and his article just didn't even uh, didn't even try to try to refute the argument. Just said, ah, oh, this is a this is crazy and not worth worrying about. But then, you know, a bunch of people did take it seriously. You know, it's led to, there's suddenly some, some philosophers have followed up on those ideas, especially all the people working on AI. There are a number of philosophers thinking pretty seriously about superintelligence now. I mean, of course, there's uh, Nick Bostrom has been doing this for decades, but, you know, for a while it was just him and a few others. Now it's catching on a bit more broadly. You've got people like, say, Susan Schneider, who's just written the book on the future of the mind and the future of AI, taking these intelligence explosion ideas seriously. So I think it's gradually becoming a more academically respectable subject than it was. And with all the cash and energy that's been pouring into people thinking about AI more generally now, some fraction of that, I think, is going towards people thinking about superintelligence. But one does also find, in general, a, some resistance to people thinking about superintelligence, too, even among people who think about AI ethics and AI safety. You know, at NYU, we have an institute called the AI Now Institute, which is all about, let's worry about the issues which are arising for artificial intelligence right now in society. And some extremely important issues, obviously, involving bias, involving labor, involving autonomous weapons and everything else under the sun. But I think there is some, there is some resistance that comes from people who think about short-term issues in AI to thinking about long-term issues in AI. And then if you start talking about intelligence explosion and superintelligences, it can come to seem like like science fiction. I mean, to me, I've never understood why these things need to be opposed to each other. We know there's more than one problem that needs to be addressed in the world. And the short-term issues and the long-term issues are both important. But maybe in practice, there's all kinds of complicated dynamics there. But I, I do have the sense there's a, an increasingly serious group of academics who takes these issues seriously. I mean, I guess you're now talking about the intelligence explosion specifically, as opposed to super- do you have the same attitude about superintelligence generally, or is this specific to the intelligence explosion? Yeah, I guess. Okay, so it seems to me like worrying about AI in general, maybe that's like now become pretty mainstream. Worrying about like superintelligence, it's a bit weirder, a bit more edgy, but like people are kind of willing to write about that. And then kind of the intelligence explosion is like a level, or like then it coming about suddenly is like another level beyond of like people are a bit more nervous about talking about that. They, they think that that will come across as quite strange. 
Maybe that's right. Uh, my own experience is that the direction is that the difference between the first two, between one and two, worrying about AI, worrying about superintelligence is greater than the difference <laughs> between two and three. Superintelligence is pretty far out and the intelligence explosion is just a bit further out. I think that's actually my impression too. Are there any like philosophical questions that you'd like to see people working on more that are relevant to issues around AI in the long term? I mean, there are so many issues potentially. Philosophers have just begun thinking about them. So, I, you know, I'd love to see more thought about all of the issues we've talked about here. One, I mean, one issue which I find interesting is a lot of the time, at least when I was writing and thinking about this stuff 10 years ago, at least, I thought that a lot of the people who are thinking about AI were basically assuming that AI would have what we might, what a philosopher might call a Humean architecture. There's a goal that the AI is pursuing and it's just basically trying to take the always figuring out the best means to that goal. Maybe the AI has a utility function. It's trying to maximize utility or some objective function that guides all of its behavior, which to a philosopher is one model of how practical, how action and practical reasoning can work. But it's by no means the only model. There are ways of being. It looks like there are models of intelligence and practical reason that don't have that human form. Everything is in service of goals or maximizing utility. And I think some of the arguments for worrying about, for example, AI safety and AI alignment take on a particular form when you've got this very human model of intelligence. Oh, you absolutely have to get the right utility function. If you just miss by a little bit, everything is going to be disastrous. Well, that makes total sense within the framework of this human approach to AI. But if you've got models of intelligence where you know, it's not at all clear that every possible intelligence is going to have this form, maybe there is, you know, basically you can have Kantian intelligence with underlying rules and so on, that it follows. Now, people say you can always somehow model such a system as having some tacit utility function that it's, that it's maximizing. But once that utility function is no longer explicitly being operated on, I think the, the considerations become very different. And it's at least interesting to think about whether, say, Kantian AI or rule-based AI might have ways of being robust in a way in which Humean AI is not. Anyway, I think that's a place where there's room for a lot of interaction between philosophers who think about rationality and practical reasoning and the relation among things like goals, actions, rationality, and people who think about this in, say, AI safety. I mean, I'm not sure, maybe AI safety has gotten a lot more sophisticated over the last few years and it's less, less beholden to that specific goal-based model. Just to clarify the distinction between the Humean and the Kantian models here, when you talk about a Kantian model, are you thinking about like some sort of agent that can in some ways modify or influence its own like goals by like reasoning to thinking about what goals should it have? Is that like supposed to be the difference between it and a human model? That's one thing it could do, but it might not it might not necessarily do, you know, be fundamentally oriented by goals at all. I mean maybe it has goals along the way, but it has rules and principles that it obeys. You know, one case I've always liked here, I know other people have made it, is the Google Maps analogy of, you know, sort of what do you call it, Oracle based AI that it does a whole lot of theoretical reasoning. And then what does it do? It, it tells you what to do. And I'm, I know various people have offered this as a potential safe route to AI because this thing won't have much in the way of goals of its own. Now, I think there are various problems with the safety of these systems. Maybe they're rapidly going to get taken up by other systems in ways that lead to danger. But just thinking about this as an intelligence and its connection to action, you know, its actions don't really involve maximizing any utility function by optimal means and reasoning at all. What does it do? It tells you the answer to questions. Now, some people then say, people into AI safety, say, isn't it now going to figure out the best way to answer a question by means and reasoning? And it's now going to, you know, 
turn everyone into paperclips, as it were, in order to answer this question as well as possible, to which the answer is no. That's not the architecture of this system. It's not a system which is trying to optimize answering question by the best means by the best means available. It's merely following the rule. Come up with the answer to the question and answer the question. There's not this human connection to action that people assume in, in AI. So that's just an example of, say, rule-based AI, which I think that I mean, a system like that is not subject to the kinds of, you know, to the paperclip style objection. As far, it may, may have other limitations, but it's just a very simple example of how the connection between, say, reasoning and action needn't follow this, this human model in AI. So Will McCaskill has this idea of the long reflection, which is sort of this period of time that we might want to enable where we can sort of think really hard about what we should be doing and a lot of the like difficult unsolved questions, especially philosophical questions in ethics. And it seems like, you know, you've written about how philosophers have failed to come to convergence on a lot of these really important questions. So do you think that that suggests that the long reflection is something we should be trying to make happen? Or do you think because like, you know, we need a lot of time to like figure these things out? Or does it suggest that like it could be a waste of time because maybe we'll never come to answers on these difficult philosophical questions? So is the long reflection the idea that we ought to basically, you know, wait and reflect for a whole, for a very long time on things like our fundamental values before we do things like colonizing the universe? Yeah, I think that's basically the idea. And, you know, we should try to put ourselves in a position where we can engage in that reflection for a long time. I guess like don't commit to any irreversible course of action until we've just like really tried very hard. We've like turned over every intellectual stone to try to figure out whether we could be making a mistake. I haven't thought about this very much, so it's likely that anything I have to say about it will not be terribly well thought out. I guess it strikes me as a sort of an ideal reflection in certain kind of highly idealized circumstances. This could make sense. I suspect that we're never going to be in those idealized circumstances. So that waiting, you know, waiting to act obviously can potentially have very significant costs, like someone else is going to act who may have values that are much less aligned with the good than your own, whether that's, say, in the case of colonizing the universe someone elsewhere in the universe or other groups of people right here. So this does kind of strike me as a such an idealized prescription that it's too easy to imagine ways in which things could go wrong. That said, if there was a way to somehow ensure that by waiting in this way, nothing else bad was going to happen in the meantime, then maybe I could imagine at least some highly idealized circumstances where this would be a good idea. Yeah, so maybe Will, Will would object to, to this explanation, but I think like one, one idealization would be that we get to a point where we're just like really confident that we've set ourselves up such that we're not going to have a big war, we're not going to like destroy ourselves, so we're like very secure. Maybe we've like spread out like over a fairly you know decent fraction of the galaxy or something like that, and we're like, so we haven't got all our eggs in one basket. And then we're like, well, the universe is very big, time is very long, we could go out and grab all of those resources now, but like, in fact, the universe is only expanding very gradually, so we're only losing like a billionth of the available resources every year. So why why not just take a million years? We'll only lose a thousandth of the resources. And then we'll like, that will potentially give us like a much better idea of what we actually want to do with, with all of that space and all of that time. Yeah. And after the first million, you should probably wait for another million. Yeah. <laughs> the ever, the ever delayed splurge. Yeah. Reach that happy equilibrium point. Which is infinite. We'd better, we'd better wait for at least a quadrillion. <laughs> well, so at some point you should have like, yeah, there should, there has to be some constraints. I mean, you're not going to de defer the benefit forever, but you can also do this kind of mixed strategy. I was going to say where you send out a colonization wave, but then it's like, they're waiting on the instructions from the philosophy central back at home planet. And they're going to send out a message about what to do when they arrive at their destination. 
and out at light speed at some point. So that maybe like just as they're hitting like the furthest reach of the, uh, we're losing subscribers as I speak, but <laughs> just just as they reach like the furthest out level of the universe, they're going to get the the light arriving back from back from where we are, where we've spent like as long as we could before like they were no longer reachable anymore. Trying to figure out what they should do, and then they're going to like act on those instructions. What do you think? I guess I'm just a little bit I'm a little bit skeptical that philosophical value runs that deep. Maybe this is a, my moral anti-realism. Oh, I didn't know you were an anti-realist. I, uh, I don't know. I, go, I, I, go, I don't have well-worked-out views in, in meta-ethics, but I guess I've got some leanings towards anti-realism, and that might make me just a little bit suspicious of how deep moral values go and how just how much gain there's going to be in extended reflection. Of course, even a moral anti-realist should allow that moral progress is possible and actual and, and happens a lot. But, you know, it may well be that, you know, after the first thousand years of sustained reflection, you get some kind of diminishing returns. You could think that like if moral realism is true, then the moral truth is more likely to be like some simple thing like, you know, utilitarianism. Whereas like if moral anti-realism is true, then like, you know, it could be extraordinarily complicated for all we know. And we'd, it would yeah. take even longer to work out all the ins and outs of our views. Although if moral anti-realism is true and it's a function of, say, of human psychology, ultimately, then we're going to need, we'll just build really good AI simulations of human psychology and do all the stuff we need to do to that to figure out what their idealized preferences and so on would be. And that, that might make it more of a tractable research project. Yeah. I guess, I mean, well, one thing is just like you are only kind of so big and your brain only has so much in it. So it seems like that, yeah, you would at some point just like run out of further analysis you could do of like what are the values of David Chalmers as a physical object. Whereas if you're a moral realist, there is the possibility that this is like very, very deep facts are involved as it might be very, very deep facts and mathematics that will require vast amounts of rational reflection to uncover. Yeah. In, in the moral realist case, it seems like you could imagine, it's like the philosophers are like, yep, we have a consensus. It's like moral theory, utilitarianism or whatever. And they're like, go away and check it again. Cause it's like, we don't want to mess this up. And then they come back a thousand years later. They've like tried every thought that they could. And they're like, no, we still think it's this. And like, check it again, <laughs> just like keep on going. Because like the risk of being wrong, like even if it's like very unlikely is so serious that you gain from delaying and just like constantly trying to find a way that you could be mistaken. You're also going to want to think very hard during this long reflection process of what kinds of beings you're producing. Presumably, like AI doesn't stop. You know, we produce some AIs. Human psychology gradually drifts in various directions, which will predictably favor certain value systems over others. And then, oh boy, we want to think about what we're doing because the outcome of a long reflection may very much depend on those intermediate actions. At some point, we're going to get self-conscious about those intermediate actions. Hey, are we doing things which are going to produce more utilitarians or more Kantians? And somehow our reflection of that kind may tend to undermine the whole process, especially if you're inclined towards moral anti-realism. All this is a function of psychology. I think Will might find this conversation a little bit frustrating because it's been so abstract so far. But yeah, like, I guess try, try, try to make it a little bit more concrete. I guess you've written about the possibility that we could create, you know, machine learning systems or, you know, AI that can do philosophy better than us and then like might lead to an explosion in like progress within, within philosophy that they might not be like blind to possibilities that kind of humans just find it very hard to see. Do we see maybe any early signs of that? Are there any AIs doing philosophy and maybe like having discovery, like making discoveries that, that we've missed? And like, how likely do you think it is that that will ever happen? I mean, I don't. My sense is we're not really at anything close to that point yet. But once you get human level AGI, then, you know, you're probably going to get areas where machines exceed human capacities. And it's not entirely impossible that, you know, is, is philosophical reasoning going to be one of the last of those areas or one of the first? Yeah, various people have said we'll get, I suspect we'll get machines which are good at doing science quicker than we'll get machines which are good at doing philosophy. But I could be wrong about that. Certainly, there will be a point where machines exceed our philosophical abilities. I'm 
inclined to think. So yeah, so if the long reflection just involves, you know, waiting for an intelligence explosion to happen, then yeah, maybe that, I, I may think that'll be a relatively quick reflection. Okay, so a, a simpler version of this is create much greater than human level AI before colonizing the universe, because they will be in a position to have philosophical and other insights that may be vital to creating the best universe. I guess I can see that. I can see a case for that. When it comes to values, though, it's very tricky because, like I said, I'm not I'm not a moral realist, so I'm not sure that it's that will be a matter of getting closer to the moral truth so much as that of maybe just moving off in the direction of different moral judgments, depending on what happens with AI. I mean, if we do succeed in aligning AI perfectly with human values and then producing some idealized version of that, then maybe that would produce something that we regard as massive moral progress. But it's also very, very likely that we'll produce AIs which are not perfectly aligned with human values, which are after all very complex and variant and multifarious as they are, and it will just end up in a, in a certain kind of evaluative drift as AI is produced, which it's not clear that we ought to favor that. So it might also depend, this project might then also depend on how confident you are and that we're going to produce AIs which are aligned with our current values. Again, if you're a moral anti-realist who thinks that realism is a matter of moral values or ultimately a matter of our idealized moral preferences. So can I just ask something to get clear on like the source of the resistance to the idea that the long reflection might be like, yeah, very good. It seems like at some points you were suggesting that like, we just don't need that long to figure out a lot of the like things that philosophers are trying to figure out, like maybe especially if moral anti-realism is true. Is that the main issue or is it more that you feel like, you know, philosophers thinking for all of this time still won't come up with the answers to the questions we think are really important, or is it something else? Probably a mix of things. I mean, I really feel like I'm amateurishly speculating about a topic I haven't, I really haven't thought much about. But I mean, maybe, for example, I mean, there are things here which I think are factual that we need to figure out. I mean, I mentioned already, I'm inclined to think consciousness matters a lot to value. So getting a correct theory of consciousness will, by my lights, be very important in figuring out, you know, the, the value of various outcomes and therefore of how we should act. So I guess I ought to be open to, yeah, waiting until we have a really good theory of consciousness before taking irreversible actions that affect different beings differentially. So, I mean, I'm certainly open to that one in principle. That one strikes me as a bit different. I had been focusing on the one about moral values. And I guess I'm inclined to think that moral values are just a bit more superficial. They're more closely tied to, you know, the details of our of our psychology, maybe idealized significantly, but there are limits to how deep they can run and how inaccessible to us they can be. That might suggest that there's going to be diminishing returns in long-term reflection. But insofar as this, as these moral questions may also depend on factual questions, like, say, the distribution of consciousness, then I guess I ought to be open to there being deep factual questions there, which are not so accessible to us, that may take longer to figure out. And yeah, maybe just straight questions of the physics of the universe, like, how long do we have? Is it billions or quadrillions or infinitely many years? Maybe our our right policies will depend on figuring out factual questions like that. And maybe there's a case for uh, figuring those out first before taking irreversible action. I still worry about the idealization and the massive costs of waiting, but I'm sure that uh, Will and others have thought a lot about that and have things to say. Yeah, I think talk, talking about the idealized case is kind of fun, but I, I guess 
I think most people would probably agree that humanity is more likely to go too fast rather than too slow and like more likely to kind of lock itself in rather than like preserve option value for, for too long. So it seems like on the margin, we kind of want to be pushing towards like more reflection and yeah, more, more keeping of options open. And then to me, kind of the, the more difficult questions is how on earth do you implement this given that there's kind of like sometimes first mover advantages and like competitions that kind of prompt people to take risks and want to move quickly. And so it's like more of a kind of political science institutional question of like, how do we encourage more reflection rather rather than less on, you know, incrementally. Maybe this will be easier in our idealized AI future than the future <laughs> that depends on actual human psychology. Yeah, possibly. Or it could be much worse. <laughs> it's going to depend on how we, how, we, how we set it up, I guess. All right, so listeners who have stuck with us this long might themselves be considering a career in philosophy, or uh, at least, if not that, uh, perhaps going into academia. So I'm kind of curious to, to know if there's any uh, career advice you'd be interested to, to share with people. And of course, whenever talking to someone who's been like very unusually successful within their field, there's a, there's a big risk that kind of the advice that seemed like it worked for them might not work for the, for the typical person. So we have to do a bit of, bit of correction on that. So don't just tell everyone, I guess, to like, you know, put it all on red. But yeah, trying, trying to adjust for that. Are there any kind of any advice that you think would be helpful to uh, listeners kind of in their 20s? doing a PhD, having a successful research career? Yeah, I'm not sure because I think a lot's going to depend also on you know what you want out of doing philosophy. And you know, maybe your listeners are selected for being people who have certain kinds of values here, like wanting to do philosophy to help change the world, for example. I don't think I've got particularly useful career advice about that. I think, well, put it this way, any career advice that I have would be would pale next to that that, say, Arden has, who's someone who's reflected on this much more seriously than I have. I mean, I'm fundamentally doing philosophy and try and figure things out and understand the truth and understand the world and those moral and practical concerns are not what got me into the field. My advice to people often is, A, think about things you're passionate about, thinking about, you actually find genuinely interesting rather than what everyone else is doing. I think there's a, it's easy to get, to get pushed into doing what other people are doing. And then, you know, the marginal returns for doing that, both for you and for the world, are, I think, relatively low extended existing literature by an inch in a certain direction. So I'd rather see people doing things that A, they're genuinely interested in, B, are potentially novel and ambitious. Two, I often find philosophers are often relatively unambitious. They're happy just to extend things in, in small ways. And people with big ideas often get certain kinds of negative feedback. It's easy to understand why this happens because people with big ideas often have bad ideas. <laughs> you know, I've seen, you know, we've all run into people with big ideas that are not promising. But nonetheless, I'd like to encourage ambition and philosophy and going in, in new directions, which aren't just the same thing that everyone else is doing. So um, that's thinking about it from the point of view of maximizing the number of good ideas which are out there. Exactly how that plays into the project of, say, effective altruism and global priorities, I'm not sure. I'm still inclined to think that having, you know, big new ideas is probably going to be good. But it also does happen that philosophy can be done collectively. So groups of people can make progress. And maybe that's that's Maybe the model in, say, effective altruism has been more of something like this collective project. And yeah, collectives can make progress in principle greater than the progress that individuals make, even if the individual contributions are relatively small. So this is all to say I don't have a one-size-fits-all set of career advice, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I think so people who are involved in global priorities research often think there are like particular sorts of questions that seem like especially valuable for people to work on, including for philosophers to work on. So I think like if this was a question about how to sort of have the most impact as a philosopher, then we would like talk more about that. But I'm also just curious to hear about any things you have to say about just like how to build a successful and novel research program. And so like my impression is that 
when you started your PhD, it was like pretty unusual to think about consciousness in the way that you were thinking about it or that it was like associated with Descartes. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. And like, maybe that was like a little bit out of fashion. And so I'm curious to like, just hear about your experience there and see if there's anything you can recommend to people who would want to have a sort of ambitious research program like that. Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say is, of course, I've been very lucky and, you know, so I don't want to give too much weight to my own experiences. And there could have been, you know, 50 people in similar situations and it wouldn't necessarily have panned out as well for the other for the other 49. But, you know, my own experience was that I got into philosophy because I was really passionate about one particular question, the question about consciousness. And at the time, you know, consciousness has gone into and out of favor over the years. It wasn't totally it wasn't totally dead as a subject. People, some people were thinking about it, but it's true. I was. I also worked a lot on AI and neural networks, and as a graduate student, and published a bunch of stuff on that. And a lot of people said, "My God, you're crazy! I'm going to work on this almost dead subject, consciousness, rather than this really exciting new subject uh, of AI and neural networks." Well, I was. I was interested in that, but it just struck me as a much more limited question, the question of consciousness, big, important question. That was what I was passionate about. And I stayed with it. And, you know, well, five years later, but the latest neural network winter was in fashion. And, uh, you know, I mean, by uh, by the mid 90s, the bottom dropped out of that particular approach and, and consciousness was suddenly on the rise. So I got so I got lucky, of course, wait another 10 or 15 years and suddenly neural networks came back. So I one lesson I drawn from that was don't be too influenced by what happens to be in fashion at the moment when, say, you're in, in graduate school, because fashions can change. But yeah, that does interact with my own luck here. And I experienced pursuing something I was passionate about and had views about is good for doing philosophy, because it led me to have, you know, an area where I had intuitions, an area where I had thoughts that didn't feel as if they were just kind of driven by the literature. And that was at least proved to be useful to me in making a contribution. But I mean, but a lot depends on whether on how happy you're going to be as a philosopher, whether you want to be someone who's some people love being part of a collective team on a movement. And then maybe, especially if you're thinking about the value produced by philosophy rather than your own satisfaction, then some people are going to be in a position to make great contributions as part of a team, which will change the world just as well as contributions made by, let's say you've got a 10% chance of making a transformative contribution yourself and 90% chance of doing nothing. That's if you take the individualist model, or you can take the, uh, the collective model where you're more or less guaranteed to make a 10% level contribution and 10 of you between you will make the same contribution. So take 10 people on one model, one makes it one makes a transformative contribution and the other nine do nothing. And on the other model, all 10 make a 10% contribution. Which one are you? And just say, now, now make that a, a choice about your own future. If you're happier being guaranteed to make a contribution as part of a team, then maybe you'll pursue one approach to philosophy. If you'd rather kind of swing for the fences and have a 10% chance of making a transformative contribution yourself, then you'll take a different contribution. Of course, all that presupposes a self, a certain selfish attitude to, to philosophy. It's like, who cares whether if you're just being completely looking at, say, moral or even epistemic value, you might say, who cares what you did? You should just try and maximize the outcome. But, you know, to me, choice of career is, is also very much tied to your own personal satisfaction as well as, you know, the, the best moral outcome or even the best epistemological outcome. So I think it's reasonable to take into account these facts about what's going to satisfy you in your career. And I think there are just different philosophical personalities here. 
sorry, this is just picking up on one of the things that you mentioned, but you talked about like not being too swayed by the, you know, the fashions of the time when thinking about what you're going to work on. So this is like something I worry about a little bit because it's probably pretty hard to tell from the inside what's a fashion and what is intellectual progress. (laughs) And so, you know, maybe nobody's into AI anymore because it like really, or, you know, during the AI winter or whatever, because it like really was a doomed research project or whatever. Anyway, do you have any guidance for being able to tell what's intellectual fashion and what's intellectual progress? I mean, there's probably an empirical project here of figuring out what the science, I mean, there are facts about fashions that go out of fashion and 10 years later are just viewed retrospectively as mere fashions and those which are viewed as having made progress. And maybe there's an empirical project of figuring out, you know, the signs of such a project, but I don't really have a, uh, a quick and easy rule of thumb for making that distinction. If there was a quick and easy rule of thumb, it would probably be applied already. I mean, we all have, we all have views about these things, but it probably requires going through some, through some substantive reflection. Maybe you could find some sociological properties of literatures once articles start appearing at this rate and these journals with such and such characteristics, then more likely to be a, a fashion. But no, good project for someone to figure out though. We could do some empirical, some empirical philosophy retrospectively. We'll ask people about a field 10 years ago. Was that a fashion or was that progress? We'll look at some empirical markers. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it seems like there could also be some sociological clues and like, hey, just the way people talk about certain topics. I mean, you could imagine like, well, when people are dismissive of something or say that it's silly and that's like the primary thrust of their argument against it, that could be a sign that it's a fashion as opposed to like, you know, I I don't know. Someone ought to figure this out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. People say that something is silly and then they can't really state analytically why. I think that's the red flag that something's going wrong. It's like very often things that people say are silly are silly, but then when they're pushed, they can explain why. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, silly and then there's nothing underneath it. Maybe some things are primitively silly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you taking so much time to uh, record this bumper episode. This has been really fun. Of the podcast. Yeah, I hope that the audience enjoys it uh, as, as, as much as I did. I guess, yeah, one final question is, uh, well, on, on this very theme, is that you uh, seem to kind of really enjoy bantering about philosophical questions with, with other people. I mean, even those who kind of strongly disagree with you, or like where, where there's like a kind of mutual relationship where both of you think the other one has crazy views, like with, like with Daniel Dennett. Do you think kind of having that fun-loving attitude towards disagreement is an, is an asset in intellectual work? And is it something you've cultivated or is it just kind of a personality trait? I don't know. I suspect it's more of a personality trait. It's one thing I really enjoy in philosophy is the interactive and social aspects of it. You actually get to talk about stuff a lot and think about it and argue. And yeah, argument can be done in an enjoyable way or it can be done in an unenjoyable way. And maybe I had experiences, you know, early on occasionally with, say, uh, confrontational or dismissive styles of argument that made me think, oh, well, this is just less fun. So from the, from the, uh, from the straight out selfish point of view, there are some styles of philosophical interaction that I find more enjoyable. And then I'm inclined to project that onto other people too. So try and, uh, you know, maintain and cultivate that kind of attitude more generally. But I think that's, to be honest, I'm really honest. I think that's more largely about me making the experience of philosophy a positive and enjoyable experience than about trying to make philosophical progress. I mean, there can be many great philosophers have been total jerks. You know, Wittgenstein doesn't seem like he would have been a whole lot of fun to be around. <laughs> okay, but if you think about Wittgenstein's ideas, he had some interesting, important ideas. And I doubt there's much of a correlation between, between you know, jerkiness versus friendliness, so to speak, and philosophical contributions. There are philosophers who make massive progress working solitarily. There are philosophers who are jerks who make 
massive progress. Maybe you can try and find some potential mechanisms here. Like one very clear mechanism is, w- is when philosophy gets too aggressive, it drives people out of the field. And that's something that we've, we've actually seen in practice. I think in recent years, there's been a trend towards making philosophy, you know, less aggressive and more respectful in its attitude. And I would like to think that's had the effect of maybe driving fewer people out of the field, although the, I don't know if all the data are less in. So there are potential mechanisms there by which it can help. But to me, to be honest, it's more like, well, this is my career. This is the, the career we're all involved in. It's, you know, it works better if we're happier rather than rather than miserable. I guess it seems to me if there's kind of no correlation between being a jerk and being fun and intellectual output, then it seems like why not why not be fun? Why not yeah, why not why not kind of be polite about it? I suppose that way we can drive Schopenhauer out of the field or something like that. But... I think some people have the view that being a jerk is actually positively correlated with philosophical progress. Like I haven't counted the attitude that, you know, sorry, philosophy should only be done by the very best philosophers. And if someone says something that's mediocre or stupid, they should be then taking them seriously is just going to be a waste of time. And we ought to only, or we ought to only focus on ideas and evolve those trivial human matters, ignore those trivial human matters, like emotions and paying attention to those will just slow things down. I don't find that view very plausible. And I think that, yeah, it's perfectly possible to make a any progress that can be made in, by jerky philosophy can be made, even if it's made us, you know, an iota of a, a second or a minute slower by non-jerky philosophy. That's a trade-off. That seems to me to be a trade-off worth making. Just in the spirit of non-jerkiness, I would just like to reinvite Schopenhauer to the table. Um, <laughs> it's an inclusive philosophy yeah. for the very sad. <laughs> I, did, yeah, I didn't know Schopenhauer personally, so I shouldn't, shouldn't pass judgment, I guess. I gather, I gather he was A, very, very depressive and sad, and B, pretty much a jerk to everyone around him. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of his reputation. Yeah, maybe... Maybe Schopenhauer could simply not have produced his philosophy without being as depressive as he was because it runs so deeply. Seems plausible to me. I mean, it seems like it would be difficult to to produce that philosophy without like feeling the things that it was about. That's fair. You're, you're hoisting me on my own petard. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I was saying how good it is to be nice. You've like called me out on being a jerk. I take it back. I take back my glib criticism of Schopenhauer. <laughs> how does this work for effective altruists, by the way? Do they also cultivate niceness in the field or they say... Actually, I was once, yeah, a few years ago during Hurricane Sandy, uh, there was a blackout in New York and there was uh, a bunch of people were hanging out in one of the few areas where you could get food near uh, near NYU. And I went to get to get food with a prominent effective altruist who will remain uh, who will remain nameless. And I said, oh, here's a, uh, here's a long line for food. Well, I guess we shouldn't. There was an opportunity to cut into line. I guess we shouldn't cut into line because that would be immoral. I sense the moral gravitas of the effective altruist <laughs> I was with, to which... The effective altruist said, oh, no, no, actually, we're morally obliged to cut into line because our time is, is going, to be, going to be spent, you know, achieving much greater value for the world than, than that of these, of these other people. So, yeah, there is, a, there is a point of view from which effective altruism can encourage, can encourage jerkiness. I don't know where the community as a whole stands on this. Yeah, that's very bad reasoning, I think. I guess I can, for the rebuttal to that, I can refer people to the paper Considering Considerateness by Stefan Schubert and my episode with him from back in 2017, maybe early 18. Yeah, I mean, there's just like so many practical, like there's like moral uncertainty reasons. There's just like so many practical reasons also why if you're actually trying to do good, it seems like you should err in the other direction and be like as nice to other people just in common sense ways as as, as you can. Maybe it's a little bit late in this interview to, to, to dive into that topic. I guess on the intellectual banter side 
other things. I guess, yeah, effective altruism, you know, spans the full range. Kind of maybe like like philosophy. There's people who love to love to have a laugh, and there's people who are, can be like maybe direct and candid, or perhaps a little bit rude or abrasive. Uh, would would be the other framing. I think one slight problem that we face is that a lot of the discussion happens online, which I think is kind of an environment that's very conducive towards the more abrasive way. I think in, in person, it's extremely rare that that people are actually rude to one. I mean, like it almost basically never happens to me that like I find people in person are, are inconsiderate. Yeah, I mean, one well, one thing that is like maybe very slightly different than the issue of like rudeness versus niceness, but I think is related that I think effective altruism does well. And so does like a certain style of philosophy that I feel like you engage in, Dave. It's just like being really interested in in like lots of people's new ideas and a huge range of ideas and sort of a tolerance of weirdness of ideas and like not just, dis- mm-hmm. yeah, not dismissing things very quickly. And so I feel like that's something that, yeah, people, I think they try to cultivate it on purpose. And like, it's something that I definitely appreciate. It also makes sense from the point of view of self-interest. You know, when I first got into philosophy, I was just interested in mostly the mind-body problem and all that other stuff, boring, boring, boring. <laughs> Over time, I got interested in it much more. Now it means like most philosophy talks I go to have something interesting for me, and that just improves my own experience of doing philosophy. So, you know, being open to new ideas is A, in your self-interest just sort of practically, and B, it can also help. You know, sometimes those new ideas are useful for thinking about thinking about your own work. So I think it's, it's also epistemologically useful. It's much more pleasant to be a, a nice person who's interested in what other people have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think EAs in general are very open-minded, and like I love to like think about all these crazy ideas, as, uh, as I think is apparent. But I guess that there's also like something that's very enjoyable about just being like very passionate about thinking, no, that's a crazy idea. Like here's all of my reasons why I think that's 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 outrageous and not being like so controlled that you're just like, oh, you know, I think probably this isn't true for these things. Like there's, there's something to be said for like passionate dismissal as in the spirit of like, you know, a good fun conversation, I think. They say you should be, uh, you should be open-minded, but not so open <laughs> that your brain falls out. <laughs> no, but the thing is, I- we're, all dis- we're all dismissive of some things. And I think if you're dismissive respectfully, it's fine to be dismissive passionately, but respectfully, giving your uh, giving your reason. I think you can actually, I, yeah, I think you can dismiss things in the sense of rejecting them yeah. passionately without being dismissive in the sense that I'm talking about, which yeah. is kind of just like, that's lame and dumb, mm. and you should just stop talking now. I, I passionately dismiss things in conversation that I suspect probably are true because the other person knows more about it than me, and so I like presumably I'm wrong, but I like enjoy the thing of like you know having a strong discourse. That's and then and then I'm going to like find out why I'm wrong. Then you, you passionately reject them as one thing, passionately dismissing them as another. If you passionately dismiss them, you say, we're not even going to talk about this, and then you wouldn't get to have the strong discourse. Passionately rejecting them is saying, that can't be true, and you go on to an argument. And yeah, those are very different things. Yeah, yeah right. Are these philosophical terms of art, rejection and dismissal? <laughs> well, they, they are now. You know, we're, cre- we're coining them. Yeah, there's a, I actually wrote this long set of guidelines for respectful, inclusive, and constructive philosophy. And, you know, there are... Both, you know, be nice in various ways, be open to other people's points of view, but it never rules out completely rejecting someone's point of view, making objections. And it does, you know, maybe part of being respectful in philosophy is leaving open the possibility that you could be wrong. P is is totally false, but at least being open, carrying on an argument that would at least somehow leave yourself open to being convinced in principle. None of us is absolutely certain about everything, but all that is totally consistent with passionate rejection. I think you're wrong, and here's why. So let's not, let's, you know, I mean, it's one thing, being open-minded in sort of method doesn't require being open-minded in beliefs. Let's put it that way. Well, to all of the views that I have rejected in this conversation, uh, know that there is a good chance that you might be right and I might be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) This has been really fun, guys. Uh, My guest today has been David Chalmers and my co-host today has been Arden Kohler. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast. Thanks. It's been a whole lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great. (laughs) 
I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I really appreciated Arden's contribution to the interview, and you'll be hearing more of her in episodes to come. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Karen Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, and transcriptions by Zaki Ulhak. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.